Man, Economy, and State, a treatise on economic principles, with Power and Market, Government and the Economy, second edition, by Murray N. Rothbard. Introduction to the second edition, by Joseph T. Salerno. The introduction draws substantially on the information and resources found in the Murray N. Rothbard papers. The Rothbard papers are currently held at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, Auburn, Alabama, and include, among other materials, Murray Rothbard's Letters and Correspondence, 1940-1994, Memos and Unpublished Essays, 1945-1994, and Drafts of Published Works. Murray Rothbard began work on this magnum opus on January 1, 1952. On May 5, 1959, Rothbard wrote to his mentor, Ludwig von Mises, informing him, A finito. In English, it is finished. The more than seven years that it took Rothbard to complete Man, Economy, and State elapsed during what was up to that time one of the most sterile and retrogressive decades in the history of scientific economics, dating back to the birth of the science in the systematic treatise of Richard Cattillon, published in 1755. In view of the progressive degeneration of economic thought throughout the 1950s, the eventual publication of Rothbard's treatise in 1962 was a milestone in the development of sound economic theory and an event that rescued the science from self-destruction. The era of modern economics emerged with the publication of Karl Menger's seminal work, Principles of Economics, in 1871. In this slim book, Menger set forth the correct approach to theoretical research in economics and elaborated some of its immediate implications. In particular, Menger sought to identify the causal laws determining the prices that he observed being paid daily in actual markets. Menger had worked as an economic journalist and market analyst for daily newspapers on and off for over a decade. His stated goal was to formulate a realistic price theory that would provide an integrated explanation of the formation of market phenomena valid for all times and places. Thus, in his preface to the book, Menger wrote, I have devoted special attention to the investigation of the causal connections between economic phenomena involving products and the corresponding agents of production for the purpose of establishing a price theory based upon reality and placing all price phenomena, including interest, wages, ground rent, etc., under one unified point of view. Menger's investigations led him to the discovery that all market prices, wage rates, rents, and interest rates could ultimately be traced back to the choices and actions of consumers striving to satisfy their most important wants by economizing scarce means or economic goods. Thus, for Menger, all prices, rents, wage, and interest rates were the outcome of the value judgments of individual consumers, who chose between concrete units of different goods according to their subjective values, or marginal utilities, to use the term coined by his student, Friedrich Wieser. With this insight was born modern economics. 
Menger's causal realist approach to economic theorizing quickly began to attract outstanding followers both in Austria and later throughout continental Europe and the Anglophone countries. What came to be called the Austrian School grew rapidly in prestige and numbers, and by World War I, theoretical research based on the causal realist approach was considered the cutting edge of economic science. For various reasons, the school suffered an amazingly rapid decline, especially in Great Britain and the United States, but also in Austria after the war. By the 1920s, the causal realist approach had been overshadowed by the partial equilibrium approach of Alfred Marshall in Great Britain, the United States, and even parts of continental Europe. Its star fell further with the importation of the mathematical general equilibrium approach of Léon Valras into the English-speaking world in the early 1930s. A little later, Menger's approach was nearly buried by the Keynesian Revolution. Hence, by the advent of World War II, there ceased to be a self-conscious, institutionally embedded network of economists actively engaged in teaching and research in the Mengerian tradition. After World War II, a new and stifling orthodoxy known as the neoclassical synthesis had descended upon economics, especially in the United States. This so-called synthesis was actually a hodgepodge of the three disparate approaches that had overwhelmed the Mangarian causal realist approach in the interwar period. It jumbled together the Marshallian and Valrassian approaches to price determination with Keynesian macroeconomics. The first two approaches focused narrowly on analyzing the determination of unreal equilibrium prices, either in single markets, partial equilibrium, or in all markets simultaneously, general equilibrium. Keynesian macroeconomics denied the efficacy of the price system altogether in coordinating the various sectors of an economy confronted with the failure of aggregate demand. This latter condition was supposed to have caused the Great Depression and was further alleged by Keynes and his followers to be an endemic feature of the market economy. The neoclassical synthesis thus proclaimed that the price system worked efficiently to allocate scarce resources only if the government deftly employed fiscal and monetary policies to maintain a level of aggregate demand or total spending in the economy that was sufficient to absorb a full employment level of output. This new orthodoxy also promoted hyper-specialization and a corresponding disintegration of economic science into a clutter of compartmentalized sub-disciplines. Even the theoretical core of economics was now split into microeconomics and macroeconomics, which had seemingly very little connection to each other. Specialized journals proliferated and resulted in a radical change in the research culture, with a premium on the writing and reading of the latest journal articles. The few books that were published were technical monographs or dumbed-down textbooks. The era of the great systematic treatise on economic theory was at a close. 
Indeed, in the preface to this treatise, Rothbard laments the demise of the old-fashioned treatise on economic principles after World War I and the ensuing progressive disintegration of economics, including economic theory, into compartmentalized subdisciplines. Almost the sole holdout against this intellectual revolution was Ludwig von Mises. With the publication in 1940 of National Economy, the German-language forerunner of human action, Mises single-handedly recovered and greatly advanced the system of causal realistic economic theory. In particular, he integrated Mangarian value and price theory with his own earlier restatement of monetary theory. In addition, he provided a rigorous foundation for the entire system of economic theory in a broader science of human action that he himself had expounded in earlier works and now further elaborated. This science of human action he now dubbed praxeology. Unfortunately, Mises' great treatise was almost completely ignored by the post-war economics profession. However, while it failed to inspire an immediate renewal of the Mangarian scientific movement, human action did lay the foundations for its later revival. This revival was to be ignited by the publication of Man, Economy, and State in 1962. When Rothbard initiated work on what would turn out to be a full-blown treatise, he conceived of the project as a book suitable both for lay readers and for college instruction that would bring to the surface and clarify the step-by-step nature of the edifice which Mises had constructed, but more or less had taken for granted that his readers would understand. This was necessary because human action was addressed to a scholarly audience, and Mises had accordingly assumed a great deal of familiarity among his readers with many of the concepts and theorems of what he called modern subjectivist economics. Thus Rothbard intended to do for Mises what McCullough did for Ricardo, that is, to make his work comprehensible to an intelligent lay readership. But Rothbard quickly realized that his original plan was flawed and had to be abandoned for three reasons. First, the traditional textbook format was too disorganized in its arrangement and treatment of various topics to accommodate the development of economic theory in the logical step-by-step manner that Rothbard had envisioned. As such, it was inadequate to convey a sense of the grand sweep of the coherent system integrating and pervading all aspects of sound economic doctrine. Second, Rothbard discovered that there existed a lot of gaps in Mises' economic organon that he had to fill in himself. In addition, Rothbard's step-by-step deductions led him to the conclusion that Mises' theory of monopoly, which was held by most economists in the Mangarian tradition, was irreparably flawed and had to be completely revised. The book was thus turning out to involve a good deal of original contribution on Rothbard's part. Third, as he proceeded in writing the book, Rothbard was concurrently researching the literature and reading widely, and he began to realize that human action had emerged from a very broad tradition that included many more economists than just Mises and his famous predecessors and direct protégés, for example, Friedrich A. Hayek in the native Austrian school. 
Moreover, as Rothbard read and wrote, it became increasingly clear to him that the various strands of this theoretical tradition, which included many important American and British contributions, in addition to the great Austrian works, had not yet been completely integrated and their principles fully delineated in a systematic treatise. Accordingly, Rothbard concluded, many essential points must be deduced originally or with the help of other works, and therefore the book cannot simply be a paraphrase of human action. Rothbard's proposed book was thus transformed in the very process of its writing from a straightforward exposition of the principles of received doctrine of the Austrian school, narrowly conceived, to a treatise elaborating a complete system of economic theory and featuring many original and even radically new deductions and theorems. Mises himself immediately recognized the profound originality and significance of Rothbard's contribution. In his review of Man, Economy, and State, Mises wrote that Rothbard joins the ranks of eminent economists by publishing a voluminous work, a systematic treatise on economics. In every chapter of his treatise, Rothbard adopts the best teachings of his predecessors and adds to them highly important observations. Mises went on to characterize Rothbard's work as an epical contribution to the general science of human action, praxeology, and its practically most important and up to now best elaborated part, economics. Henceforth, all essential studies in these branches of knowledge will have to take full account of the theories and criticisms expounded by Dr. Rothbard. Given Mises' exacting scholarly standards and his well-known parsimony in paying compliments for scientific contributions, this is high praise indeed for a book published by a 36-year-old economist. The following statement is indicative of Mises' attitude in this respect. There never lived at the same time more than a score of men whose work contributed anything essential to economics. More importantly, Mises evidently viewed Rothbard's work as opening a new epoch in modern economic science. Rothbard himself was not reluctant to indicate the respects in which he considered his treatise to have been a departure from or an advance upon Mises' work. Foremost among Rothbard's theoretical innovations was his formulation of a complete and integrated theory of production— Previously, production theory in causal realist analysis was in disarray and had consisted of a number of independent and conflicting strands of thought that treated capital and interest, marginal productivity theory, rent theory, entrepreneurship, and so on in isolation. Somewhat surprised by this yawning gap in production theory, Rothbard commented, Mises has very little detail on production theory, and as a consequence it took me many false starts and lots of what turned out to be wasted effort before I arrived at what satisfied me as a good production theory. It's involved emancipation from 90% of current textbook material. In Man, Economy, and State, Rothbard elaborates a unified and systematic treatment of the structure of production, the theory of capital and interest, factor pricing, rent theory, and the role of entrepreneurship in production. 
Furthermore, production theory is presented as part of the core of economic analysis and covers five of the book's twelve chapters and approximately 30% of its text. One of Rothbard's greatest accomplishments in production theory was the development of a capital and interest theory that integrated the temporal production structure analysis of Newt Wicksell and Hayek with the pure time preference theory expounded by Frank A. Fetter and Ludwig von Mises. Although the roots of both of these strands of thought can be traced back to Bermbaverk's work, his exposition was confused and raised seemingly insoluble contradictions between the two. They were subsequently developed separately until Rothbard revealed their inherent logical connection. Despite Mises' lavish praise for the book as an epical leap forward in economic science, as well as general recognition among many adherents, observers, and critics of the contemporary Austrian movement that man, economy, and state is indeed a foundational work in the renaissance of modern Austrian economics, there are two crucial questions regarding the book that, surprisingly, have never even been addressed let alone resolved. The first question relates to the precise sense in which Rothbard's treatise can be described as a work in Austrian economics, and how Rothbard himself conceived the connection between his treatise and this body of received doctrine. The second question concerns Rothbard's perception of the relationship of the theoretical system expounded in his treatise and the neoclassical synthesis of the 1950s. As we shall see, the answers to these questions are not only surprising, but are pregnant with implications for interpreting recent developments in Austrian economics and evaluating its future possibilities and prospects. Before addressing the question of the doctrinal filiation between man, economy, and state and Austrian economics, it is instructive to examine Mises' attitude toward the Austrian school, because it is not as straightforward as is generally supposed, and it clearly influenced Rothbard's view. As early as 1932, Mises had argued that all the essential ideas of the Austrian school of economics had been absorbed into the mainstream of what he called modern subjectivist economics. According to Mises, the Austrian and the Anglo-American schools and the school of Lausanne differ only in their mode of expressing the same fundamental idea and are divided more by their terminology and by peculiarities of presentation than by the substance of their teachings. Now, admittedly, this opinion was delivered at an economics conference in Germany that was heavily attended by the still influential remnants of the German historical school, who were antagonistic to economic theory of all kinds. It certainly can be reasonably argued that, given this venue, Mises' remarks were intended as a generic defense of theoretical research in economics— in fact, a year earlier, Mises had written, Within the field of modern economics, the Austrian school has shown its superiority to the school of Lausanne and the schools related to the latter, which favor mathematical formulations, by clarifying the causal relationship between value and cost, while at the same time eschewing the concept of function, which in our science is misleading.
In spite of the foregoing caveat, Mises continued to maintain that the label Austrian school was an anachronism, arguing in the last publication of his career in 1969 that the Austrian school constituted a closed chapter in the history of economic thought from about the time of Menger's death in 1921. By that time, according to Mises, all the essential ideas of the Austrian school were by and large accepted as an integral part of economic theory, and one no longer distinguished between an Austrian school and other economics. The appellation Austrian school became the name given to an important chapter of the history of economic thought. It was no longer the name of the specific sect with doctrines different from those held by other economists. As noted, Mises used the term modern subjectivist economics to describe the new synthesis of theoretical approaches that he believed had begun to emerge in the 1920s. There are two problems with this label which may explain Mises' ambivalent attitude toward the inclusion of the Marshallian and Lausanne schools under its head. First, by World War I, most theoretical economists at least paid lip service to some version of subjective value theory, so that subjectivism was no longer a distinguishing characteristic of a unique approach to theoretical research. Second, as we have seen in our own time, the term subjectivism is a notoriously elastic term that can be stretched to denote even the nihilistic approach to economic theory famously propounded by George Shackle, the later Ludwig Lachmann, and a number of postmodernist and hermeneutical economists. Rothbard evidently followed Mises in construing the term Austrian school as the designation for an important movement in the history of economic thought. In the text of Man, Economy, and State, Rothbard uses the terms Austrian or Austrian school at least ten times enclosed in quotation marks, as he naturally would if he were referring to a movement that had only historical significance to the contemporary reader. The few times he uses these terms without quotation marks, they clearly refer to historical doctrines or controversies, such as the Austrian Wickstedian theory of price, or the Austrian school versus Alfred Marshall on the relationship between prices and costs. The single time that Rothbard mentions Austrian in his preface to the first edition, he does so in the phrase, the Austrian economists, placing the word in quotation marks and using it in a sentence featuring verbs in the past tense. This textual exegesis is not meant to imply that Rothbard did not consider his work as continuing the great tradition originated by the early Austrian economists. Indeed, Rothbard wrote of the myth among economists that the Austrian school is effectively dead and has no more to contribute and that everything of lasting worth that it had to offer was effectively stated and integrated in Alfred Marshall's principles. Rather, the point is that Rothbard's goal was to recover and advance a much broader doctrinal tradition, for which Menger's and Böhm-Bawerk's works were indisputably the taproot. Thus, in his preface, Rothbard stated, This book, then, is an attempt to fill part of the enormous gap of forty years' time. 
The gap Rothbard is here referring to separates the publication of Man, Economy, and State and that of the last three systematic economics treatises to appear in English by Philip Wicksteed, 1910, Frank Fetter, 1910, and Frank Tausig, 1911. Rothbard did not consider human action and old-style principles because it assumes considerable previous economic knowledge and includes within its spacious confines numerous philosophic and historical insights. The treatises of Wicksteed and Fetter in particular were in what Rothbard called the praxeological tradition. Their procedure, like his own, was slowly and logically to build on the basic axioms an integrated and coherent edifice of economic truth. The main reason that his treatise contains numerous references to the historical Austrian school was because Rothbard judged the members of this school to have best perceived this method and used it most fully and cogently. They were the classic employers, in short, of the praxeologic method. In contrast to Mises' modern subjectivist economics, Rothbard's reference to the praxeologic method drew a bright line between those who employed Menger's procedure in logically deducing economic laws from a few basic facts of reality and those who did not. Praxeology was Mises' explicit and self-conscious elaboration of this venerable procedure for discovering the causal laws governing market phenomena. The early Austrian school and their followers, and even some of the better classical economists, had used this research method without being fully aware of it. The praxeological method begins with the self-evident reality of human action and its immediate implications— it then introduces other empirical postulates that reflect the concrete conditions of action from which emerge the historically specific market phenomena that the economist seeks to analyze. It is, therefore, necessarily about real things. It is for this reason that it has no use for fictions and figments like the representative firm, the perfectly competitive market, or the social welfare function nor does it concern itself with the existence, uniqueness, and stability of general equilibrium. The highly selective use that the praxeological method makes of imaginary constructs has a single aim, the systematic elaboration of a unified body of theory comprising meaningful propositions about the causes of economic phenomena in the world as it is, has been, or is likely to be. As Mises put it, the praxeological method studies acting under unrealized and unrealizable conditions only from two points of view. It deals with states of affairs which, although not real in the present and past world, could possibly become real at some future date. And it examines unreal and unrealizable conditions if such an inquiry is needed for a satisfactory grasp of what is going on under the conditions present in reality. Mises concluded, the specific method of economics is the method of imaginary constructions. It is the only method of praxeological and economic inquiry. 
Rothbard took Mises' dictum seriously and for seven years immersed himself in employing and perfecting this method in elaborating an integrated system of economic theory. This explains why Rothbard identified the use of the praxeological method rather than a loose subjectivist orientation as the hallmark and acid test of scientific economics. During the long period of sustained effort in writing the present volume, Rothbard thus became a master practitioner of the praxeological research method. He not only skillfully used the various imaginary constructs whose nature and specific use Mises had explicitly formulated in human action, but also devised new ones as needed to assist in the deduction of new theorems to elucidate unexplained features of economic reality. Let us take a detailed example to illustrate Rothbard's procedure. In confronting the daunting task of untangling and systematizing causal realist production theory, Rothbard postulates an imaginary world of specific factors in which each and every individual laborer, parcel of land, and capital good is irrevocably committed to the production of a single product and cannot be converted to use in any other production process. While this construct is highly unrealistic, it is not unrealizable like the evenly rotating economy, ERE, which abstracts completely from change and uncertainty and is used to analytically isolate interest income and the capitalist function which earns it from entrepreneurial profit. Thus, a world in which every factor is suited for one and only one task is not inconceivable or logically contradictory. In contrast, the ERE is indeed an unrealizable and self-contradictory construct. It describes a world in which, for example, the future is known with perfect certainty, but action, which is always aimed at changing the future, occurs and agents hold money balances despite the absence of uncertainty regarding the temporal pattern of their future receipts and expenditures. This is not to imply that proximity to reality makes one imaginary construct better or more useful than another. The sole test of a construct's usefulness is the aid it gives to thought in deducing the causal laws operating in real markets. Rothbard also imagines two variations of this world. In the first, the cooperating factors in each stage of a given production process jointly own the product, that is, the capital good of that stage. And since the services of all capital goods are embodied in the final product, therefore all factors jointly own the final good that is sold to consumers in exchange for money. The money receipts are then distributed according to the terms of a voluntary contract among all joint factor owners. In the second variation, a single capitalist or consortium of capitalists pay the various factors participating in the amalgamated process in advance of the sale of the final product on the market and, in exchange, receive ownership of the capital goods from every stage, as well as the stock of final consumer goods and the money revenue obtained from its sale to consumers. 
In both variations of the construct, an evenly rotating economy is assumed in order to abstract from the problems of entrepreneurship. With the assistance of this construct, Rothbard deduces a number of important theorems and principles of production. First, in the case of joint ownership of the product by the collaborating land and labor factors, there are no independent primordial owners of capital goods, which are intermediate goods in the production process and therefore resolvable into the labor and land inputs that cooperated in producing them. Second, and consequently, all income in production consists of wages and land rents. Capital goods, which are merely way stations on the path to the final product, do not earn any net rents for their owners. Third, all cooperating laborers and landowners must wait for their income from the inception of the productive process to its termination and the subsequent sale of the final product to consumers. Therefore, fourth, the size of the aggregate income of the cooperating factor owners depends solely and completely on the demand of consumers for their product. A relative shift in relative consumer demand between final goods will fall solely and completely on the specific factors that are involved in the production of the affected products. Once the capitalist is introduced into this fictitious world, a fifth principle becomes immediately evident. The function of the capitalist is to relieve the factor owners of the burden of waiting for income, as he advances them present money payments from his accumulated savings for the joint product of their labor and land services. In exchange for these present wages and rents, the capitalist receives an interest return on his invested funds, which is based on time preference and reflects the value discount of the anticipated future monetary revenues he will be receiving relative to the present money payments he expends on the factor services. Conversely, the factor owners agree to this deduction from the full sale proceeds of their product that is embodied in their discounted wage and rent payments from the capitalist because these present payments unshackle them from the temporal dimension of the production process. A sixth principle is that, even in a world of capitalist ownership of the entire production process, capital goods still do not generate a net monetary income for their owners, because the net interest return obtained by the capitalist owners is fully derived from the discount incorporated into the present wages and rents paid to owners of labor and land factors, who are the only net recipients of incomes in a world without capitalists. Thus, wage, rent, and interest incomes logically exhaust the entire proceeds from the sale of the final product, leaving no remainder for net payments to capital goods. This conclusion of the exhaustion of the income from production among wages, rents, and interest receipts holds true only under the assumption that future market conditions are known with certainty. 
Once this assumption is dropped and the possibility is admitted of overvaluation or undervaluation of the complements of specific factors by capitalist investors, entrepreneurial profits and losses enter the picture. However, in a world of purely specific factors, such profits and losses would not have an allocative function, because, by definition, factors cannot shift between production processes. More importantly, it becomes clear that such incomes accrue to the capitalists alone, and that therefore, in the real world of uncertainty, the functions of capitalist and entrepreneur are integrated in the same agent. This analysis of Rothbard's hypothetical world of purely specific factors also is pregnant with implications for the role of subjective costs in production and pricing. Given that specific land factors and capital goods have no alternative uses in this imagined world, an immediate inference is that their use in production is costless, and their respective supply curves perfectly inelastic. Labor, specific to a particular production process though it may be, in contrast is costly to use because it has an alternative use in the production of leisure, which is an instantaneously producible consumer's good. Thus, in a world without capitalists, labor involves the disutility of foregoing both leisure and present goods. The arrival of capitalists on the scene reduces but does not eradicate the disutility of labor. These inferences starkly demonstrate the principle that all production costs are ultimately and essentially subjective. Leisure preferences and time preferences thus determine the ultimate costs of production, and these costs are purely subjective and consist of the valuation of the foregone utilities of the producers against the anticipated monetary revenues from consumers. Once these subjective producers' costs have all been incurred, the stocks of the various kinds of consumers' goods emerge from the production process ready for sale to consumers. Unless their producers have a direct use for the goods, their sale to consumers is completely costless, and their relative prices are determined solely by the structure of value scale of consumers. Hence, barring speculation on future price variations, the supply curves for the various stocks of consumer goods are also perfectly inelastic. In sum, production costs, that is, the disutilities of labor and waiting that have already been incurred, or the utilities of leisure and immediate enjoyment that have already been foregone by producers, have no role whatever in determining the prices of the existing stocks of consumers' goods. Rothbard also wields the fictive construction he formulated to demolish Marshallian price theory, according to which prices were determined by two blades of a scissors, the subjective values of consumers composing one blade, while the objective or real costs of production compose the other blade. While Marshall and his contemporary followers concede that, in the transient immediate run, the subjective value blade predominates in determining prices, 
They maintain that in the long-run equilibrium, where the permanent tendencies of the economy reveal themselves, the cost of production blade governs because the price of every product conforms to its average cost of production. Thus Marshallians superficially conclude that costs must therefore determine prices. However, Rothbard easily demonstrates that this conformity between price and average cost in long-run equilibrium, or the ERE, which itself is not real but a useful imaginary construction, is the result of the same principles governing the determination of the actual prices that momentarily prevail and at which exchanges take place in real-world markets. In a world where all factors are purely specific to a single production process, Rothbard shows that in the long run, where entrepreneurial errors are absent and profits and losses have been totally eliminated, the aggregate payments to all factors cooperating in a given production process are rigidly governed by and must perfectly correspond to the aggregate revenues spent on the final product by consumers, minus the interest return to capitalists. Accepting this deduction and dividing both aggregate revenues and aggregate factor payments by the quantity of product implies that the direction of causation of the equality between price and average cost, especially in the long run, runs from the former to the latter. Rothbard's formulation and deployment of this imaginary world of purely specific factors epitomizes the application of the praxeological method in theoretical research. As Mises pointed out, the main formula for designing of imaginary constructions is to abstract from the operation of some conditions present in actual action then we are in a position to grasp the hypothetical consequences of the absence of these conditions and to conceive the effects of their existence. Thus Rothbard first imagines that in this world all production processes are owned by the cooperating factors themselves, who must endure without income until the final product has emerged and is sold to consumers. By first analyzing the state of affairs in abstraction from the existence of the capitalist, we are able to grasp his function of advancing his accumulated savings to the factors before the sale of the final product, and to comprehend the nature of his income as a return to time preference, which has been previously established much earlier in the chain of praxeological deductions as an immediate inference from the action axiom. In assuming away the capitalist, we have also assumed away monetary costs of production, since the only money payments are directly from consumers to the joint factor owners of the final product. This enables us to see that total monetary costs are essentially determined by and equal to these total money expenditures by consumers, as mediated through capitalists who have previously advanced present wages and rents to the factor owners. In later chapters, Rothbard proceeds to drop the assumption of purely specific factors and admits varying degrees of specificity among factors into his analysis. 
The effects of relatively nonspecific factors in the production process can now be identified by investigating how their presence modifies the outcomes of a hypothetical world of purely specific factors. Since nonspecific factors can be converted to use in a wide range of production processes, a relative shift in consumer demand, ceteris paribus, will alter their allocation while only temporarily affecting their prices. But the principles already deduced regarding specific factors still hold sway in this more complex world. And so we are able to conclude that prices of the relatively specific factors in any process will bear the brunt of the change in aggregate consumer expenditures on a given final product. Thus, for instance, in the case of a relative decline of the demand for diamonds, all other things equal, the capital values of diamond mines and the wages of highly skilled jewelers will also decline, while the wages of diamond miners and rents of electric generators will undergo little change as these nonspecific factors shift to other employments. Furthermore, introduction of nonspecific factors into the analysis will make a large part of the monetary costs of production appear to be given to the capitalist employer of factors independently of the demand for his particular good. As a result, the capitalist will react to a change in his costs by adjusting his level of production, just as he would in the case of a change in the demand for his product. Hence, in the absence of a long chain of deductive reasoning utilizing imaginary constructs a la Rothbard and earlier Austrians, a superficial view of the matter will render Marshall's metaphor of the two blades of the scissors as a plausible representation of reality. Without sedulous employment of the praxeological method, it would be impossible to conceive that it is the demands of consumers for the outputs of a wide range of production processes, as mediated through the bids of capitalist entrepreneurs, as ultimately and exclusively determinative of the prices of all factors, relatively nonspecific as well as purely specific. This praxeological method so masterfully deployed by Rothbard had been used, even if implicitly and crudely, as the primary tool of theoretical research in economics up through the 1930s. However, as Rothbard points out, it was precisely Marshall's distrust of long chains of deduction, in addition to the whole Cambridge impetus toward making shortcut assumptions designed to make their theory more testable, that was one of the factors that led to the gradual breakdown of the praxeological method and its replacement by positivism. While Marshall utilized the method of imaginary constructions, his aversion to lengthy step-by-step -step deduction runs afoul of Mises' warning that it is a method very difficult to handle because it can easily result in fallacious syllogisms. It leads along a sharp edge. On both sides yawns the chasm of absurdity and nonsense. By the early 1950s, the praxeological method and verbal logic had been eclipsed by positivism and mathematical models. 
For example, the leading economist of the post-war era, Paul Samuelson, now maintained that the task of economic theory was to organize the facts into useful and meaningful patterns, and in so doing to provide economical descriptions of complex reality. Economic theorems, then, had to be framed in a manner that was operationally meaningful. According to Samuelson, a meaningful theorem was simply a hypothesis about empirical data that could conceivably be refuted, if only under ideal conditions. Whether such a theorem was false, or of trivial importance, or even of indeterminate validity, was not as important to Samuelson as it being framed as a proposition capable, in principle, of empirical refutation. For Samuelson, theorems would thus be embodied and expressed in highly simplified mathematical models that could be subjected to empirical tests if the data were available. Since, admittedly, the requisite data were rarely accessible, the most that could be expected from such abstract models was that they often point the way to an element of truth present in a complex situation— and that they afford tolerably accurate extrapolations and interpolations. However, in a retrospective, Samuelson lamented the lack of success of the crude positive method in economics, writing, When I was 20, I expected that the new econometrics would enable us to narrow down the uncertainties of our economic theories— we would be able to test and reject false theories. We would be able to infer new good theories. It has turned out not to be possible to arrive at a close approximation to indisputable truth, and it seems objectively to be the case that there does not accumulate a convergent body of econometric findings, convergent on a testable truth. Of course, this does not mean that Samuelson's faith in the positivist method was shaken. Rather, it confirmed his prior belief that truth was multifaceted, and therefore precision in deterministic facts or in probability laws can at best be only partial and approximate. If Samuelson downplayed the attainment of truth as a goal of theoretical research in favor of the formulation of operationally meaningful theorems, the other avatar of positivism in post-war economics, Milton Friedman, jettisoned all references to truth and realism in assessing the validity of economic theorems. Rejecting Samuelson's crude logical positivism, Friedman reveled in the falsity or unrealism of a theorem's assumptions, and offered the seemingly more sophisticated alternative of falsificationism, which was allegedly based on Karl Popper's philosophy of science. Some methodologists have argued that Friedmanite positivist methodology shares little more than vocabulary with Popper's philosophy of science. Friedman's position was concisely summed up in Mark Bloch's statement, No assumptions about economic behavior are absolutely true, and no theoretical conclusions are valid for all times and places. 
Despite the formal adherence by most of the profession to positivist methods during the 1950s, Rothbard's quest to recover and reconstruct the edifice of sound economic theory drove him to scour the contemporary literature for new ideas and insights as carefully as he had scrutinized the writings of his predecessors in the causal realist tradition. Rothbard's treatise contains citations from over 150 books, journal articles, conference proceedings, government documents, dissertations, and policy and research institute monographs published between the appearance of Human Action in 1949 and Man, Economy, and State in 1962. Rothbard's deep engagement with the contemporary literature paid off, as he discovered that many of these works contained research that clarified, refined, or advanced causal realist theory, and he eagerly integrated these contributions into his own work. For example, in his notable development of an explanation of the firm's costs and return on investment that sharply deviates from the Marshallian theory of the firm, Rothbard was heavily influenced by two neglected articles co-authored by André Gabor and I.F. Pierce on the Austro-Wixellian theory of the firm. Rothbard cites a discussion by the Cambridge economist Roy Herod, in addition to a discussion by Bumbaverk, as a source for his own path-breaking identification of a fourth component in the gross business income of the capitalist entrepreneur. This ownership or decision-making rent is distinct from and in addition to implicit wages of management, interest return on invested capital, and pure profit. In his thoroughgoing critique of the theories of perfect and monopolistic competition doctrines and his original formulation of a positive theory of competition as a dynamic process, Rothbard favorably cites the contributions of a number of his mainstream contemporaries, including G. Warren Nutter, Wayne Lehman, Marshall I. Goldman, and Reuben Kessel. Rothbard singles out a book by Lawrence Abbott, published in 1952, titled Quality and Competition for Special Praise, characterizing it as one of the outstanding theoretical works of recent years. Indeed, the theory of rivalrous competition that Rothbard expounds is clearly influenced by Abbott's arguments on the central importance of the qualitative dimensions of competition. The fact that theoretical research employing verbal logic and the praxeological method still remained relatively pervasive among academic economists even as late as the 1950s highlights the deep and hearty roots of the causal realist tradition. It also accounts for the reason why Rothbard did not yet perceive any advantage in appropriating the label Austrian to differentiate his treatise from contemporary economics. In fact, in private correspondence dated February 1954, Rothbard expressed confidence that mainstream economic theorists could still be drawn back toward the causal realist research program, and that his work in progress will, I believe, command the attention of the profession as a treatise because of its considerable elaborations in those areas not developed by Mises. Its differences from Mises in such areas as monopoly, banking ethics, and government, and its refutations of current economic theory.
While in retrospect we may be tempted to dismiss Rothbard's bold prediction as a burst of youthful optimism, it hardly reflects the attitude of someone intent on completely breaking with the prevailing doctrine and founding a heterodox school of thought. By the advent of the 1970s, however, mainstream economic theory had sunk to almost unfathomable depths, degenerating into a series of loosely related mathematical models which had little contact with reality. Following the prevailing Friedmanite positivist methodology, the tentative validity, never the truth, of these models was putatively established by empirically testing their ability to predict, or, more accurately, retrodict, using the methods of econometrics. The last vestiges of the Mangarian approach thus disappeared from the curricula of graduate economics programs, and causal realist theoretical research was now completely banished from academic journals, which had become the main, if not the only, research outlet for mainstream economics. Around the same time as this sea change in economic theory and method, there began to coalesce outside the formal institution of academic economics a new intellectual movement that was directly inspired by Rothbard's reconstruction of the causal realist theoretical organon in Man, Economy, and State. This movement comprised mainly graduate students and younger faculty members associated with U.S. academic institutions who were disaffected with the orthodox neoclassical synthesis, which had begun to break down with the failure of the Kennedy-Johnson new economic policies to rein in the Vietnam War inflation and the subsequent emergence of stagflation in the early 1970s. By the mid-1970s, the new movement had grown to such an extent that the opportunity presented itself to institutionalize and promote its existence by means of a formal academic conference on Austrian economics, which was held at South Royalton, Vermont, in June 1974. The appellation Austrian was chosen for this new intellectual tendency, mainly for strategic reasons. Since the Rothbardian movement embraced a method and body of doctrine that now shared very little common ground with the entrenched positivist orthodoxy, the label at least provided the movement with a recognizable affiliation with one of the great streams of early marginalist thought that had fed into this modern mainstream. The name also instantly endowed the movement with the great cachet associated with the well-known names of the founding members of the Austrian school, such as Karl Menger, Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk, and Friedrich von Wieser, and its later representatives Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich A. Hayek. The prestige of the Austrian brand name was further enhanced when Hayek became a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics later in the year. The term had the additional virtue of identifying the movement's general theoretical orientation. Rothbard and his followers eagerly embraced the new designation and began to refer to themselves as members or followers of the modern Austrian school, which was now positioned as a heterodox challenger to mainstream economics. Despite its significant short-run strategic virtues, however, branding the school of thought that coalesced at the South Royalton Conference as Austrian has engendered a number of serious problems in the long run. 
First, it has come to obscure the extent to which the modern Austrian school was directly inspired by Rothbard. Indeed, it is no exaggeration to say that a large majority of the thirty or so participants in the South Royalton Conference adhered to the body of causal realist theory elaborated in man, economy, and state. Second, it conceals the fact, noted above, that in writing this treatise, Rothbard drew from a much broader range of literature than that emanating from the original Austrian school and its direct intellectual descendants. Third, the label diverts attention from Rothbard's primary mission in writing his treatise, which was to purge modern economic science of its alien, positivist, and mathematical formalist elements, and to reconstruct it along consistently causal realist lines. It cannot be stated too often or too emphatically that engineering a radical break from standard economic theory and establishing a heterodox school of thought that rejected all forms of equilibrium analysis and the use of imaginary constructs was not Rothbard's purpose in writing Man, Economy, and State. Indeed, as we have seen, one of Rothbard's most important contributions in his treatise is his painstaking explication of the content and the proper use of fictitious constructs and imaginary states of the world in deriving meaningful propositions about the causal determinants of observable economic phenomena. The last and perhaps most significant disadvantage of applying the unqualified term Austrian to the post-South Royalton economics movement is the fact that it fosters a conflation of the very different and conflicting research programs that have grown up under this opaque semantic veil. Rothbard recognized and lamented this state of affairs in the preface to the revised edition of Man, Economy, and State, published in 1993. In fact, the number of Austrians has grown so large and the discussion so broad that differences of opinion and branches of thought have arisen, in some cases developing into genuine clashes of thought. Yet they have all been conflated and jammed together by non-Austrians, and even by some within the school, giving rise to a great deal of intellectual confusion, lack of clarity, and outright error. The good side of these developing disputes is that each side has clarified and sharpened its underlying premises and worldview. It has indeed become evident in recent years that there are three clashing paradigms within Austrian economics. The original Misesian or praxeological paradigm, to which the present author adheres, the Hayekian paradigm, stressing knowledge and discovery rather than praxeological action and choice, and whose leading exponent now is Professor Israel Kirzner, and the nihilistic view of the late Ludwig Lachmann, an institutionalist anti-theory approach taken from the English subjectivist Keynesian G.L.S. Shackle. While this accurately describes the state of Austrian economics in the early 1990s, the situation has become even more contentious and muddled since then. While the Lachmannian branch has waned somewhat in influence, a new, wildly eclectic tendency has developed, which proposes to agglomerate indiscriminately selected elements of Menger, Mises, Hayek, Lachmann, 
Kersner, and Rothbard, with random insights from Adam Smith's economics, public choice theory, new institutional economics, transaction costs economics, game theoretic modeling, hermeneutical economics, and ethnographic and historical case studies, all under the rubric of Austrian economics, or good economics. Needless to say, the situation is even less satisfactory now than it was when Rothbard penned the passage above. Those interested in pursuing theoretical research in the Mangarian causal realist tradition are now viewed by the profession, thanks to the Austrian label, as part of a splintered and feuding heterodox movement more interested in discoursing on meta-economic esoterica or devising spontaneous order explanations for obscure historical episodes than in analyzing the mundane issues at the heart of mainstream economics. Value theory, price theory, capital theory, monetary theory, and business cycles. Fortunately, man, economy, and state points the way out of this morass of confusion, which threatens permanent and wholesale marginalization of all branches of Austrian economics. Every page of Rothbard's treatise is imbued with a profound awareness that the causal realist theoretical system that he was expounding was in the mainstream of an international economic tradition that originated in the marginalist revolution. His treatise thus was not intended as the program for a new heterodox movement or the revival of an old one. Rather, it represented an endeavor to reconstruct orthodox economics on the unshakable foundation of the praxeological method, and to use this method to substantively advance the theory. In a crucial sense, economic science had temporarily lost its bearings and was beginning to stray from its rich heritage, and Rothbard aimed at setting it back on course. Consequently, he never conceded the mainstream of economic science to the disciples of mathematical modeling and the positivist method, whom he regarded as an irrationalist cult that had hijacked economics and whose silly doctrines would sooner or later wind up in the dustbin of intellectual history. Rothbard has been proven correct. Mathematical modeling has revealed itself to be a vain and formalistic exercise incapable of explaining the international currency crises, stock market and real estate bubbles, and the global financial crises that have racked our world in the past two decades. It is increasingly evident even to professional economists that the tortuous positivist detour has led to an intellectual dead end. Hence, bizarre heterodox sects such as behavioral economics, experimental economics, the happiness literature, neuroeconomics, etc., now abound. Some market-oriented economists have even abandoned modern economic theory altogether for the less rigorous rhetoric and metaphors of Adam Smith's invisible hand and Hayek's spontaneous order. Of course, the concept of the spontaneous order was only one of Hayek's many contributions. Most of these contributions were squarely in the Mangarian causal realist tradition and dealt with themes of mundane economics such as capital theory, business cycle theory, international monetary theory, and comparative monetary institutions.
The death knell is now tolling for the mathematical and positivist pretenders to the mainstream of economics. The time is now ripe for Austrians to recover their rightful position as the true representatives of the central tendency of modern economic theory, by affirming the praxeological method as the research method of economics. The prodigious fruits of this method stand before us in the integrated theoretical structure expounded in Man, Economy, and State. Preface to Revised Edition One of the unhappy casualties of World War I, it seems, was the old-fashioned treatise on economic principles. Before World War I, the standard method, both of presenting and advancing economic thought, was to write a disquisition setting forth one's vision of the corpus of economic science. A work of this kind had many virtues wholly missing from the modern world. On the one hand, the intelligent layman, with little or no previous acquaintance with economics, could read it. On the other hand, the author did not limit himself, textbook fashion, to choppy and oversimplified compilations of currently fashionable doctrine. For better or worse, he carved out of economic theory an architectonic, an edifice. Sometimes the edifice was an original and noble one, sometimes it was faulty, but at least there was an edifice for beginners to see, for colleagues to adopt or criticize. Hyper-refinements of detail were generally omitted as impediments to viewing economic science as a whole, and they were consigned to the journals. The university student, too, learned his economics from the treatise on its principles. It was not assumed that special works were needed with chapter lengths fitting course requirements and devoid of original doctrine. These works, then, were read by students, intelligent laymen, and leading economists, all of whom profited from them. Their spirit is best illustrated by a prefatory passage from one of the last of the species. I have tried in this book to state the principles of economics in such form that they shall be comprehensible to an educated and intelligent person who has not before made any systematic study of the subject. Though designed in this sense for beginners, the book does not gloss over difficulties or avoid severe reasoning. No one can understand economic phenomena or prepare himself to deal with economic problems who is unwilling to follow trains of reasoning which call for sustained attention. I have done my best to be clear and to state with care the grounds on which my conclusions rest, as well as the conclusions themselves but have made no vain pretense of simplifying all things. Since the brilliant burst that gave us the works of Wicksteed, 1910, Tausig, 1911, and Fetter, 1915, this type of treatise has disappeared from economic thought, and economics has become appallingly fragmented, dissociated to such a degree that there hardly is an economics anymore. Instead, we find myriad bits and pieces of uncoordinated analysis. Economics has first been fragmented into applied fields, urban land economics, agricultural economics, labor economics, public finance economics, etc., each division largely heedless of the others. More grievous still has been the disintegration of what has been confined to the category of economic theory, 
utility theory, monopoly theory, international trade theory, etc., down to linear programming and games theory. Each moves in its sharply isolated compartment with its own hyper-refined literature. Recently, growing awareness of this fragmentation has led to vague interdisciplinary admixtures with all the other social sciences. Confusion has been worse confounded, with resulting invasive forays of numerous other disciplines into economics, rather than the diffusion of economics elsewhere. At any rate, it is somewhat foolhardy to attempt to integrate economics with everything else before economics has itself been made whole. Only then will the proper place of economics among the other disciplines become manifest. I think it is fair to say that with only a single exception, Ludwig von Mises' Human Action, not one general treatise on economic principles has appeared since World War I. Perhaps the closest approach was Frank H. Knight's Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit, and that was published far back in 1921. Since then, there has been no book of remotely as broad a scope. The only place where we can find economics treated with any degree of breadth is in the elementary textbooks. These textbooks, however, are sorry substitutes for a genuine principles, since they must, by their nature, present only currently received doctrine, their work is uninteresting to the established economist. Furthermore, since they may only boil down the existing literature, they must of necessity present to the student a hodgepodge of fragmented chapters, each with little or no relation to the other. Many economists see no loss in all this. In fact, they herald these developments as signs of the enormous progress the science has made on all fronts. Knowledge has grown so vast that no man can encompass it all. Yet economists should at least be responsible for knowing economics, the essentials of the body of their discipline. Certainly, then, these essentials could have been presented by this time. The plain fact is that economics is fragmented precisely because it is no longer regarded as an edifice. Since it is considered a congeries of isolated splitters, it is treated as such. Perhaps the key to this change is that formerly economics was regarded as a logical structure. Fundamentally, whatever the differences of degree, or even of proclaimed methodology, economics was considered a deductive science using verbal logic. Grounded on a few axioms, the edifice of economic thought was deduced step by step. Even when the analysis was primitive or the announced methodology far more inductive, this was the essence of economics during the 19th century. Hence the treatise on economic principles, for if economics proceeds by deductive logic grounded on a few simple and evident axioms, then the corpus of economics can be presented as an interrelated whole to the intelligent layman with no loss of ultimate rigor. The layman is taken step by step from simple and evident truths to more complex and less evident ones. The Austrian economists best perceived this method and used it most fully and cogently. They were the classic employers, in short, of the praxeologic method. 
In the present day, however, the prevailing epistemology has thrown over praxeology for methods at once too empirical and too theoretical. Empiricism has disintegrated economics to such an extent that no one thinks to look for a complete edifice. And, paradoxically, it has falsified economics by making economists eager to introduce admittedly false and shortcut assumptions in order to make their theories more readily testable. Alfred Marshall's distrust of long chains of deduction, as well as the whole Cambridge impetus toward such shortcuts, has contributed a great deal to this breakdown. On the other hand, verbal logic in economic theory has been replaced by mathematics, seemingly more precise, and basking in the reflected glory of the physical sciences. The dominant econometric wing of mathematical economists also looks for empirical verifications and thereby compounds the errors of both methods. Even on the level of pure theoretical integration, mathematics is completely inappropriate for any sciences of human action. Mathematics has, in fact, contributed to the compartmentalization of economics, to specialized monographs featuring a hyper-refined maze of matrices, equations, and geometric diagrams. But the really important thing is not that non-mathematicians cannot understand them. The crucial point is that mathematics cannot contribute to economic knowledge. In fact, the recent conquest of mathematical economics by econometrics is a sign of recognition that pure mathematical theory in economics is sterile. This book, then, is an attempt to fill part of the enormous gap of 40 years' time. Since the last treatise on economic principles, economics has proceeded a long way in many areas, and its methodology has been immeasurably improved and strengthened by those continuing to work in the praxeological tradition. Furthermore, there are still great gaps in the praxeological corpus, since so few economists have worked at shaping it. Hence the attempt in this book to develop the edifice of economic science in the manner of the old-fashioned works on its principles, slowly and logically to build on the basic axioms an integrated and coherent edifice of economic truth. Hyper-refinements have been shunned as much as possible. In short, Professor Tausig's quoted statement of intention has been mine also, with the addition that I have felt it necessary to include, at pertinent points, refutation of some of the main opposing doctrines. This was especially needed because economic fallacy prevails far more widely than in Tausig's time. I have indicated briefly that there has been one general treatise since World War I. Professor Paul Samuelson has written rhapsodically of the joy of being under 30 at the time of publication of Keynes General Theory. I can say the same for the publication of Ludwig von Mises' Human Action in 1949. For here at last was economics whole once more, once again an edifice. Not only that, here was a structure of economics with many of the components newly contributed by Professor Mises himself. There is no space here to present or expound Mises' great contributions to economic science. That will have to be done elsewhere. 
Suffice it to say that from now on, little constructive work can be done in economics unless it starts from human action. Human action is a general treatise, but not an old-style principles. Instead, it assumes considerable previous economic knowledge and includes within its spacious confines numerous philosophic and historical insights. In one sense, the present work attempts to isolate the economic, fill in the interstices, and spell out the detailed implications as I see them of the Misesian structure. It must not be thought, however, that Professor Mises is in any way responsible for these pages. Indeed, he may well differ strongly with many sections of this volume. Yet it is my hope that this work may succeed in adding a few bricks to the noble structure of economic science that has reached its most modern and developed form in the pages of human action. The present work deduces the entire corpus of economics from a few simple and apodictically true axioms. The fundamental axiom of action, that men employ means to achieve ends, and two subsidiary postulates, that there is a variety of human and natural resources, and that leisure is a consumer's good. Chapter 1 begins with the action axiom and deduces its immediate implications, and these conclusions are applied to Crusoe economics, that much maligned but highly useful analysis that sets individual man starkly against nature and analyzes his resulting actions. Chapter 2 introduces other men and, consequently, social relations. Various types of interpersonal relations are analyzed, and the economics of direct exchange, barter, is set forth. Exchange cannot be adequately analyzed until property rights are fully defined. So, Chapter 2 analyzes property in a free society. Chapter 2, in fact, marks the beginning of the body of the book, an analysis of the economics of voluntary exchange. Chapter 2 discusses the free market of barter, and the subsequent chapters treat the economics of indirect or monetary exchange. Thus, analytically, the book deals fully with the economics of the free market, from its property relations to the economics of money. Chapter 3 introduces money and traces the patterns of indirect exchange on the market. Chapter 4 treats the economics of consumption and the pricing of consumers' goods. Chapters 5 through 9 analyze production on the free market. One of the features of this consumption and production theory is the resurrection of Professor Frank A. Fetter's brilliant and completely neglected theory of rent, that is, the concept of rent as the higher price of a unit service. Capitalization then becomes the process of determining the present values of the expected future rents of a good. The Fetter-Mises pure time preference theory of interest is synthesized with the Fetter-Rent theory, with the Austrian theory of the structure of production, and with separation of original from produced factors of production. One radical feature of our analysis of production is a complete break with the currently fashionable short-run theory of the firm, substituting for this a general theory of marginal value productivity and capitalization. 
It is a general equilibrium analysis in the dynamic Austrian sense, and not in the static, currently popular Walrassian sense. Chapter 10 expounds a completely new theory of monopoly, that monopoly can be meaningfully defined only as a grant of privilege by the state, and that a monopoly price can be attained only from such a grant. In short, there can be no monopoly or monopoly price on the free market. The theory of monopolistic competition is also discussed, and Chapter 11 sets forth the theory of money on the free market, along with an extensive discussion of the Keynesian theories. Having completed the theory of the purely free market, I then turn in the final chapter to applying praxeological analysis to a systematic discussion of various forms and degrees of coercive intervention and their consequences. The effects of coercive intervention can be studied only after fully analyzing the construct of a purely free market. Chapter 12 presents a typology of intervention, discusses its direct and indirect consequences and the effects on utility, and sets forth a necessarily brief analysis of the various major types of intervention, including price control, monopoly grants, taxation, inflation, and government enterprise and expenditures. The chapter and the book conclude with a brief summary assessment of the free market as contrasted to interventionist and other coercive systems. For this revised edition, I have decided to keep the original text and footnotes intact and to confine any changes to this revised preface. Professor Mises died in 1973, and the following year, as luck would have it, the Austrian school of economics that Mises had kept alive in an almost underground existence burst forward into a spectacular revival. It is no accident that this revival coincided with the virtual collapse of the previously dominant Keynesian paradigm. Keynesians had promised to steer the economy easily away from the recurring pitfalls of inflationary boom and recession and unemployment. Instead, they would ensure permanent and stable prosperity, bringing us full employment without inflation. And yet, after three decades of Keynesian planning, we faced a new phenomenon that cannot even exist, much less be explained, in the Keynesian paradigm. Inflation combined with recession and high unemployment. This unwelcome specter first appeared in the inflationary recession of 1973 and 1974 and has been repeated since, the last time being the recession of 1990. The Austrian revival of 1974 was also spurred by F.A. Hayek's receiving the Nobel Prize for Economics that year, the first free market and non-mathematical economist to be accorded that honor. The economics profession's obsession with the Nobel reawakened interest in Hayek and in the Austrian school. But this award to Hayek itself can be no coincidence, since it reflects disillusion by economists in Keynesian macro-models. Since 1974, the number of Austrians, books and articles by Austrians, and interest in the school has greatly multiplied. 
It is a reflection of the difference in the quality of academia in the two countries that even though there are proportionately fewer Austrian school economists in Britain than in the United States, Austrian economics is accorded a great deal more respect in Britain. In British textbooks and surveys of thought, Austrian economics, while not often winning agreement, is treated objectively and fairly as a respectable wing of economic thought. In the United States, on the contrary, while there are a large number of sympathizers as well as adherents in the profession, Austrians are still marginalized, unheeded, and unread by the bulk of economists. Intellectual curiosity has a habit of breaking through, however, especially among college and graduate students. As a result, the Austrian school has flourished over the last two decades despite severe institutional obstacles. In fact, the number of Austrians has grown so large and the discussion so broad that differences of opinion and branches of thought have arisen, in some cases developing into genuine clashes of thought. Yet they have all been conflated and jammed together by non-Austrians and even by some within the school, giving rise to a great deal of intellectual confusion, lack of clarity, and outright error. The good side of these developing disputes is that each side has clarified and sharpened its underlying premises and worldview. It has indeed become evident in recent years that there are three very different and clashing paradigms within Austrian economics. The original Misesian or praxeological paradigm, to which the present author adheres, the Hayekian paradigm, stressing knowledge and discovery rather than praxeological action and choice, and whose leading exponent now is Professor Israel Kirzner, and the nihilistic view of the late Ludwig Lachmann, an institutionalist anti-theory approach taken from the English subjectivist Keynesian G. L. S. Shackle. Fortunately, there is now a scholarly journal, The Review of Austrian Economics, where the reader can keep apprised of ongoing developments in Austrian economics, as well as other publications, conferences, and instructional courses of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. The Mises Institute, founded on the centenary of his birth, keeps alive the spirit of Mises, as well as the paradigm that he has bequeathed to scholarship and to the world. For the latest on the three Austrian paradigms, the reader is referred to the Mises Institute working paper by the present author, The Present State of Austrian Economics, November 1992. My overriding intellectual debt, of course, is to Ludwig von Mises. But apart from that, I can never fully express my personal debt. His wisdom, kindness, enthusiasm, good humor, and unflagging encouragement of even the slightest signs of productivity among his students were a lifelong inspiration to those who knew him. He was one of the great teachers of economics, as well as one of the great economists, and I am grateful to have had the opportunity of studying for many years at his seminar in advanced economic theory at New York University. I can also never fully express my gratitude to Llewellyn H. Rockwell, Jr., who, at a low point in Misesian economics, with no endowment, no large pledges of support, and armed only with an idea, founded and dedicated his life to the Ludwig von Mises Institute. 
Lou has done a remarkable job of building and expanding the Institute and of devoting himself to the Misesian paradigm. In addition, Lou has been a close and valued friend and intellectual colleague for many years. It is obvious that without his efforts, this new addition would never have seen the light of day. Finally, I must at least try to convey how grateful I am to another longtime colleague, Burton S. Blummert, of the Mises Institute and head of the Center for Libertarian Studies, Burlingame, California. Self-effacing and indispensable, Bert is always there, with wit, wisdom, kindness, and friendship. It is impossible to list all the friends and acquaintances who, over the many years, have taught and inspired me in the area of Austrian economics, or in the wider arena of political economy, and in the nature of coercion of freedom. I am grateful to them all. None of them, of course, are responsible for any errors herein. Murray N. Rothbard, Las Vegas, Nevada, May 1993 Chapter 1. Fundamentals of Human Action 1. The Concept of Action The distinctive and crucial feature in the study of man is the concept of action. Human action is defined simply as purposeful behavior. It is, therefore, sharply distinguishable from those observed movements which, from the point of view of man, are not purposeful. These include all the observed movements of inorganic matter and those types of human behavior that are purely reflex, that are simply involuntary responses to certain stimuli. Human action, on the other hand, can be meaningfully interpreted by other men, for it is governed by a certain purpose that the actor has in view. The purpose of a man's act is his end. The desire to achieve this end is the man's motive for instituting the action. All human beings act by virtue of their existence and their nature as human beings. We could not conceive of human beings who do not act purposefully, who have no ends in view that they desire and attempt to attain. Things that did not act, that did not behave purposefully, would no longer be classified as human. It is this fundamental truth, this axiom of human action, that forms the key to our study. The entire realm of praxeology and its best-developed subdivision, economics, is based on an analysis of the necessary logical implications of this concept. This chapter consists solely of a development of the logical implications of the existence of human action. Future chapters, the further parts of the structure, are developed with the help of a very small number of subsidiary assumptions. The fact that men act by virtue of their being human is indisputable and incontrovertible. To assume the contrary would be an absurdity. The contrary, the absence of motivated behavior, would apply only to plants and inorganic matter. There is no need to enter here into the difficult problem of animal behavior, from the lower organisms to the higher primates, which might be considered as on a borderline between purely reflexive and motivated behavior. 
At any rate, men can understand, as distinguished from merely observe such behavior, only insofar as they can impute to the animals motives that they can understand. 2. First Implications of the Concept The first truth to be discovered about human action is that it can be undertaken only by individual actors. Only individuals have ends and can act to attain them. There are no such things as ends of or actions by groups, collectives, or states which do not take place as actions by various specific individuals. Societies or groups have no independent existence aside from the actions of their individual members. Thus, to say that governments act is merely a metaphor. Actually, certain individuals are in a certain relationship with other individuals and act in a way that they and the other individuals recognize as governmental. To say that only individuals act is not to deny that they are influenced in their desires and actions by the acts of other individuals, who might be fellow members of various societies or groups. We do not at all assume, as some critics of economics have charged, that individuals are atoms isolated from one another. The metaphor must not be taken to mean that the collective institution itself has any reality apart from the acts of various individuals. Similarly, an individual may contract to act as an agent in representing another individual, or on behalf of his family. Still, only individuals can desire and act. The existence of an institution such as government becomes meaningful only through influencing the actions of those individuals who are and those who are not considered as members. In order to institute action, it is not sufficient that the individual man have unachieved ends that he would like to fulfill. He must also expect that certain modes of behavior will enable him to attain his ends. A man may have a desire for sunshine, but if he realizes that he can do nothing to achieve it, he does not act on this desire. He must have certain ideas about how to achieve his ends. Action thus consists of the behavior of individuals directed towards ends in ways that they believe will accomplish their purpose. Action requires an image of a desired end and technological ideas or plans on how to arrive at this end. Men find themselves in a certain environment or situation. It is this situation that the individual decides to change in some way in order to achieve his ends. But man can work only with the numerous elements that he finds in his environment by rearranging them in order to bring about the satisfaction of his ends. With reference to any given act, the environment external to the individual may be divided into two parts. Those elements which he believes he cannot control and must leave unchanged, and those which he can alter, or rather, thinks he can alter, to arrive at his ends. The former may be termed the general conditions of the action, the latter the means used. 
Thus, the individual actor is faced with an environment that he would like to change in order to attain his ends. To act, he must have technological ideas about how to use some of the elements of the environment as means, as pathways, to arrive at his ends. Every act must therefore involve the employment of means by individual actors to attempt to arrive at certain desired ends. In the external environment, the general conditions cannot be the objects of any human action. Only the means can be employed in action. All human life must take place in time. Human reason cannot even conceive of an existence or of action that does not take place through time. At a time when a human being decides to act in order to attain an end, his goal, or end, can be finally and completely attained only at some point in the future. If the desired ends could all be attained instantaneously in the present, then man's ends would all be attained, and there would be no reason for him to act. And we have seen that action is necessary to the nature of man. Therefore, an actor chooses means from his environment, in accordance with his ideas, to arrive at an expected end, completely attainable only at some point in the future. For any given action, we can distinguish among three periods of time involved. The period before the action, the time absorbed by the action, and the period after the action has been completed. All action aims at rendering conditions at some time in the future more satisfactory for the actor than they would have been without the intervention of the action. A man's time is always scarce. He is not immortal. His time on earth is limited. Each day of his life has only twenty-four hours in which he can attain his ends. Furthermore, all actions must take place through time. Therefore, time is a means that man must use to arrive at his ends. It is a means that is omnipresent in all human action. Action takes place by choosing which ends shall be satisfied by the employment of means. Time is scarce for man only because whichever ends he chooses to satisfy, there are others that must remain unsatisfied. When we must use a means so that some ends remain unsatisfied, the necessity for a choice among ends arises. For example, Jones is engaged in watching a baseball game on television. He is faced with the choice of spending the next hour in A. Continuing to watch the baseball game, B. Playing bridge, or C. Going for a drive. He would like to do all three of these things, but his means, time, is insufficient. As a result, he must choose. One end can be satisfied, but the others must go unfulfilled. Suppose that he decides on course A. This is a clear indication that he has ranked the satisfaction of end A higher than the satisfaction of ends B or C. From this example of action, many implications can be deduced. In the first place, all means are scarce. 
that is, limited with respect to the ends that they could possibly serve. If the means are in unlimited abundance, then they need not serve as the object of attention of any human action. For example, air, in most situations, is in unlimited abundance. It is therefore not a means, and is not employed as a means to the fulfillment of ends. It need not be allocated, as time is, to the satisfaction of the more important ends, since it is sufficiently abundant for all human requirements. Air, then, though indispensable, is not a means, but a general condition of human action and human welfare. Secondly, these scarce means must be allocated by the actor to serve certain ends and leave other ends unsatisfied. This act of choice may be called economizing the means to serve the most desired ends. Time, for example, must be economized by the actor to serve the most desired ends. The actor may be interpreted as ranking his alternative ends in accordance with their value to him. This scaling of ends may be described as assigning ranks of value to the ends by the actor, or as a process of valuation. Thus, suppose that Jones ranked his alternative ends for the use of an hour of time as follows. First, one continuing to watch the baseball game. Second, two, going for a drive. Third, three, playing bridge. This was his scale of values, or scale of preferences. The supply of means, time, available, was sufficient for the attainment of only one of these ends, and the fact that he chose the baseball game shows that he ranked that highest or first. Suppose now that he is allocating two hours of his time and can spend an hour on each pursuit. If he spends one hour on the game and then a second hour on the drive, this indicates that his ranking of preferences is as above. The lowest ranking end, playing bridge, goes unfulfilled. Thus, the larger the supply of means available, the more ends can be satisfied, and the lower the rank of the ends that must remain unsatisfied. Another lesson to be derived is that action does not necessarily mean that the individual is active as opposed to passive in the colloquial sense. Action does not necessarily mean that an individual must stop doing what he has been doing and do something else. He also acts, as in the above case, who chooses to continue in his previous course, even though the opportunity to change was open to him. Continuing to watch the game is just as much action as going for a drive. Furthermore, action does not at all mean that the individual must take a great deal of time in deliberating on a decision to act. The individual may make a decision to act hastily or after great deliberation, according to his desired choice. He may decide on an action coolly or heatedly. None of these courses affects the fact that action is being taken.
Some writers have unfoundedly believed that praxeology and economics assume that all action is cool, calculating, and deliberate. Another fundamental implication derived from the existence of human action is the uncertainty of the future. This must be true because the contrary would completely negate the possibility of action. If man knew future events completely, he would never act, since no act of his could change the situation. Thus, the fact of action signifies that the future is uncertain to the actors. This uncertainty about future events stems from two basic sources, the unpredictability of human acts of choice and insufficient knowledge about natural phenomena. Man does not know enough about natural phenomena to predict all their future developments, and he cannot know the content of future human choices. All human choices are continually changing as a result of changing valuations and changing ideas about the most appropriate means of arriving at ends. This does not mean, of course, that people do not try their best to estimate future developments. Indeed, any actor, when employing means, estimates that he will thus arrive at his desired goal. But he never has certain knowledge of the future. All his actions are of necessity speculations based on his judgment of the course of future events. The omnipresence of uncertainty introduces the ever-present possibility of error in human action. The actor may find, after he has completed his action, that the means have been inappropriate to the attainment of his end. To sum up what we have learned thus far about human action, the distinguishing characteristic of human beings is that all humans act. Action is purposeful behavior directed toward the attainment of ends in some future period which will involve the fulfillment of wants otherwise remaining unsatisfied. Action involves the expectation of a less imperfectly satisfied state as a result of the action. The individual actor chooses to employ elements in his environment as means to the expected achievement of his ends, economizing them by directing them toward his most valued ends, leaving his least valued ones unsatisfied, and in the ways that his reason tells him are most appropriate to attain these ends. His method, his chosen means, may or may not turn out to be inappropriate. 3. Further Implications The Means the means to satisfy man's wants are called goods. These goods are all the objects of economizing action. The common distinction between economic goods and free goods, such as air, is erroneous. As explained above, air is not a means, but a general condition of human welfare, and is not the object of action. Such goods may all be classified in either of two categories. A. They are immediately and directly serviceable in the satisfaction of the actor's wants, or B. They may be transformable into directly serviceable goods only at some point in the future, that is, are indirectly serviceable means. 
The former are called consumption goods, or consumer's goods, or goods of the first order. The latter are called producer's goods, or factors of production, or goods of higher order. Let us trace the relations among these goods by considering a typical human end, the eating of a ham sandwich. Having a desire for a ham sandwich, a man decides that this is a want that should be satisfied, and proceeds to act upon his judgment of the methods by which a ham sandwich can be assembled. The consumer's good is the ham sandwich at the point of being eaten. It is obvious that there is a scarcity of this consumer's good, as there is for all direct means. Otherwise, it would always be available, like air, and would not be the object of action. But if the consumer's good is scarce and not obviously available, how can it be made available? The answer is that man must rearrange various elements of his environment in order to produce the ham sandwich at the desired place, the consumer's good. In other words, man must use various indirect means as cooperating factors of production to arrive at the direct means. This necessary process involved in all action is called production. It is the use by man of available elements of his environment as indirect means, as cooperating factors, to arrive eventually at a consumer's good that he can use directly to arrive at his end. Let us consider the pattern of some of the numerous cooperating factors that are involved in a modern developed economy to produce one ham sandwich as a consumer's good for the use of one consumer. Typically, in order to produce a ham sandwich for Jones in his armchair, it is necessary for his wife to expend energy in unwrapping the bread, slicing the ham, placing the ham between bread slices, and carrying it to Jones. All this work may be called the labor of the housewife. The cooperating factors that are directly necessary to arrive at the consumer's good are then the housewife's labor, bread in the kitchen, ham in the kitchen, and a knife to slice the ham. Also needed is the land on which to have room to live and carry on these activities. Furthermore, this process must, of course, take time, which is another indispensable cooperating factor. The above factors may be called first-order producer's goods, since in this case these cooperate in the production of the consumer's good. Many of the first-order producer's goods, however, are also unavailable in nature and must be produced themselves with the help of other producer's goods. Thus, bread in the kitchen must be produced with the cooperation of the following factors— bread in retail shop, and housewife's labor in carrying it, plus the ever-present land as standing room and time. In this procedure, these factors are second-order producers' goods, since they cooperate in producing first-order goods. Higher-order factors are those cooperating in the production of factors of lower order. Thus, any process or structure of production may be analyzed as occurring in different stages. 
In the earlier or higher stages, producers' goods must be produced that will later cooperate in producing other producers' goods that will finally cooperate in producing the desired consumer's good. Hence, in a developed economy, the structure of production of a given consumer's good might be a very complex one and involve numerous stages. Important general conclusions can, however, be drawn that apply to all processes of production. In the first place, each stage of production takes time. Secondly, the factors of production may all be divided into two classes those that are themselves produced and those that are found already available in nature, in man's environment. The latter may be used as indirect means without having been previously produced. The former must first be produced with the aid of factors in order to aid in the later or lower stages of production. The former are the produced factors of production. The latter are the original factors of production. The original factors may in turn be divided into two classes, the expenditure of human energy and the use of non-human elements provided by nature. The first is called labor. The latter is nature or land. The term land is likely to be misleading in this connection because it is not used in the popular sense of the word. It includes such natural resources as water, oil, and minerals. Thus, the classes of factors of production are labor, land, and the produced factors, which are termed capital goods. Labor and land, in one form or another, enter into each stage of production. Labor helps to transform seeds into wheat, wheat into flour, pigs into ham, flour into bread, etc. Not only is labor present at every stage of production, but so also is nature. Land must be available to provide room at every stage of the process, and time, as has been stated above, is required for each stage. Furthermore, if we wish to trace each stage of production far enough back to original sources, we must arrive at a point where only labor and nature existed, and there were no capital goods. This must be true by logical implication, since all capital goods must have been produced at earlier stages with the aid of labor. If we could trace each production process far enough back in time, we must be able to arrive at the point, the earliest stage, where man combined his forces with nature, unaided by produced factors of production. Fortunately, it is not necessary for human actors to perform this task, since action uses materials available in the present to arrive at desired goals in the future and there is no need to be concerned with developments in the past. There is another unique type of factor of production that is indispensable in every stage of every production process. This is the technological idea of how to proceed from one stage to another and finally to arrive at the desired consumer's good. 
This is but an application of the analysis above, namely that for any action there must be some plan or idea of the actor about how to use things as means, as definite pathways to desired ends. Without such plans or ideas there would be no action. These plans may be called recipes. They are ideas or recipes that the actor uses to arrive at his goal. A recipe must be present at each stage of each production process from which the actor proceeds to a later stage. The actor must have a recipe for transforming iron into steel, wheat into flour, bread and ham into sandwiches, etc., the distinguishing feature of a recipe is that, once learned, it generally does not have to be learned again. It can be noted and remembered. Remembered, it no longer has to be produced. It remains with the actor as an unlimited factor of production that never wears out or needs to be economized by human action. It becomes a general condition of human welfare, in the same way as air. We shall not deal at this point with the complications involved in the original learning of any recipe by the actor, which is the object of human action. It should be clear that the end of the production process, the consumer's good, is valued because it is a direct means of satisfying man's ends. The consumer's good is consumed, and this act of consumption constitutes the satisfying of human wants. This consumer's good may be a material object like bread, or an immaterial one like friendship. Its important quality is not whether it is material or not, but whether it is valued by man as a means of satisfying his wants. This function of a consumer's good is called its service in ministering to human wants. Thus the material bread is valued not for itself, but for its service in satisfying wants, just as an immaterial thing, such as music or medical care, is obviously valued for such service. All these services are consumed to satisfy wants. Economic is by no means equivalent to material. It is also clear that the factors of production, the various higher-order producers' goods, are valued solely because of their anticipated usefulness in helping to produce future consumers' goods, or to produce lower-order producers' goods that will help to bring about consumers' goods. The valuation of factors of production is derived from actors' evaluation of their products, lower stages, all of which eventually derive their valuation from the end result, the consumer's good. Furthermore, the omnipresent fact of the scarcity of consumer's goods must be reflected back in the sphere of the factors of production, the scarcity of consumers' goods must imply a scarcity of their factors. If the factors were unlimited, then the consumers' goods would also be unlimited, which cannot be the case. This does not exclude the possibility that some factors, such as recipes, may be unlimited, and therefore general conditions of welfare rather than scarce indirect means. 
but other factors at each stage of production must be in scarce supply, and this must account for the scarcity of the end product. Man's endless search for ways to satisfy his wants, that is, to increase his production of consumers' goods, takes two forms, increasing his available supply of factors of production and improving his recipes. Although it has seemed evident that there are several cooperating factors at each stage of production, it is important to realize that for each consumer's good, there must always be more than one scarce factor of production. This is implied in the very existence of human action. It is impossible to conceive of a situation where only one factor of production produces a consumer's good or even advances a consumer's good from its previous stage of production. Thus, if the sandwich in the armchair did not require the cooperating factors at the previous stage, labor of preparation, carrying, bread, ham, time, etc., then it would always be in the status of a consumer's good, sandwich in the armchair. To simplify the example, let us suppose the sandwich already is prepared and in the kitchen. Then, to produce a consumer's good from this stage forward requires the following factors. 1. The sandwich. 2. Carrying it to the armchair. 3. Time. 4 the land available. If we assume that it required only one factor, the sandwich, then we would have to assume that the sandwich was magically and instantaneously moved from kitchen to armchair without effort. But in this case, the consumer's good would not have to be produced at all, and we would be in the impossible assumption of paradise. Similarly, at each stage of the productive process, the good must have been produced by at least more than one higher-order scarce cooperating factor, otherwise this stage of production could not exist at all. 4. Further Implications Time Time is omnipresent in human action as a means that must be economized. Every action is related to time as follows. Imagine a timeline divided into three segments. The first segment ends at the letter A. The second segment ends at the letter B. The first segment of the timeline thus depicts the period before the beginning of the action. A is the point in time at which the action begins. The second segment of the timeline, AB, is the period during which the action occurs. B is the point at which the action ends, and the final segment of the timeline depicts the period after the end of the action. AB is defined as the period of production, the period from the beginning of the action to the time when the consumer's good is available. This period may be divided into various stages, each itself taking a period of time. The time expended during the period of production consists of the time during which labor energy is expended, or working time, and maturing time, that is, time required without the necessity of concurrent expenditure of labor. An obvious example is the case of agriculture. 
There might be six months between the time the soil is tilled and the time the harvest is reaped. The total time during which labor must be expended may be three weeks, while the remaining time of over five months consists of the time during which the crop must mature and ripen by the processes of nature. Another example of a lengthy maturing time is the aging of wine to improve its quality. Clearly, each consumer's good has its own period of production. The differences between the time involved in the periods of production of the various goods may be and are innumerable. One important point that must be emphasized when considering action and the period of production is that acting man does not trace back past production processes to their original sources. In the previous section, we traced back consumers' goods and producers' goods to their original sources, demonstrating that all capital goods were originally produced solely by labor and nature. Acting man, however, is not interested in past processes, but only in using presently available means to achieve anticipated future ends. At any point in time, when he begins the action, say, A, he has available to him labor, nature-given elements, and previously produced capital goods. He begins the action at A, expecting to reach his end at B. For him, the period of production is A-B, since he is not concerned with the amount of time spent in past production of his capital goods or in the methods by which they were produced. For each actor, then, the period of production is equivalent to his waiting time, the time that he must expect to wait for his end after the commencement of his action. Thus the farmer about to use his soil to grow crops for the coming season does not worry about whether or to what extent his soil is an original nature-given factor or is the result of the improvements of previous land clearers and farmers. He is not concerned about the previous time spent by these past improvers. He is concerned only with the capital and other goods in the present and the future. This is the necessary result of the fact that action occurs in the present and is aimed at the future. Thus, acting man considers and values the factors of production available in the present in accordance with their anticipated services in the future production of consumers' goods, and never in accordance with what has happened to the factors in the past. A fundamental and constant truth about human action is that man prefers his end to be achieved in the shortest possible time. Given the specific satisfaction, the sooner it arrives, the better. This results from the fact that time is always scarce and a means to be economized. The sooner any end is attained, the better. Thus, with any given end to be attained, the shorter the period of action, that is, production, the more preferable for the actor. This is the universal fact of time preference. At any point of time, and for any action, the actor most prefers to have his end attained in the immediate present. Next best for him is the immediate future,
and the further in the future the attainment of the end appears to be, the less preferable it is. The less waiting time, the more preferable it is for him. Time preference may be called the preference for present satisfaction over future satisfaction, or present good over future good, provided it is remembered that it is the same satisfaction or good that is being compared over the periods of time. Thus, a common type of objection to the assertion of universal time preference is that, in the winter time, a man will prefer the delivery of ice the next summer, future, to delivery of ice in the present. This, however, confuses the concept good with the material properties of a thing, whereas it actually refers to subjective satisfactions. Since ice in the summer provides different and greater satisfactions than ice in the winter, they are not the same, but different goods. In this case, it is different satisfactions that are being compared, despite the fact that the physical property of the thing may be the same. Time enters into human action not only in relation to the waiting time in production, but also in the length of time in which the consumer's good will satisfy the wants of the consumer. Some consumer's goods will satisfy his wants, that is, attain his ends, for a short period of time, others for a longer period. They can be consumed for shorter or longer periods. This may be included in the diagram of any action. This length of time, BC, is the duration of serviceableness of the consumer's good. It is the length of the time the end served by the consumer's good continues to be attained. This duration of serviceableness differs for each consumer's good. It may be four hours for the ham sandwich, after which period of time the actor desires other food or another sandwich. The builder of a house may expect to use it to serve his wants for ten years. Obviously, the expected durative power of the consumer's good to serve his end will enter into the actor's plans. It has become the custom to designate consumer goods with a longer duration of serviceableness as durable goods, and those of shorter duration as non-durable goods. Obviously, however, there are innumerable degrees of durability, and such a separation can only be unscientific and arbitrary. Clearly, all other things being equal, the actor will prefer a consumer's good of greater durability to one of lesser, since the former will render more total service. On the other hand, if the actor values the total service rendered by two consumer's goods equally, he will, because of time preference, choose the less durable good, since he will acquire its total services sooner than the other he will have to wait less for the total services of the less durable good. The concepts of period of production and duration of serviceableness are present in all human action. There is also a third time period that enters into action. Each person has a general time horizon stretching from the present into the future, for which he plans various types of action. 
whereas period of production and duration of serviceableness refer to specific consumer's goods and differ with each consumer's good, the period of provision, the time horizon, is the length of future time for which each actor plans to satisfy his wants. The period of provision, therefore, includes planned action for a considerable variety of consumers' goods, each with its own period of production and duration. This period of provision differs from actor to actor in accordance with his choice. Some people live from day to day, taking no heed of later periods of time. Others plan not only for the duration of their own lives, but for their children as well. 5. Further Implications A. Ends and Values All action involves the employment of scarce means to attain the most valued ends. Man has the choice of using the scarce means for various alternative ends, and the ends that he chooses are the ones he values most highly. The less urgent wants are those that remain unsatisfied. Actors can be interpreted as ranking their ends along a scale of values or scale of preferences. These scales differ for each person, both in their content and in their orders of preference. Furthermore, they differ for the same individual at different times. Thus, at some other point in time, the actor mentioned in Section 2 above might choose to go for a drive or to go for a drive and then to play bridge, rather than to continue watching the game. In that case, the ranking on his preference scale shifts to this order. First, 1. Going for a drive. Second, 2. Playing bridge. Third, three, continuing to watch baseball game. Moreover, a new end might have been introduced in the meantime, so that the actor might enjoy going to a concert, and this may change his value scale to the following. First, one, going for a drive. Second, two, going to a concert. Third, three, playing bridge. Fourth, four, continuing to watch baseball game. The choice of which ends to include in the actor's value scale and the assignment of rank to the various ends constitute the process of value judgment. Each time the actor ranks and chooses between various ends, he is making a judgment of their value to him. It is highly useful to assign a name to this value scale held by all human actors. We are not at all concerned with the specific content of men's ends, but only with the fact that various ends are ranked in the order of their importance. These scales of preference may be called happiness or welfare or utility or satisfaction or contentment. Which name we choose for the value scales is not important. At any rate, it permits us to say, whenever an actor has attained a certain end, that he has increased his state of satisfaction, or his contentment, happiness, etc. Conversely, when someone considers himself worse off, and fewer of his ends are being attained, his satisfaction, happiness, welfare, etc. have decreased. It is important to realize that there is never any possibility of measuring increases or decreases in happiness or satisfaction. 
Not only is it impossible to measure or compare changes in the satisfaction of different people, it is not possible to measure changes in the happiness of any given person. In order for any measurement to be possible, there must be an eternally fixed and objectively given unit with which other units may be compared. There is no such objective unit in the field of human valuation. The individual must determine subjectively for himself whether he is better or worse off as a result of any change. His preference can only be expressed in terms of simple choice or rank. Thus, he can say, I am better off, or I am happier, because he went to a concert instead of playing bridge, or I will be better off for going to the concert. But it would be completely meaningless for him to try to assign units to his preference and say, I am two and a half times happier because of this choice than I would have been playing bridge. Two and a half times what? There is no possible unit of happiness that can be used for purposes of comparison, and hence of addition or multiplication. Thus, values cannot be measured. Values or utilities cannot be added, subtracted, or multiplied. They can only be ranked as better or worse. A man may know that he is or will be happier or less happy, but not by how much not by a measurable quantity. Accordingly, the numbers by which ends are ranked on value scales are ordinal, not cardinal numbers. Ordinal numbers are only ranked. They cannot be subject to the processes of measurement. Thus, in the above example, all we can say is that going to a concert is valued more than playing bridge, and either of these is valued more than watching the game. We cannot say that going to a concert is valued twice as much as watching the game. The numbers 2 and 4 cannot be subject to processes of addition, multiplication, etc. All action is an attempt to exchange a less satisfactory state of affairs for a more satisfactory one. The actor finds himself, or expects to find himself, in a non-perfect state, and, by attempting to attain his most urgently desired ends, expects to be in a better state. He cannot measure the gain in satisfaction, but he does know which of his wants are more urgent than others, and he does know when his condition has improved. Therefore, all action involves exchange, an exchange of one state of affairs, X, for Y, which the actor anticipates will be a more satisfactory one, and therefore higher on his value scale. If his expectation turns out to be correct, the value of Y on his preference scale will be higher than the value of X, and he has made a net gain in his state of satisfaction or utility. If he has been in error, and the value of the state that he has given up x is higher than the value of y, he has suffered a net loss. This psychic gain or profit and loss cannot be measured in terms of units, but the actor always knows whether he has experienced psychic profit or psychic loss as a result of an action exchange. An example of suffering a loss as a result of an erroneous action would be going to the concert and finding that it was not at all enjoyable. 
The actor then realizes that he would have been much happier continuing to watch the game or playing bridge. Human actors value means strictly in accordance with their valuation of the ends that they believe the means can serve. Obviously, consumers' goods are graded in value in accordance with the ends that men expect them to satisfy. Thus, the value placed on the enjoyment contributed by a ham sandwich or a house will determine the value a man will place on the ham sandwich or the house themselves. Similarly, producers' goods are valued in accordance with their expected contribution in producing consumers' goods. Higher-order producers' goods are valued in accordance with their anticipated service in forming lower-order producers' goods. Hence, those consumers' goods serving to attain more highly valued ends will be valued more highly than those serving less highly valued ends, and those producers' goods serving to produce more highly valued consumers' goods will themselves be valued more highly than other producers' goods. Thus, the process of imputing values to goods takes place in the opposite direction to that of the process of production. Value proceeds from the ends to the consumer's good to the various first-order producer's goods to the second-order producer's goods, etc. A large part of this book is occupied with the problem of how this process of value imputation can be accomplished in a modern, complex economy. The original source of value is the ranking of ends by human actors, who then impute value to consumers' goods, and so on, to the orders of producers' goods, in accordance with their expected ability to contribute toward serving the various ends. This is the solution of a problem that plagued writers in the economic field for many years, the source of the value of goods. B. The Law of Marginal Utility It is evident that things are valued as means in accordance with their ability to attain ends valued as more or less urgent. Each physical unit of a means, direct or indirect, that enters into human action is valued separately. Thus, the actor is interested in evaluating only those units of means that enter, or that he considers will enter, into his concrete action. Actors choose between and evaluate not coal or butter in general, but specific units of coal or butter. In choosing between acquiring cows or horses, the actor does not choose between the class of cows and the class of horses, but between specific units of them, for example, two cows versus three horses. Each unit that enters into concrete action is graded and evaluated separately. Only when several units together enter into human action are all of them evaluated together. The processes that enter into valuation of specific units of different goods may be illustrated in this example. An individual possessing two cows and three horses might have to choose between giving up one cow or one horse. He may decide in this case to keep the horse, indicating that in this state of his stock a horse is more valuable to him than a cow. 
On the other hand, he might be presented with the choice of keeping either his entire stock of cows or his stock of horses. Thus, his stable and cowshed might catch fire, and he is presented with the choice of saving the inhabitants of one or of the other building. In this case, two cows might be more valuable to him than three horses, so that he will prefer to save the cows. When deciding between units of his stock, the actor may therefore prefer good X to good Y, while he may choose good Y if he must act upon his whole stock of each good. This process of valuation according to the specific units involved provides the solution for the famous value paradox which puzzled writers for centuries. The question was, how can men value bread less than platinum, when bread is obviously more useful than platinum? The answer is that acting man does not evaluate the goods open to him by abstract classes, but in terms of the specific units available. He does not wonder whether bread in general is more or less valuable to him than platinum in general, but whether, given the present available stock of bread and platinum, a loaf of bread is more or less valuable to him than an ounce of platinum. That, in most cases, men prefer the latter, is no longer surprising. As has been explained above, value or utility cannot be measured, and therefore cannot be added, subtracted, or multiplied. This holds for specific units of the same good in the same way as it holds for all other comparisons of value. Thus, if butter is an object serving human ends, we know that two pounds of butter will be valued more highly than one pound. This will be true until a point is reached when the butter is available in unlimited quantities to satisfy human wants, and will then be transferred from the status of a means to that of a general condition of human welfare. However, we cannot say that two pounds of butter are twice as useful or valuable as one pound. What has been involved in this key concept of specific units of a good? In these examples, the units of the good have been interchangeable from the point of view of the actor. Thus, any concrete pound of butter was evaluated in this case perfectly equally with any other pound of butter. Cow A and cow B were valued equally by the individual, and it made no difference to him which cow he was faced with the choice of saving. Similarly, horse A was valued equally with horse B and with horse C, and the actor was not concerned which particular horse he had to choose. When a commodity is in such a way available in specific homogeneous units, equally capable of rendering the same service to the actor, this available stock is called a supply. A supply of a good is available in specific units, each perfectly substitutable for every other. The individual above had an available supply of two cows and three horses, and a supply of pounds of butter. What if one pound of butter was considered by the actor as of better quality than another pound of butter? In that case, the two butters are really different goods from the point of view of the actor, and will be evaluated differently. 
The two pounds of butter are now two different goods and are no longer two units of a supply of one good. Similarly, the actor must have valued each horse or each cow identically. If he preferred one horse to each of the others, or one cow to the other, then they are no longer units of the supply of the same good. No longer are his horses interchangeable for one another. If he grades horse A above the others and regards horses B and C indifferently, then he has supplies of two different goods, omitting the cows, say, grade A horses, one unit, and grade B horses, two units. If a specific unit is differently evaluated from all other units, then the supply of that good is only one unit. Here again, it is very important to recognize that what is significant for human action is not the physical property of a good, but the evaluation of the good by the actor. Thus, physically, there may be no discernible difference between one pound of butter and another, or one cow and another. But if the actor chooses to evaluate them differently, they are no longer part of the supply of the same good. The interchangeability of units in the supply of a good does not mean that the concrete units are actually valued equally. They may and will be valued differently whenever their position in the supply is different. Thus, suppose that the isolated individual successively finds one horse, then a second, then a third. Each horse may be identical and interchangeable with the others. The first horse will fulfill the most urgent wants that a horse can serve. This follows from the universal fact that action uses scarce means to satisfy the most urgent of the not-yet-satisfied wants. When the second horse is found, he will be put to work satisfying the most urgent of the wants remaining. These wants, however, must be ranked lower than the wants that the previous horse has satisfied. Similarly, the third horse acquired might be capable of performing the same service as the others, but he will be put to work fulfilling the highest of the remaining wants, which, however, will yet be lower in value than the others. The important consideration is the relation between the unit to be acquired or given up and the quantity of supply, stock, already available to the actor. Thus, if no units of a good, whatever the good may be, are available, the first unit will satisfy the most urgent wants that such a good is capable of satisfying. If to this supply of one unit is added a second unit, the latter will fulfill the most urgent wants remaining, but these will be less urgent than the ones the first fulfilled. Therefore, the value of the second unit to the actor will be less than the value of the first unit. Similarly, the value of the third unit of the supply, added to a stock of two units, will be less than the value of the second unit. It may not matter to the individual which horse is chosen first and which second, or which pounds of butter he consumes, but those units which he does use first will be the ones that he values more highly. Thus, for all human actions, as the quantity of the supply, stock, of a good increases, 
the utility value of each additional unit decreases. Let us now consider a supply from the point of view of a possible decrease rather than an increase. Assume that a man has a supply of six interchangeable horses. They are engaged in fulfilling his wants. Suppose that he is now faced with the necessity of giving up one horse. It now follows that this smaller stock of means is not capable of rendering as much service to him as the larger supply. This stems from the very existence of the good as a means. This would not be true only if the good were not a means, but a general condition of human welfare, in which case one less unit of supply would make no difference for human action. But in that case, it would not be a good, subject to the economizing of human action. Therefore, the utility of X units of a good is always greater than the utility of X minus 1 units. Because of the impossibility of measurement, it is impossible to determine by how much greater one value is than the other. Now the question arises, which utility, which end, does the actor give up because he is deprived of one unit? Obviously, he gives up the least urgent of the wants which the larger stock would have satisfied. Thus, if the individual was using one horse for pleasure riding, and he considers this the least important of his wants that were fulfilled by the six horses, the loss of a horse will cause him to give up pleasure riding. The principles involved in the utility of a supply may be illustrated as follows. We are considering any given means, which is divisible into homogeneous units of a supply, each interchangeable and capable of giving service equal to that of the other units. The supply must be scarce in relation to the ends that it is capable of fulfilling. Otherwise, it would not be a good, but a condition of human welfare. We assume for simplicity that there are ten ends which the means could fulfill, and that each unit of means is capable of serving one of the ends. If the supply of the good is six units, then the first six ends, ranked in order of importance by the valuing individual, are the ones that are being satisfied. Ends ranked seven through ten remain unsatisfied. If we assume that the stock arrived in successive units, then the first unit went to satisfy end one, the second unit was used to serve end two, etc. The sixth unit was used to serve end six. Now suppose the actor is faced with the necessity of giving up one unit of his stock. His total will be five instead of six units. Obviously, he gives up satisfying the end ranked sixth, and continues to satisfy the more important ends one through five. As a result of the interchangeability of units, it does not matter to him which of the six units he must lose. The point is that he will give up serving this sixth end. Since action considers only the present and the future, not the past, it does not matter to him which units he acquired first in the past. He deals only with his presently available stock. In other words, suppose that the sixth horse that he had previously acquired, named Seabiscuit, he had placed in the service of pleasure riding. 
Suppose that he now must lose another horse, man-o'-war, which had arrived earlier, and which was engaged in the more important duty to him of leading a wagon. He will still give up end six by simply transferring Seabiscuit from this function to the wagon-leading end. This consequence follows from the defined interchangeability of units and from disregard of past events which are of no consequence for the present and the future. Thus the actor gives up the lowest-ranking want that the original stock, in this case six units, was capable of satisfying. This one unit that he must consider giving up is called the marginal unit. It is the unit at the margin. This least important end fulfilled by the stock is known as the satisfaction provided by the marginal unit, or the utility of the marginal unit. In short, the marginal satisfaction, or marginal utility. If the marginal unit is one unit, then the marginal utility of the supply is the end that must be given up as the result of a loss of the unit. In the case under discussion, the marginal utility is ranked sixth among the ends. If the supply consisted of four units, and the actor were faced with the necessity of giving up one unit, then the value of the marginal unit, or the marginal utility, would have a rank of four. If the stock consisted of one unit, and this had to be given up, the value of the marginal unit would be one the value of the highest-ranked end. We are now in a position to complete an important law indicated above, but with different phraseology. The greater the supply of a good, the lower the marginal utility. The smaller the supply, the higher the marginal utility. This fundamental law of economics has been derived from the fundamental axiom of human action— it is the law of marginal utility, sometimes known as the law of diminishing marginal utility. Here again, it must be emphasized that utility is not a cardinal quantity subject to the processes of measurement, such as addition, multiplication, etc. It is a ranked number expressible only in terms of higher or lower order in the preferences of men. This law of marginal utility holds for all goods, regardless of the size of the unit considered. The size of the unit will be the one that enters into concrete human action, but whatever it is, the same principle applies. Thus, if in certain situations the actor must consider only pairs of horses as the units to add or subtract from his stock instead of the individual horses, he will construct a new and shorter scale of ends with fewer units of supply to consider. He will then go through a similar process of assigning means to serve ends and will give up the least valued end should he lose a unit of supply. The ends will simply be ranked in terms of the alternative uses of pairs of horses instead of single horses. What if a good cannot be divided into homogeneous units for purposes of action? There are cases where the good must be treated as a whole in human action. Does the law of marginal utility apply in such a case? The law does apply, since we then treat the supply as consisting of one unit. 
In this case, the marginal unit is equal in size to the total supply possessed or desired by the actor. The value of the marginal unit is equal to the first rank of the ends which the total good could serve. Thus, if an individual must dispose of his whole stock of six horses, or acquire a stock of six horses together, the six horses are treated as one unit. The marginal utility of his supply would then be equal to the first-ranking end that the unit of six horses could supply. If, as above, we consider the case of additions instead of decreases to stock, we recall that the law derived for this situation was that as the quantity of supply increases, the utility of each additional unit decreases. Yet this additional unit is precisely the marginal unit. Thus, if instead of decreasing the supply from six to five horses, we increase it from five to six, the value of the additional horse is equal to the value of the sixth-ranking end, say, pleasure riding. This is the same marginal unit, with the same utility as in the case of decreasing the stock from six to five. Thus, the law derived previously was simply another form of the law of marginal utility. The greater the supply of a good, the lower the marginal utility. The smaller the supply, the higher the marginal utility. This is true whether or not the marginal unit is the unit of decrease of stock or the unit of addition to stock, when these are considered by the actor. If a man's supply of a good equals X units, and he is considering the addition of one unit, this is the marginal unit. If his supply is X plus one units, and he is considering the loss of one unit, this too is his marginal unit, and its value is identical with the former, provided that his ends and their ranking are the same in both cases. We have dealt with the laws of utility as they apply to each good treated in human action. Now we must indicate the relationship among various goods. It is obvious that more than one good exists in human action. This has already been definitely proven, since it was demonstrated that more than one factor of production, hence more than one good, must exist. To understand the relationship between the various goods in human action, consider the value scales of two goods, X and Y. For simplicity, let us assume that X is horses and Y cows, and that the value scales representing those held by the individual are as follows. End Y1 is ranked highest, say cow 1. Then ends X1, X2, and X3, horses 1, 2, and 3, Y2, Y3, X4, Y4, X5, Y5, X6, X7, Y6, Y7. Now, the man's value scales will reveal his choices involving alternatives of action in regard to these two goods. Suppose that his stock is 3Y, cows, and 4X, horses. He is faced with the alternative of giving up either one cow or one horse. 
he will choose the alternative that will deprive him of the least valued end possible. Since the marginal utility of each good is equal to the value of the least important end of which he would be deprived, he compares the marginal utility of X with the marginal utility of Y. In this case, the marginal unit of X has a rank of X4, and the marginal unit of Y has a rank of Y3. But the end Y3 is ranked higher on his value scale than X4. Hence, the marginal utility of Y is, in this case, higher than or greater than the marginal utility of X. Since he will give up the lowest possible utility, he will give up one unit of X. Thus, presented with a choice of units of goods to give up, he will give up the good with units of lowest marginal utility on his value scale. Suppose another example, that his stock is three horses and two cows. He has the alternative of giving up one X or one Y. In this case, the marginal utility of Y is ranked at Y2, and that of X is ranked at X3. But X3 occupies a higher position on his value scale than Y2, and therefore the marginal utility of Y is, at this point, lower than the marginal utility of X. He gives up a unit of Y. The converse occurs if the man must choose between the alternative of increasing his stock by either one unit of X or one unit of Y. Thus, suppose that his stock is four units of X and four units of Y. He must choose between adding one horse or one cow. He then compares the marginal utility of increase, that is, the value of the most important of the not yet satisfied wants. The marginal utility of X is then ranked at X5, of Y at Y5. But X5 ranks higher than Y5 on his value scale, and he will therefore choose the former. Thus, faced with the choice of adding units of goods, he will choose the unit of highest marginal utility on his value scale. Another example. Previously, we saw that the man in a position of 4x3y would, if faced with the choice of giving up one unit of either x or y, give up the unit of x, with a lower marginal utility. In other words, he would prefer a position of 3x3y to 4x2y. Now, suppose he is in a position of 3x3y and faced with the choice of adding one unit of x or one unit of y. Since the marginal utility of the increased x is greater than that of y, he will choose to add the unit of x and to arrive at a position of 4x3y rather than 3x4y. It is evident that in the act of choosing between giving up or adding units of either X or Y, the actor must have, in effect, placed both goods on a single unitary value scale. Unless he could place X and Y on one value scale for comparison, he could not have determined that the marginal utility of the fourth unit of X was higher than that of the fourth unit of Y. 
The very fact of action in choosing between more than one good implies that the units of these goods must have been ranked for comparison on one value scale of the actor. The actor may not and cannot measure differences in utility, but he must be engaged in ranking all the goods considered on one value scale. Thus we should actually consider the ends served by the two means as ranked on one value scale, as follows. 1. Y1 2. X1 3. X2 4. X3 5. Y2 6. Y3 7. X4 8. Y4 9. X5 10. Y5 11. X6 12. X7 13. Y6 14. Y7 These principles permit of being extended from two to any number of goods. Regardless of the number of goods, any man will always have a certain combination of units of them in his stock, he may be faced with the choice of giving up one unit of any good that he might choose. By ranking the various goods and the ends served by the relevant units, the actor will give up the unit of that good of which the marginal utility to him is the lowest. Similarly, with any given combination of goods in his stock, and faced with the choice of adding one unit of any of the goods available, the actor will choose that good whose marginal utility of increase will be highest. In other words, all the goods are ranked on one value scale, in accordance with the ends they serve. If the actor has no units of some goods in his possession, this does not affect the principle. Thus, if he has no units of X or Y in his possession, and he must choose between adding a unit of X or one unit of Y, he will choose the marginal unit of greatest utility, in this case, Y. The principle is easily extended to the case of N goods. It must be reiterated here that value scales do not exist in a void apart from the concrete choices of action. Thus, if the actor has a stock of 3x, 4y, 2z, etc., his choices for adding and subtracting from stock take place in this region, and there is no need for him to formulate hypothetical value scales to determine what his choices would have been if his stock were 6x, 8y, 5z, etc., no one can predict with certainty the course of his choices, except that they will follow the law of marginal utility, which was deduced from the axiom of action. The solution of the value paradox mentioned above is now fully clear. If a man prefers one ounce of platinum to five loaves of bread, he is choosing between units of the two goods based on the supply available. On the basis of the available supply of platinum and of bread, the marginal utility of a unit of platinum is greater than the marginal utility of a unit of bread. 6. Factors of Production – The Law of Returns 
We have concluded that the value of each unit of any good is equal to its marginal utility at any point in time, and that this value is determined by the relation between the actor's scale of wants and the stock of goods available. We know that there are two types of goods, consumers' goods, which directly serve human wants, and producers' goods, which aid in the process of production eventually to produce consumers' goods. It is clear that the utility of a consumer's good is the end directly served. The utility of a producer's good is its contribution in producing consumers' goods. With value imputed backward from ends to consumers' goods through the various orders of producers' goods, the utility of any producer's good is its contribution to its product, the lower stage producer's good or the consumer's good. As has been discussed above, the very fact of the necessity of producing consumers' goods implies a scarcity of factors of production. If factors of production at each stage were not scarce, then there would be unlimited quantities available of factors of the next lower stage. Similarly, it was concluded that at each stage of production, the product must be produced by more than one scarce higher-order factor of production. If only one factor were necessary for the process, then the process itself would not be necessary, and consumers' goods would be available in unlimited abundance. Thus, at each stage of production, the produced goods must have been produced with the aid of more than one factor. These factors cooperate in the production process and are termed complementary factors. Factors of production are available as units of a homogeneous supply, just as are consumers' goods. On what principles will an actor evaluate a unit of a factor of production? He will evaluate a unit of supply on the basis of the least importantly valued product which he would have to forego were he deprived of the unit factor. In other words, he will evaluate each unit of a factor as equal to the satisfactions provided by its marginal unit, in this case, the utility of its marginal product. The marginal product is the product foregone by a loss of the marginal unit, and its value is determined either by its marginal product in the next stage of production, or, if it is a consumer's good, by the utility of the end it satisfies. Thus, the value assigned to a unit of a factor of production is equal to the value of its marginal product, or its marginal productivity. Since man wishes to satisfy as many of his ends as possible, and in the shortest possible time, see above, it follows that he will strive for the maximum product from given units of factors at each stage of production. As long as the goods are composed of homogeneous units, their quantity can be measured in terms of these units, and the actor can know when they are in greater or lesser supply. Thus, whereas value and utility cannot be measured or subject to addition, subtraction, etc., quantities of homogeneous units of a supply can be measured. A man knows how many horses or cows he has, and he knows that four horses are twice the quantity of two horses.
Assume that a product, P, which can be a producer's good or a consumer's good, is produced by three complementary factors, X, Y, and Z. These are all higher-order producer's goods. Since supplies of goods are quantitatively definable, and since in nature quantitative causes lead to quantitatively observable effects, we are always in a position to say that A quantities of X combined with B quantities of Y and C quantities of Z lead to P quantities of the product P. Now let us assume that we hold the quantitative amounts B and C unchanged. The amounts A, and therefore P, are free to vary. The value of A yielding the maximum P divided by A, that is, the maximum average return of product to the factor, is called the optimum amount of X. The law of returns states that with the quantity of complementary factors held constant, there always exists some optimum amount of the varying factor. As the amount of the varying factor decreases or increases from the optimum, P divided by A, the average unit product declines. The quantitative extent of that decline depends on the concrete conditions of each case, as the supply of the varying factor increases just below this optimum, the average return of product to the varying factor is increasing. After the optimum, it is decreasing. These may be called states of increasing returns and decreasing returns to the factor, with the maximum return at the optimum point. The law that such an optimum must exist can be proved by contemplating the implications of the contrary. If there were no optimum, the average product would increase indefinitely as the quantity of the factor X increased. It could not increase indefinitely as the quantity decreases, since the product will be zero when the quantity of the factor is zero. But if P divided by A can always be increased merely by increasing A, this means that any desired quantity of P could be secured by merely increasing the supply of X. This would mean that the proportionate supply of factors Y and Z can be ever so small. Any decrease in their supply can always be compensated to increase production by increasing the supply of X. This would signify that factor X is perfectly substitutable for factors Y and Z, and that the scarcity of the latter factors would not be a matter of concern to the actor so long as factor X was available in abundance. But a lack of concern for their scarcity means that Y and Z would no longer be scarce factors. Only one scarce factor, X, would remain. But we have seen that there must be more than one factor at each stage of production. Accordingly, the very existence of various factors of production implies that the average return of product to each factor must have some maximum or optimum value. In some cases, the optimum amount of a factor may be the only amount that can effectively cooperate in the production process. 
Thus, by a known chemical formula, it may require precisely two parts of hydrogen and one part of oxygen to produce one unit of water. If the supply of oxygen is fixed at one unit, then any supply of hydrogen under two parts will produce no product at all, and all parts beyond two of hydrogen will be quite useless. Not only will the combination of two hydrogen and one oxygen be the optimum combination, but it will be the only amount of hydrogen that will be at all useful in the production process. The relationship between average product and marginal product to a varying factor may be seen in the hypothetical example of the returns to a varying factor with other factors fixed. The average unit product increases until it reaches a peak of 8 at 5 units of x. This is the optimum point for the varying factor. The marginal product is the increase in total product provided by the marginal unit. At any given supply of units of factor x, a loss of one unit will entail a loss of total product equal to the marginal product. In this hypothetical example, with three units of factor y and zero units of factor x, total product is zero units, average unit product is zero units, and marginal product is inapplicable. With three units of factor y and one unit of factor x, total product is four units, average unit product is four units, and marginal product is four units. With three units of factor y and two units of factor x, total product is ten units, average unit product is five units, and marginal product is six units. With three units of factor y and three units of factor x, total product is eighteen units, average unit product is six units, and marginal product is eight units. With three units of factor y and four units of factor x, total product is 30 units, average unit product is 7.5 units, and marginal product is 12 units. With three units of factor y and five units of factor x, total product is 40 units, average unit product is 8 units, and marginal product is 10 units. With three units of factor y and six units of factor x, total product is 45 units, average unit product is 7.5 units, and marginal product is 5 units. And with three units of factor y and seven units of factor x, total product is 49 units, average unit product is 7 units, and marginal product is 4 units. Thus, if the supply of x is increased from 3 units to 4 units, total product is increased from 18 to 30 units, and this increase is the marginal product of x with a supply of 4 units. Similarly, if the supply is cut from 4 units to 3 units, the total product must be cut from 30 to 18 units, and thus the marginal product is 12. 
it is evident that the amount of X that will yield the optimum of average product is not necessarily the amount that maximizes the marginal product of the factor. Often the marginal product reaches its peak before the average product. The relationship that always holds mathematically between the average and the marginal product of a factor is that as the average product increases, increasing returns, the marginal product is greater than the average product. Conversely, as the average product declines, diminishing returns, the marginal product is less than the average product. It follows that when the average product is at a maximum, it equals the marginal product. It is clear that with one varying factor, it is easy for the actor to set the proportion of factors to yield the optimum return for the factor. But how can the actor set an optimum combination of factors if all of them can be varied in their supply? If one combination of quantities of X, Y, and Z yields an optimum return for X, and another combination yields an optimum return for Y, etc., how is the actor to determine which combination to choose? Since he cannot quantitatively compare units of X with units of Y or Z, how can he determine the optimum proportion of factors? This is a fundamental problem for human action, and its methods of solution will be treated in subsequent chapters. 7. Factors of Production, Convertibility, and Valuation Factors of production are valued in accordance with their anticipated contribution in the eventual production of consumers' goods. Factors, however, differ in the degree of their specificity, that is, the variety of consumers' goods in the production of which they can be of service. Certain goods are completely specific, are useful in producing only one consumer's good. Thus, when, in past ages, extracts from the mandrake weed were considered useful in healing ills, the mandrake weed was a completely specific factor of production. It was useful purely for this purpose. When the ideas of people changed and the mandrake was considered worthless, the weed lost its value completely. Other producers' goods may be relatively nonspecific and capable of being used in a wide variety of employments. They could never be perfectly nonspecific, equally useful in all production of consumers' goods, for in that case they would be general conditions of welfare available in unlimited abundance for all purposes. There would be no need to economize them. Scarce factors, however, including the relatively non-specific ones, must be employed in their most urgent uses. Just as a supply of consumers' goods will go first toward satisfying the most urgent wants, then to the next most urgent wants, etc., so a supply of factors will be allocated by actors first to the most urgent uses in producing consumers' goods, then to the next most urgent uses, etc., the loss of a unit of a supply of a factor will entail the loss of the least urgent of the presently satisfied uses. The less specific a factor is, the more convertible it is from one use to another. 
The mandrake weed lost its value because it could not be converted to other uses. Factors such as iron or wood, however, are convertible into a wide variety of uses. If one type of consumer's good falls into disuse, iron output can be shifted from that to another line of production. On the other hand, once the iron ore has been transformed into a machine, it becomes less easily convertible and often completely specific to the product. When factors lose a large part of their value as a result of a decline in the value of the consumer's good, they will, if possible, be converted to another use of greater value. If, despite the decline in the value of the product, there is no better use to which the factor can be converted, it will stay in that line of product or cease being used altogether if the consumer's good no longer has value. For example, suppose that cigars suddenly lose their value as consumers' goods. They are no longer desired. Those cigar machines, which are not usable in any other capacity, will become valueless. Tobacco leaves, however, will lose some of their value, but may be convertible to uses such as cigarette production with little loss of value. A loss of all desire for tobacco, however, will result in a far wider loss in the value of the factors, although part of the land may be salvaged by shifting from tobacco to the production of cotton. Suppose, on the other hand, that some time after cigars lose their value, this commodity returns to public favor and regains its former value. The cigar machines, which had been rendered valueless, now recoup their great loss in value. On the other hand, the tobacco leaves, land, etc., which had shifted from cigars to other uses, will reshift into the production of cigars. These factors will gain in value, but their gain, as was their previous loss, will be less than the gain of the completely specific factor. These are examples of a general law that a change in the value of the product causes a greater change in the value of the specific factors than in that of the relatively non-specific factors. To further illustrate the relation between convertibility and valuation, let us assume that complementary factors 10x, 5y, and 8z produce a supply of 20p. First, suppose that each of these factors is completely specific and that none of the supply of the factors can be replaced by other units. Then, if the supply of one of the factors is lost, say 10x, the entire product is lost and the other factors become valueless. In that case, the supply of that factor which must be given up or lost equals in value the value of the entire product, 20p, while the other factors have a zero value. An example of production with purely specific factors is a pair of shoes. The prospect of a loss of one shoe is valued at the value of the entire pair, while the other shoe becomes valueless in case of a loss. Thus, jointly, factors 10x, 5y, and 8z produce a product that is valued, say, as rank 11 on the actor's value scale. 
lose the supply of one of the factors and the other complementary factors become completely valueless. Now let us assume, secondly, that each of the factors is non-specific, that 10x can be used in another line of production that will yield a product, say, ranked 21st on the value scale, that 5y in another use will yield a product ranked 15th on the actor's value scale, and that 8z can be used to yield a product ranked 30th. In that case, the loss of 10x would mean that instead of satisfying a want of rank 11, the units of y and z would be shifted to their next most valuable use, and once ranked 15th and 30th would be satisfied instead. We know that the actor preferred the satisfaction of a want ranked 11th to the satisfaction of wants ranked 15th and 30th, otherwise the factors would not have been engaged in producing P in the first place. But now the loss of value is far from total, since the other factors can still yield a return in other uses. Convertible factors will be allocated among different lines of production according to the same principles as consumers' goods are allocated among the ends they conserve. Each unit of supply will be allocated to satisfy the most urgent of the not yet satisfied wants, that is, where the value of its marginal product is the highest. A loss of a unit of the factor will deprive the actor of only the least important of the presently satisfied uses, that is, that use in which the value of the marginal product is the lowest. This choice is analogous to that involved in previous examples comparing the marginal utility of one good with the marginal utility of another. This lowest-ranked marginal product may be considered the value of the marginal product of any unit of the factor, with all uses taken into account. Thus, in the above case, suppose that X is a convertible factor in a myriad of different uses. If one unit of X has a marginal product of, say, 3P, a marginal product in another use of 2Q, 5R, etc., the actor ranks the values of these marginal products of X on his value scale. Suppose that he ranks them in this order, 4S, 3P, 2Q, 5R. In that case, suppose he is faced with the loss of one unit of X. He will give up the use of a unit of X in production of R, where the marginal product is ranked lowest. Even if the loss takes place in the production of P, he will not give up 3P, but shift a unit of X from the less valuable use, R, and give up 5R. Thus, just as the actor gave up the use of a horse in pleasure riding and not in wagon pulling by shifting from the former to the latter use, so the actor who, for example, loses a cord of wood intended for building a house, will give up a cord intended for a service less valuable to him, say, building a sled. Thus the value of the marginal product of a unit of a factor will be equal to its value in its marginal use. That is, that use served by the stock of the factor whose marginal product is ranked lowest on his value scale.
We now can see further why, in cases where products are made with specific and convertible factors, the general law holds that the value of convertible factors changes less than that of specific factors in response to a change in the value of P, or in the conditions of its production. The value of a unit of a convertible factor is set not by the conditions of its employment in one type of product, but by the value of its marginal product when all its uses are taken into consideration. Since a specific factor is usable in only one line of production, its unit value is set as equal to the value of the marginal product in that line of production alone. Hence, in the process of valuation, the specific factors are far more responsive to conditions in any given process of production than are the nonspecific factors. As with the problem of optimum proportions, the process of value imputation from consumer's good to factors raises a great many problems, which will be discussed in later chapters. Since one product cannot be measured against other products and units of different factors cannot be compared with one another, how can value be imputed when, as in a modern economy, the structure of production is very complex, with myriads of products and with convertible and inconvertible factors? It will be seen that value imputation is easy for isolated Crusoe-type actors, but that special conditions are needed to enable the value imputing process, as well as the factor allocating process, to take place in a complex economy. In particular, the various units of products and factors, not the values, of course, must be made commensurable and comparable. Eight. Factors of Production, Labor versus Leisure Setting aside the problem of allocating production along the most desired lines and of measuring one product against another, it is evident that every man desires to maximize his production of consumer's goods per unit of time. He tries to satisfy as many of his important ends as possible and at the earliest possible time. But in order to increase the production of his consumer's goods, he must relieve the scarcity of the scarce factors of production. He must increase the available supply of these scarce factors. The nature-given factors are limited by his environment and therefore cannot be increased. This leaves him with the choice of increasing his supply of capital goods or of increasing his expenditure of labor. It might be asserted that another way of increasing his production is to improve his technical knowledge of how to produce the desired goods, to improve his recipes. A recipe, however, can only set outer limits on his increases in production. The actual increases can be accomplished solely by an increase in the supply of productive factors. Thus, suppose that Robinson Crusoe lands without equipment on a desert island. He may be a competent engineer and have full knowledge of the necessary processes involved in constructing a mansion for himself. But without the necessary supply of factors available, this knowledge could not suffice to construct the mansion. 
One method, then, by which man may increase his production per unit of time is by increasing his expenditure of labor. In the first place, however, the possibilities for this expansion are strictly limited by the number of people in existence at any time and by the number of hours in the day. Secondly, it is limited by the ability of each laborer, and this ability tends to vary. And finally, there is a third limitation on the supply of labor. Whether or not the work is directly satisfying in itself, labor always involves the foregoing of leisure, a desirable good. This is the first proposition in this chapter that has not been deduced from the axiom of action. It is a subsidiary assumption, based on empirical observation of actual human behavior, it is not deducible from human action because its contrary is conceivable, although not generally existing. On the other hand, the assumptions above of quantitative relations of cause and effect were logically implicit in the action axiom, since knowledge of definite cause and effect relations is necessary to any decision to act. We can conceive of a world in which leisure is not desired, and labor is merely a useful, scarce factor to be economized. In such a world, the total supply of available labor would be equal to the total quantity of labor that men would be capable of expending. Everyone would be eager to work to the maximum of capacity, since increased work would lead to increased production of desired consumers' goods. All time not required for maintaining and preserving the capacity to work would be spent in labor. Such a situation could conceivably exist, and an economic analysis could be worked out on that basis. We know from empirical observation, however, that such a situation is very rare for human action. For almost all actors, leisure is a consumer's good, to be weighed in the balance against the prospect of acquiring other consumer's goods, including possible satisfaction from the effort itself. The more a man labors, the less leisure he can enjoy. Increased labor, therefore, reduces the available supply of leisure and the utility that it affords. Consequently, people work only when they value the return of labor higher than the decrease in satisfaction brought about by the curtailment of leisure. It is possible that included in this return of satisfaction yielded by labor may be satisfaction in the labor itself, in the voluntary expenditure of energy on a productive task. When such satisfactions from labor do not exist, then simply the expected value of the product yielded by the effort will be weighed against the disutility involved in giving up leisure, the utility of the leisure foregone. Where labor does provide intrinsic satisfactions, the utility of the product yielded will include the utility provided by the effort itself. As the quantity of effort increases, however, the utility of the satisfactions provided by labor itself declines, and the utility of the successive units of the final product declines as well. Both the marginal utility of the final product and the marginal utility of labor satisfaction decline with an increase in their quantity, because both goods follow the universal law of marginal utility.
In considering an expenditure of his labor, man not only takes into account which are the most valuable ends it can serve, as he does with all other factors, these ends possibly including the satisfaction derived from productive labor itself, but he also weighs the prospect of abstaining from the expenditure of labor in order to obtain the consumer's good, leisure. Leisure, like any other good, is subject to the law of marginal utility. The first unit of leisure satisfies a most urgently felt desire. The next unit serves a less highly valued end. The third unit, a still less highly valued end, etc. The marginal utility of leisure decreases as the supply increases, and this utility is equal to the value of the end that would have to be foregone with the loss of the unit of leisure. But in that case, the marginal disutility of work in terms of leisure foregone increases with every increase in the amount of labor performed. In some cases, labor itself may be positively disagreeable, not only because of the leisure foregone, but also because of specific conditions attached to the particular labor that the actor finds disagreeable. In these cases, the marginal disutility of labor includes both the disutility due to these conditions and the disutility due to leisure foregone. The painful aspects of labor, like the foregoing of leisure, are endured for the sake of the yield of the final product. The addition of the element of disagreeableness in certain types of labor may reinforce, and certainly does not counteract, the increasing marginal disutility imposed by the accumulation of leisure foregone as the time spent in labor increases. Thus, for each person and type of labor performed, the balancing of the marginal utility of the product of prospective units of effort, as against the marginal disutility of effort, will include the satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the work itself, in addition to the evaluation of the final product and of the leisure foregone. The labor itself may provide positive satisfaction, positive pain or dissatisfaction, or it may be neutral. In cases where the labor itself provides positive satisfactions, however, these are intertwined with and cannot be separated from the prospect of obtaining the final product. Deprived of the final product, man will consider his labor senseless and useless, and the labor itself will no longer bring positive satisfactions. Those activities which are engaged in purely for their own sake are not labor, but are pure play, consumer's goods in themselves. Play as a consumer's good is subject to the law of marginal utility, as are all goods and the time spent in play will be balanced against the utility to be derived from other obtainable goods. Leisure is the amount of time not spent in labor, and play may be considered as one of the forms that leisure may take in yielding satisfaction. In the expenditure of any hour of labor, therefore, man weighs the disutility of the labor involved, including the leisure foregone, plus any dissatisfaction stemming from the work itself, against the utility of the contribution he will make in that hour to the production of desired goods, 
including future goods and any pleasure in the work itself, that is, with the value of his marginal product. In each hour he will expend his effort toward producing that good whose marginal product is highest on his value scale. If he must give up an hour of labor, he will give up a unit of that good whose marginal utility is lowest on his value scale. At each point, he will balance the utility of the product on his value scale against the disutility of further work. We know that a man's marginal utility of goods provided by effort will decline as his expenditure of effort increases. On the other hand, with each new expenditure of effort, the marginal disutility of the effort continues to increase. Therefore, a man will expend his labor as long as the marginal utility of the return exceeds the marginal disutility of the labor effort. A man will stop work when the marginal disutility of labor is greater than the marginal utility of the increased goods provided by the effort. Then, as his consumption of leisure increases, the marginal utility of leisure will decline, while the marginal utility of the goods foregone increases until finally the utility of the marginal products foregone becomes greater than the marginal utility of leisure, and the actor will resume labor again. This analysis of the laws of labor effort has been deduced from the implications of the action axiom and the assumption of leisure as a consumer's good. 9. The Formation of Capital with the nature-given elements limited by his environment and his labor restricted both by its available supply and its disutility, there is only one way by which man can increase his production of consumer's goods per unit of time, by increasing the quantity of capital goods. Beginning with unaided labor and nature, he must, to increase his productivity, mix his labor energy with the elements of nature to form capital goods. These goods are not immediately serviceable in satisfying his wants, but must be transformed by further labor into lower-order capital goods and, finally, into the desired consumer's goods. In order to illuminate clearly the nature of capital formation and the position of capital in production, let us start with the hypothetical example of Robinson Crusoe, stranded on a desert island. Robinson, on landing, we assume, finds himself without the aid of capital goods of any kind. All that is available is his own labor and the elements given him by nature. It is obvious that without capital he will be able to satisfy only a few wants, of which he will choose the most urgent. Let us say that the only goods available without the aid of capital are berries and leisure. Say that he finds that he can pick twenty edible berries an hour, and on this basis works ten hours in berry picking and enjoys fourteen hours a day of leisure. It is evident that without the aid of capital, the only goods open to him for consumption are goods with the shortest period of production. Leisure is the one good that is produced almost instantaneously, while berries have a very short production period. Twenty berries have a production period of one hour. 
Goods with longer periods of production are not available to him unless he acquires capital goods. There are two ways in which longer processes of production through the use of capital may increase productivity. One, they may provide a greater production of the same good per unit of time, or two, they may allow the actor to consume goods that are not available at all with shorter processes of production. As an example of the first type of increase in productivity, Robinson may decide that if he had the use of a long stick, he could shake many berries off the trees instead of picking them by hand. In that way, he might be able to step up his production to 50 berries an hour. How might he go about acquiring the stick? Obviously, he must expend labor in getting the materials, transporting them, shaping them into a stick, etc. Let us say that 10 hours would be necessary for this task. This means that to obtain the stick, Crusoe must forego 10 hours' production of consumer's goods. He must either sacrifice 10 hours of leisure or 10 hours of berries at 20 per hour, 200 berries, or some combination of the two. He must sacrifice for 10 hours the enjoyment of consumer's goods and expend his labor on producing a capital good, the stick, which will be of no immediate use to him. He will be able to begin using the capital good as an indirect aid to future production only after the ten hours are up. In the meantime, he must forego the satisfaction of his wants. He must restrict his consumption for ten hours and transfer his labor for that period from producing immediately satisfying consumer's goods into the production of capital goods, which will prove their usefulness only in the future. The restriction of consumption is called saving, and the transfer of labor and land to the formation of capital goods is called investment. We see now what is involved in the process of capital formation. The actor must decide whether or not to restrict his consumption and invest in the production of capital goods by weighing the following factors. Does the utility yielded by the increased productivity of the longer process of production outweigh the sacrifice that I must make of present goods to acquire consumers' goods in the future? We have already seen above the universal fact of time preference, that a man will always prefer obtaining a given satisfaction earlier than later. Here, the actor must balance his desire to acquire more satisfactions per unit of time as against the fact that, to do so, he must give up satisfactions in the present to increase his production in the future. His time preference for present over future accounts for his disutility of waiting, which must be balanced against the utility that will be eventually provided by the capital good and the longer process of production. How he chooses depends on his scale of values. It is possible, for example, that if he thought the stick would provide him with only 30 berries an hour and would take 20 hours to make, he would not make the saving investment decision. 
On the other hand, if the stick took five hours to make and could provide him with one hundred berries an hour, he might make the decision readily. If he decides to invest ten hours in adding to his capital goods, there are many ways in which he might restrict his consumption. As mentioned above, he can restrict any combination of berries or leisure. Setting aside leisure for purposes of simplification, he may decide to take a whole day off at once and produce no berries at all, completing the stick in one day. Or he may decide to pick berries for eight hours instead of ten and devote the other two hours a day to making the stick, in which case the completion of the stick will take five days. Which method he will choose depends on the nature of his value scale. In any case, he must restrict his consumption by ten hours worth of labor, two hundred berries. The rate of his restriction will depend on how urgently he wants the increased production, as compared with the urgency with which he desires to maintain his present supply of berries. Analytically, there is little difference between working on consumers' goods, accumulating a stock of them, and then working full time on the capital good, and working on the capital good and consumer goods simultaneously. Other things being equal, however, it is possible that one of the methods will prove more productive. Thus, it may be that the actor can complete the task in less time if he works on it continuously. In that case, he will tend to choose the former method. On the other hand, the berries might tend to spoil if accumulated, and this would lead him to choose the latter route. A balance of the various factors on his value scale will result in his decision. Let us assume that Robinson has made his decision and, after five days, begins to use the stick. On the sixth day and thereafter, then five hundred berries a day will begin to pour forth, and he will harvest the fruits of his investment in capital goods. Crusoe can use his increased productivity to increase his hours of leisure, as well as to increase his output of berries. Thus, he might decide to cut his daily labor from ten hours to eight. His output of berries will then be increased because of the stick from two hundred to four hundred berries per day, while Crusoe is able to increase his hours of leisure from fourteen to sixteen per day. Obviously, Crusoe can choose to take his increased productivity in various combinations of increased output of the good itself and of increased leisure. In this sense, the stick might be called a labor-saving device, although the terminology is misleading. It is labor-saving only to the extent that the actor chooses to take the increased productivity in the form of leisure. Even more important than its use in increasing output per unit of time is the function of capital in enabling man to acquire goods which he could not at all obtain otherwise. A very short period of production enables Crusoe to produce leisure and at least some berries, but without the aid of capital, he cannot attain any of his other wants at all. To acquire meat, he must have a bow and arrows. To acquire fish, he must have a pole or net. 
To acquire shelter, he must have logs of wood or canvas and an axe to cut the wood. To satisfy any such wants, he must restrict his consumption and invest his labor in the production of capital goods. In other words, he must embark on lengthier processes of production than had been involved in culling berries. He must take time out to produce the capital goods themselves before he can use them to enjoy consumers' goods. In each case, the decisions that he makes in embarking on capital formation will be a result of weighing on his value scale the utility of the expected increased productivity as against the disutility of his time preference for present as compared to future satisfactions. It is obvious that the factor which holds every man back from investing more and more of his land and labor in capital goods is his time preference for present goods. If man, other things being equal, did not prefer satisfaction in the present to satisfaction in the future, he would never consume. He would invest all his time and labor in increasing the production of future goods. But never consuming is an absurdity, since consuming is the end of all production. Therefore, at any given point in time, all men will have invested in all the shorter periods of production to satisfy the most urgently felt wants that their knowledge of recipes allows. Any further formation of capital will go into longer processes of production. Other things being equal, that is, the relative urgency of wants to be satisfied and the actor's knowledge of recipes, any further investment will be in a longer process of production than is now underway. Here it is important to realize that a period of production does not involve only the amount of time spent on making the actual capital good but refers to the amount of waiting time from the start of producing the capital good until the consumer's good is produced. In the case of the stick and the berries, the two times are identical. But this was so only because the stick was a first-order capital good. That is, it was but one stage removed from the output of consumer's goods. Let us take, for example, a more complex case, the building by Crusoe of an axe in order to chop wood to produce a house for himself. Crusoe must decide whether or not the house he will gain will be worth the consumer's goods foregone in the meantime. Let us say it will take Crusoe 50 hours to produce the axe, and then a further 200 hours with the help of the axe to chop and transport wood in order to build a house. The longer process of production which Crusoe must decide upon is now a three-stage one, totaling 250 hours. First, labor and nature produce the axe, a second-order capital good. Second, labor plus the axe plus nature-given elements produces logs of wood, a first-order capital good. Finally, labor and the logs of wood combine to yield the desired consumer's good, a house. 
The length of the process of production is the entire length of time from the point at which an actor must begin his labor to the point at which the consumer's good is yielded. Again, it must be observed that in considering the length of a process of production, the actor is not interested in past history as such. The length of a process of production for an actor is the waiting time from the point at which his action begins. Thus, if Crusoe were lucky enough to find an axe in good condition left by some previous inhabitant, he would reckon his period of production at 200 hours instead of 250. The axe would be given to him by his environment. This example illustrates a fundamental truth about capital goods. Capital is a way station along the road to the enjoyment of consumers' goods. He who possesses capital is that much further advanced in time on the road to the desired consumer's good. Crusoe without the axe is 250 hours away from his desired house. Crusoe with the axe is only 200 hours away. If the logs of wood had been piled up ready-made on his arrival, he would be that much closer to his objective. And if the house were there to begin with, he would achieve his desire immediately. He would be further advanced toward his goal without the necessity of further restriction of consumption. Thus, the role of capital is to advance men in time toward their objective in producing consumers' goods. This is true for both the case where new consumers' goods are being produced and the case where more old goods are being produced. Thus, in the previous case, without the stick, Crusoe was 25 hours away from an output of 500 berries. With the stick, he is only 10 hours away. In those cases where capital enables the acquisition of new goods, of goods which could not be obtained otherwise, it is an absolutely indispensable as well as convenient way station toward the desired consumer's good. It is evident that for any formation of capital there must be saving, a restriction of the enjoyment of consumer's goods in the present, and the investment of the equivalent resources in the production of capital goods. This enjoyment of consumers' goods, the satisfaction of wants, is called consumption. The saving might come about as a result of an increase in the available supply of consumers' goods, which the actor decides to save in part rather than consume fully. At any rate, consumption must always be less than the amount that could be secured. Thus, if the harvest on the desert island improves, and Crusoe finds that he can pick 240 berries in 10 hours without the aid of a stick, he may now save 40 berries a day for five days, enabling him to invest his labor in a stick without cutting back his berry consumption from the original 200 berries. Saving involves the restriction of consumption compared to the amount that could be consumed. It does not always involve an actual reduction in the amount consumed over the previous level of consumption. All capital goods are perishable. 
those few products that are not perishable but permanent become, to all intents and purposes, part of the land. Otherwise, all capital goods are perishable, used up during the processes of production. We can therefore say that capital goods during production are transformed into their products. With some capital goods, this is physically quite evident. Thus, it is obvious, for example, that when 100 pounds of bread at wholesale are combined with other factors to produce 100 pounds of bread at retail, the former factor is immediately and completely transformed into the latter factor. The using up of capital goods is dramatically clear. The whole of the capital good is used up in each production event. The other capital goods, however, are also used up, but not as suddenly. A truck transporting bread may have a life of 15 years, amounting to, say, 3,000 of such conversions of bread from the wholesale to the retail stage. In this case, we may say that one three-thousandth of the truck is used up each time the production process occurs. Similarly, a mill converting wheat into flour may have a useful life of twenty years, in which case we could say that one twentieth of the mill was used up in each year's production of flour. Each particular capital good has a different useful life, and therefore a different rate of being used up, or, as it is called, of depreciation. Capital goods vary in the duration of their serviceableness. Let us now return to Crusoe and the stick. Let us assume that the stick will have a useful life of ten days, and is so estimated by Crusoe, after which it wears out and Crusoe's output reverts to its previous level of 20 berries per hour. He is back where he started. Crusoe is therefore faced with a choice after his stick comes into use. His standard of living, now say at 500 berries a day plus 14 hours of leisure, has improved, and he will not like the prospect of a reduction to 200 when the stick gives out. If he wishes to maintain his standard of living intact, therefore, he must, during the ten days, work on building another stick, which can be used to replace the old one when it wears out. This act of building another stick involves a further act of saving. In order to invest in a replacement for the stick, he must again save restrict his consumption as compared to the production that might be available. Thus, he will again have to save ten hours' worth of labor in berries or leisure, and devote them to investing in a good that is only indirectly serviceable for future production. Suppose that he does this by shifting one hour a day from his berry production to the labor of producing another stick. By doing so, he restricts his berry consumption for 10 days to 450 a day. He has restricted consumption from his maximum, although he is still much better off than in his original unaided state. Thus, the capital structure is renewed at the end of the 10 days by saving and investing in a replacement. 
After that, Crusoe is again faced with the choice of taking his maximum production of 500 berries per day and finding himself back to a 200 per day level at the end of 10 more days, or of making a third act of saving in order to provide for replacement of the second stick when it wears out. It is necessary to emphasize that independent acts of saving are necessary for replacement of goods, since many writers, for example J.B. Clark and Frank H. Knight, tend to assume that once produced, capital, in some mystical way, reproduces itself without further need for acts of saving. If Crusoe decides not to replace the first or the second stick, and accepts a later drop in output to avoid undergoing present saving, he is consuming capital. In other words, he is electing to consume instead of to save and maintain his capital structure and future rate of output. Consuming his capital enables Crusoe to increase his consumption now from 450 to 500 berries per day. But at some point in the future, here in 10 days, he will be forced to cut his consumption back to 200 berries. It is clear that what has led Crusoe to consume capital is his time preference, which in this case has led him to prefer more present consumption to greater losses in future consumption. Thus, any actor at any point in time has the choice of A. Adding to his capital structure, B. Maintaining his capital intact, or C consuming his capital. Choices A and B involve acts of saving. The course adopted will depend on the actor's weighing his disutility of waiting, as determined by his time preference, against the utility to be provided in the future by the increase in his intake of consumer's goods. At this point in the discussion of the wearing out and replacement of capital goods, we may observe that a capital good rarely retains its full powers to aid in production and then suddenly loses all its serviceability. In the words of Professor Benham, capital goods do not usually remain in perfect technical condition and then suddenly collapse like the wonderful one-hoss shea. Crusoe's berry output, instead of remaining 500 for 10 days and then falling back to 200 on the 11th day, is likely to decline at some rate before the stick becomes completely useless. Another method of maintaining capital may now prove available. Thus, Crusoe may find that by spending a little time repairing the stick, breaking off weaker parts, etc., he may be able to prolong its life and maintain his output of berries longer. In short, he may be able to add to his capital structure via repairs. Here again, he will balance the added increase in future output of consumer's goods against the present loss in consumer's goods, which he must endure by expending his labor on repairs. Making repairs therefore requires an independent act of saving and a choice to save. 
It is entirely possible, for example, that Crusoe will decide to replace the stick and spend his labor on that purpose, but will not consider it worthwhile to repair it. Which course he decides to take depends on his valuation of the various alternative outputs and his rate of time preference. An actor's decision on what objects to invest in will depend on the expected utility of the forthcoming consumer's good, its durability, and the length of his waiting time. Thus, he may first invest in a stick, and then decide it would not be worthwhile to invest in a second stick. Instead, it would be better to begin building the axe in order to obtain a house. Or he may first make a bow and arrows with which to hunt game, and after that begin working on a house. Since the marginal utility of the stock of a good declines as the stock increases, the more he has of the stock of one consumer's good, the more likely he will be to expend his new savings on a different consumer's good since the second good will now have a higher marginal utility of product to his invested labor and waiting, and the marginal utility of the first will be lower. If two consumers' goods have the same expected marginal utility in daily serviceability and have the same period of waiting time, but one is more durable than the other, then the actor will choose to invest in production of the former. On the other hand, if the total serviceableness of two expected consumers' goods is the same, and the length of their period of production is the same, the less durable good will be invested in, since its total satisfactions arrive earlier than the other. Also, in choosing between investing in one or the other of two consumers' goods, the actor will, other things being equal, choose that good with the shorter period of production, as has been discussed above. Any actor will continue to save and invest his resources in various expected future consumers' goods as long as the utility, considered in the present, of the marginal product of each unit saved and invested is greater than the utility of present consumers' goods which he could obtain by not performing that saving. The latter utility, of present consumers' goods foregone, is the disutility of waiting. Once the latter becomes greater than the utility of obtaining more goods in the future through saving, the actor will cease to save. Allowing for the relative urgency of wants, man, as has been demonstrated above, tends to invest first in those consumers' goods with the shortest processes of production. Therefore, any given saving will be invested either in maintaining the present capital structure or in adding to it capital in more and more remote stages of production, that is, in longer processes of production. Thus, any new saving beyond maintaining the structure will tend to lengthen production processes and invest in higher and higher orders of capital goods. In a modern economy, the capital structure contains goods of almost infinite remoteness from the eventual consumer's goods. We saw above some of the stages involved in the production of a comparatively very simple good like a ham sandwich, 
The laborer in an iron mine is far removed indeed from the ham sandwich in Joan's armchair. It is evident that the problems of measurement that arose in previous sections would be likely to pose a grave difficulty in saving and investing. How do actors know when their capital structure is being added to or consumed, when the types of capital goods and consumers' goods are numerous? Obviously, Crusoe knows when he has more or fewer berries, but how can a modern complex economy with innumerable capital goods and consumers' goods make such decisions? The answer to this problem, which also rests on the commensurability of different goods, will be discussed in later chapters. In observing the increased output made possible by the use of capital goods, one may very easily come to attribute some sort of independent productive power to capital, and to say that three types of productive forces enter into the production of consumers' goods, labor, nature, and capital. It would be easy to draw this conclusion, but completely fallacious. Capital goods have no independent productive power of their own. In the last analysis, they are completely reducible to labor and land, which produce them, and time. Capital goods are stored-up labor, land, and time. They are intermediate way stations on the road to the eventual attainment of the consumer's goods into which they are transformed. At every step of the way, they must be worked on by labor, in conjunction with nature, in order to continue the process of production. Capital is not an independent productive factor like the other two. An excellent illustration of this truth has been provided by Bermbaverk. The following analogy will make it perfectly clear. A man throws a stone at another man and kills him. Has the stone killed the man? If the question is put without laying any special emphasis, it may be answered without hesitation in the affirmative. But how if the murderer on his trial were to defend himself by saying that it was not he, but the stone, that had killed the man? Taking the words in this sense, should we still say that the stone had killed the man and acquit the murderer? Now it is with an emphasis like this that economists inquire as to the independent productivity of capital. We are not asking about dependent intermediate causes, but about ultimate independent elements. The question is not whether capital plays a part in the bringing about of a productive result, such as the stone does in the killing of the man but whether, granted the productive result, some part of it is due to capital so entirely and peculiarly that it simply cannot be put to the credit of the two other recognized elementary factors, nature and labor. Bermbaverk replies in the negative, pointing out that capital goods are purely way stations in the process of production, worked on at every possible stage by the forces of labor and land. If today, by allying my labor with natural powers, I make bricks out of clay, and tomorrow, by allying my labor with natural gifts, I obtain lime, and the day after that make mortar and so construct a wall, can it be said of any part of the wall that I and the natural powers have not made it? 
Again, before a lengthy piece of work, such as the building of a house, is quite finished, it naturally must be, at one time, a fourth finished, then a half finished, then three-quarters finished. What now would be said if one were to describe these inevitable stages of the work as independent requisites of house-building, and maintain that for the building of a house we require, besides building materials and labor, a quarter-finished house, a half-finished house, a three-quarters-finished house. In form, perhaps, it is less striking, but in effect it is not a whit more correct to elevate those intermediate steps in the progress of the work, which outwardly take the shape of capital, into an independent agent of production by the side of nature and labor. And this holds true regardless of how many stages are involved or how remote the capital good is from the ultimate consumer's good. Since investment in capital goods involves looking toward the future, one of the risks that an actor must always cope with is the uncertainty of future conditions. Producing consumers' goods directly involves a very short period of production, so that the uncertainty incurred is not nearly as great as the uncertainty of longer processes of production, an uncertainty that becomes more and more important as the period of production lengthens. This uncertainty is a subjective feeling, hunch, or estimate, and cannot be measured in any way. The efforts of many popular writers to apply mathematical probability theory to the uncertainty of future historical events are completely vain. Suppose that Crusoe, while deciding on his investment in the stick, believes that there is a good possibility of his finding a grove where berries are in abundance, giving him an output of fifty or more berries per hour without the aid of a stick and also where the berries would be so close as to render the stick useless. In that case, the more likely he thinks are the chances of finding the grove, the less likely he is to make the decision to invest in the stick, which would then be of no help to him. The greater the doubt about the usefulness the stick will have after it is ready, the less likelihood of investing in it, and the more likelihood of either investing in another good or of consuming instead of saving. We can consider that there is a sort of uncertainty discount on the expected future utility of the investment that may be so large as to induce the actor not to make the investment. The uncertainty factor in this case works with the time preference factor to the disadvantage of the investment, against which the actor balances the expected utility of future output. On the other hand, uncertainty may work as an added spur to making the investment. Thus, suppose that Crusoe believes that a blight may strike the berries very shortly, and that if this happens, his unaided berry output would dangerously decline. If the blight struck, Crusoe would be in great need of the stick to even maintain his output at the present low level. Thus, the possibility that the stick may be of even greater use to him than he anticipates will add to the expected utility of his investment, and the greater the chance of this possibility in Crusoe's view, the more likely he will be to invest in the stick. 
Thus, the uncertainty factor may work in either direction, depending on the specific situation involved. We may explain the entire act of deciding whether or not to perform an act of capital formation as the balancing of relative utilities, discounted by the actor's rate of time preference and also by the uncertainty factor. Thus, first, let us assume, for purposes of simplification, that Crusoe, in making the stick, forgoes ten hours' worth of present goods, that is, two hundred berries, and has acquired fifteen hundred berries three days later as a result of the investment decision. If the fifteen hundred berries had been immediately available, there would be no doubt that he would have given up two hundred berries to acquire fifteen hundred. Thus, 1,500 berries in the present might have a rank of 4 on his value scale, while 200 berries have a rank of 11. Now, how will Crusoe decide between 200 berries in the present and 1,500 berries three days from now? Since all choices have to be made on one value scale, Crusoe must grade the utility of 1,500 berries three days from now as against the utility of 200 berries now. If the former is greater, higher on his value scale, he will make the decision to save and invest in the stick. If the latter is greater, and his 200 berries foregone have a greater value than the expectation of 1,500 berries three days from now, then his time preference has conquered the increased utility of stock, and he will not make the saving investment decision. Thus, the actor's value scale may be, in case A, 4, 1,500 berries in the present, 11, 200 berries now, 12, 1,500 berries three days from now. Or it may be, in case B, 4, 1,500 berries in the present, 9, 1,500 berries three days from now, 11, 200 berries now. In case B, he will make the decision to invest. In case A, he will not. We can say that the value of 1,500 berries three days from now is the present value of the future good. The expected future good is discounted by the actor according to his rate of time preference. The present value of his expected future good is compared to the present value of the present good on the actor's value scale, and the decision to save and invest is made accordingly. It is clear that the higher the rate of discount, the lower the present value of the future good will be, and the greater the likelihood of abstaining from the investment. On the other hand, the lower the rate of discount, the higher the present value of future goods will be on the actor's value scale, and the greater the likelihood of its being greater than the value of present goods foregone, and hence of his making the investment. Thus, the investment decision will be determined by which is greater, the present value of the future good or the present value of present goods foregone. The present value of the future good, in turn, is determined by the value that the future good would have if immediately present, say, the expected future value of the future good, and by the rate of time preference. 
the greater the former, the greater will be the present value of the future good. The greater the latter, the rate of discount of future compared to present goods, the lower the present value. At any point in time, an actor has a range of investment decisions open to him of varying potential utilities for the products that will be provided. That such a range of investment decisions enabling him to achieve greater future output must always be open to him is a fundamental truth derived from the assumption of human action. If they were not open to him, it would mean that man could not, or rather believed that he could not, act to improve his lot, and therefore there would be no possibility of action. Since we cannot even conceive of human existence without action, it follows that investment opportunities are always available. Every actor also has a certain rate of time preference by which he will discount these expected future utilities to their present value. How much he will save and invest in any period will be determined by comparing these present values with the value of the consumer's goods foregone in making the investment decision. As he makes one investment decision after another, he will choose to allocate his resources first to investments of highest present value, then to those of next highest, etc. As he continues investing at any given time, the present value of the future utilities will decline. On the other hand, since he is giving up a larger and larger supply of consumer's goods in the present, the utility of the consumer's goods that he forgoes, leisure and others, will increase on the basis of the law of marginal utility. He will cease saving and investing at the point at which the value of goods foregone exceeds the present value of the future utilities to be derived. This will determine an actor's rate of saving and investing at any time. It is evident that the problem again arises. How can actors decide and compare time preference rates for innumerable possible goods and in a complex modern economy? And here, too, the answer for a complex economy lies in establishing commensurability among all the various commodities, present and future, as will be discussed in later chapters. Now, the uncertainty factors enter into the actor's decision in one way or the other. The delicate procedure of weighing all the various factors in the situation is a complex process that takes place in the mind of every actor according to his understanding of the situation. It is a decision depending purely on the individual judgment, the subjective estimates of each actor. The best decision cannot be exactly or quantitatively decided upon in advance by objective methods. This process of forecasting the future conditions that will occur during the course of his action is one that must be engaged in by every actor. This necessity of guessing the course of the relevant conditions and their possible change during the forthcoming action is called the act of entrepreneurship. Thus, to some extent at least, every man is an entrepreneur. Every actor makes his estimate of the uncertainty situation with regard to his forthcoming action.
The concepts of success or failure in entrepreneurship are thus deducible from the existence of action. The relatively successful entrepreneur is the one who has guessed correctly the changes in conditions to take place during the action and has invested accordingly. He is the Crusoe who has decided not to build the stick because his judgment tells him that he will soon find a new grove of berries which he then finds. On the other hand, the relatively unsuccessful entrepreneur is the one who has been badly mistaken in his forecast of the relevant changes in conditions taking place during the course of his action. He is the Crusoe who has failed to provide himself with a stick against the blight. The successful actor, the successful entrepreneur, makes correct estimates. The unsuccessful entrepreneur is the one who makes erroneous estimates. Suppose now that an investment has already been made, and capital goods have already been built with a goal in view, when changing conditions reveal that an error has been made. The actor is then faced with the problem of determining what to do with the capital good. The answer depends on the convertibility of the capital good. If the good becomes worthless in the use for which it is intended, the actor, though having made an error in investing in it in the first place, now has it on his hands and has to make the best of it. If there is another use to which the actor can conveniently transfer the capital good, he will do so. Thus, if Crusoe finds that a new grove has rendered his stick useless for berry picking, he may use it as a walking stick. He would not have invested in it originally if he had known it would be useless for berry picking, but now that he has it, he turns it to its most urgent available use. On the other hand, he may feel that it is hardly worthwhile to spend time replacing the stick now that it is usable only for walking purposes. Or, after working fifty hours and building an axe, he may find a house left by some previous inhabitant. The axe, however, may be convertible to use in something just a bit lower in value, say building a bow and arrows for hunting or building a boat for fishing. The axe may be so valuable in these uses that Crusoe will still work to replace and maintain it in operation. It is clear that the accumulated stock of capital goods, or for that matter durable consumers' goods, imposes a conservative force on present-day action. The actor in the present is influenced by his or someone else's actions in the past, even if the latter were to some extent in error. Thus Crusoe might find an axe already available, built by a previous inhabitant. It might not be the sort of axe that Crusoe would consider the best available, however, he may decide if it is a serviceable axe to use it as a capital good, and to wait until it wears out before replacing it with one of his choosing. On the other hand, he may feel that it is so blunt as to be of little use, and begin immediately to work on an axe of his own. The conservatism of the past exercises a similar influence on the question of location, another aspect of the same problem. Thus Crusoe may already have built his house, cleared a field, etc., in one portion of the island. 
Then one day, in walking around the island, he might find a section at the other end with far greater advantages in fishing, fruits, etc. If he had not invested in any capital goods or durable consumer's goods, he would immediately shift his location to this more abundant area. However, he has already invested in certain capital goods. Some, such as the axe, are easily convertible to the new location. Others, such as the cleared field and the house, cannot be converted in their location. Therefore, he has to decide on his value scale between the advantages and disadvantages of moving, the more abundant fish and fruits versus the necessity of working to build a new house, make a new clearing, etc., he might decide, for example, to stay in the house and clearing until they have worn down to a certain point without working on a replacement, and then shift to the new location. If an actor decides to abandon non-convertible capital, such as the stick or the cleared field, in favor of producing other capital and consumers' goods, he is not, as some may think, wasting his resources by allowing the emergence of unused capacity of his resources. When Crusoe abandons his clearing or stick or house, which may be considered in this connection as equivalent to capital, he is abandoning non-convertible capital for the sake of using his labor in combination with natural elements or capital goods that he believes will yield him a greater utility. Similarly, if he refuses to go deep into a jungle for berries, he is not wasting his non-convertible supply of land and berries, for he judges doing so of far less utility than other uses that he could make of his labor and time. The existence of a capital good not in use reveals an error made by this or by some previous actor in the past but indicates that the actor expects to acquire a greater utility from other uses of his labor than he could obtain by continuing the capital good in its originally intended use or by converting it to some other use. This discussion provides the clue to an analysis of how actors will employ the original nature-given factors of production, in many cases, actors have their choice among the varying elements provided by nature. Thus, suppose that Crusoe, in his explorations of the island, finds that among the possible locations where he can settle, some are abundant in their output of berries, setting aside their production of other consumers' goods, some less so, and some useless and barren. Clearly, other considerations being equal, he will settle on the most fertile, the best land, and employ this factor as far as is determined by the utility of its product, the possibility of investing in useful capital goods on the land, the value he places on leisure, etc. The poorer areas of land will remain unused. As stated above, this development is to be expected. There is no reason to be surprised at such evidence of unused resources. On the other hand, if the better areas are used up, then Crusoe will go on to utilize some of the next best areas, until the utility of the supply produced fails to exceed the utility of his leisure foregone. 
Next best includes all the relevant factors, such as productivity, convenient access to the best land, etc. Areas of potential use, but which the actor chooses not to bring into use because it would not pay in terms of utilities foregone, are called submarginal areas. They are not objects of action at the moment, but the actor has them in mind for possible future use. On the other hand, Crusoe's Island may be so small or so barren that all his available useful land or water areas must be pressed into use. Thus, Crusoe might have to explore the whole island for his daily output of 200 berries. In that case, if his resources are such that he must always employ all the possibly useful nature-given factors, it is obvious that the actor is pretty close to the bare survival level. In those cases where nature-given factors are worked on, improved, and maintained by human labor, these are, in effect, thereby changed into capital goods. Thus, land that has been cleared, tilled, plowed, etc. by human labor has become a capital good. This land is a produced good and not an originally given good. Decisions concerning whether and how much to improve the soil or whether to maintain it or extract the maximum present consumer's goods at the expense of future losses, erosion, are on exactly the same footing as all capital formation decisions. They depend on a comparison of the expected utility of future production as against the utility of present consumer's goods foregone. It is clear that capital formation and the concomitant lengthening of the period of production prolong the period of provision of the actor. Capital formation lengthens the period in the future for which he is providing for the satisfaction of wants. Action involves the anticipation of wants that will be felt in the future, an estimate of their relative urgency, and the setting about to satisfy them. The more capital men invest, the longer their period of provision will tend to be. Goods being directly and presently consumed are present goods. A future good is the present expectation of enjoying a consumer's good at some point in the future. A future good may be a claim on future consumer's goods, or it may be a capital good, which will be transformed into a consumer's good in the future. Since a capital good is a way station, and nature-given factors are original stations on the route to consumer's goods, capital goods and nature-given factors are both future goods. Similarly, the period of provision can be prolonged by lengthening the duration of serviceableness of the consumer's goods being produced. A house has a longer durability than a crop of berries, for example, and Crusoe's investment in a house considerably lengthens his period of provision. A durable consumer's good is consumed only partially from day to day, so that each day's consumption is that of a present good, while the stock of the remainder is a future good. Thus, if a house is built and will last 3,000 days, one day's use will consume one three-thousandth of it, while the remainder will be consumed in the future. 
one three-thousandth of the house is a present good, while the remaining part is a future good. It may be added that another method of lengthening the period of production is the simple accumulation of stocks of consumers' goods to be consumed in the future instead of the present. For example, Crusoe might save a stock of 100 berries to be consumed a few days or a week later. This is often called plain saving, as distinguished from capitalist saving, in which saving enters into the process of capital formation. Plain saving is not to be confused with an earlier example, when Crusoe saved stocks of consumers' goods to be consumed while devoting his labor to the production of capital. We shall see, however, that there is no essential difference between the two types of saving, and that plain saving is also capitalist saving in that it, too, results in capital formation— we must keep in mind the vital fact that the concept of a good refers to a thing the units of which the actor believes afford equal serviceability. It does not refer to the physical or chemical characteristics of the good. We remember our critique of the popular fallacious objection to the universal fact of time preference, that in any given winter, ice the next summer is preferred to ice now. This was not a case of preferring the consumption of the same good in the future to its consumption in the present. If Crusoe has a stock of ice in the winter and decides to save some until next summer, this means that ice in the summer is a different good, with a different intensity of satisfaction from ice in the winter, despite their physical similarities. The case of berries or of any other good is similar. If Crusoe decides to postpone consuming a portion of his stock of berries, this must mean that this portion will have a greater intensity of satisfaction if consumed later than now, enough greater, in fact, to overcome his time preference for the present. The reasons for such difference may be numerous, involving anticipated tastes and conditions of supply on that future date. At any rate, berries eaten a week from now become a more highly valued good than berries eaten now, and the number of berries that will be shifted from today's to next week's consumption will be determined by the behavior of the diminishing marginal utility of next week's berries as the supply increases. The increasing marginal utility of today's berries as the supply decreases, and the rate of time preference. Suppose that, as a resultant of these factors, Crusoe decides to shift 100 berries for this purpose. In that case, these 100 berries are removed from the category of consumers' goods and shifted to that of capital goods. These are the sort of capital goods, however, which, like wine, need only maturing time to be transferred into consumers' goods, without the expenditure of labor, except the possible extra labor of storing and unstoring the berries. It is clear, therefore, that the accumulation of a stock of consumers' goods is also saving that goes into capital formation. The period of production will be equal to the time difference between the act of saving and the act of future consumption, as in all other cases of investment. 
The saved goods immediately become capital goods, which later mature into more highly valued consumers' goods. There is no essential difference between the two types of saving. 10. Action as an Exchange We have stated that all action involves an exchange a giving up of a state of affairs for what the actor expects will be a more satisfactory state. We may now elaborate on the implications of this truth, in the light of the numerous examples that have been given in this chapter. Every aspect of action has involved a choice among alternatives, a giving up of some goods for the sake of acquiring others. Wherever the choice occurred, whether among uses of durable consumers' goods or of capital goods, saving versus consumption, labor versus leisure, etc. Such choices among alternatives, such renouncing of one thing in favor of another, were always present. In each case, the actor adopted the course that he believed would afford him the highest utility on his value scale, and in each case the actor gave up what he believed would turn out to be a lesser utility. Before analyzing the range of alternative choices further, it is necessary to emphasize that man must always act. Since he is always in a position to improve his lot, even doing nothing is a form of acting. Doing nothing, or spending all of his time in leisure, is a choice that will affect his supply of consumer's goods. Therefore, man must always be engaged in choosing and in action. Since man is always acting, he must always be engaged in trying to attain the greatest height on his value scale, whatever the type of choice under consideration. There must always be room for improvement in his value scale. Otherwise, all of man's wants would be perfectly satisfied, and action would disappear. Since this cannot be the case, it means that there is always open to each actor the prospect of improving his lot, of attaining a value higher than he is giving up, that is, of making a psychic profit. What he is giving up may be called his costs, that is, the utilities that he is foregoing in order to attain a better position, Thus, an actor's costs are his foregone opportunities to enjoy consumer's goods. Similarly, the greater utility that he expects to acquire because of the action may be considered his psychic income or psychic revenue, which in turn will be equal to the utility of the goods he will consume as a result of the action. Hence, at the inauguration of any action, the actor will believe that this course of action will, among the alternatives, maximize his psychic income or psychic revenue, that is, attain the greatest height on his value scale. Appendix A. Praxeology and Economics this chapter has been an exposition of part of praxeological analysis, the analysis that forms the body of economic theory. This analysis takes as its fundamental premise the existence of human action. 
Once it is demonstrated that human action is a necessary attribute of the existence of human beings, the rest of praxeology and its subdivision, economic theory, consists of the elaboration of the logical implications of the concept of action. Economic analysis is of the form 1. Assert A. Action axiom. 2. If A, then B. If B, then C, if C, then D, etc., by rules of logic. 3. Therefore we assert the truth of B, C, D, etc. It is important to realize that economics does not propound any laws about the content of man's ends. The examples that we have given, such as ham sandwich, berries, etc., are simply illustrative instances, and are not meant to assert anything about the content of a man's goals at any given time. The concept of action involves the use of scarce means for satisfying the most urgent wants at some point in the future and the truths of economic theory involve the formal relations between ends and means, and not their specific contents. A man's ends may be egoistic or altruistic, refined or vulgar. They may emphasize the enjoyment of material goods and comforts, or they may stress the ascetic life. Economics is not concerned with their content— and its laws apply regardless of the nature of these ends. Praxeology, therefore, differs from psychology or from the philosophy of ethics. Since all these disciplines deal with the subjective decisions of individual human minds, many observers have believed that they are fundamentally identical. This is not the case at all. Psychology and ethics deal with the content of human ends. They ask, why does the man choose such and such ends, or what ends should men value? Praxeology and economics deal with any given ends, and with the formal implications of the fact that men have ends and employ means to attain them. Praxeology and economics are therefore disciplines separate and distinct from the others. Thus, all explanations of the law of marginal utility on psychological or physiological grounds are erroneous. For example, many writers have based the law of marginal utility on an alleged law of the satiation of wants, according to which a man can eat so many scoops of ice cream at one time, etc., and then become satiated. Whether or not this is true in psychology is completely irrelevant to economics. These writers erroneously concluded that, at the beginning of the supply, a second unit may be more enjoyable than the first, and therefore that marginal utility may increase at first before declining. This is completely fallacious. The law of marginal utility depends on no physiological or psychological assumptions, but is based on the praxeological truth that the first unit of a good will be used to satisfy the most urgent want, the second unit the next most urgent want, etc. It must be remembered that these units must be of equal potential serviceability. For example, it is erroneous to argue as follows. 
eggs are the good in question. It is possible that a man needs four eggs to bake a cake. In that case, the second egg may be used for a less urgent use than the first egg, and the third egg for a less urgent use than the second. However, since the fourth egg allows a cake to be produced that would not otherwise be available, the marginal utility of the fourth egg is greater than that of the third egg. This argument neglects the fact that a good is not the physical material, but any material whatever of which the units will constitute an equally serviceable supply. Since the fourth egg is not equally serviceable and interchangeable with the first egg, the two eggs are not units of the same supply, and therefore the law of marginal utility does not apply to this case at all. To treat eggs in this case as homogeneous units of one good, it would be necessary to consider each set of four eggs as a unit. To sum up the relationship and the distinctions between praxeology and each of the other disciplines, we may describe them as follows. Why man chooses various ends. Psychology. What men's ends should be. Philosophy of ethics. Also, philosophy of aesthetics. How to use means to arrive at ends. Technology. What man's ends are and have been, and how man has used means in order to attain them. History. The formal implications of the fact that men use means to attain various chosen ends. Praxeology. What is the relationship between praxeology and economic analysis? Economics is a subdivision of praxeology, so far the only fully elaborated subdivision. With praxeology as the general formal theory of human action, economics includes the analysis of the action of an isolated individual, Crusoe economics and, especially elaborate, the analysis of interpersonal exchange, catalactics. The rest of praxeology is an unexplored area. Attempts have been made to formulate a logical theory of war and violent action, and violence in the form of government has been treated by political philosophy and by praxeology in tracing the effects of violent intervention in the free market. A theory of games has been elaborated, and interesting beginnings have been made in a logical analysis of voting. The suggestion has been made that since praxeology and economics are logical chains of reasoning based on a few universally known premises, to be really scientific it should be elaborated according to the symbolic notations of mathematical logic. This represents a curious misconception of the role of mathematical logic, or logistics. In the first place, it is the great quality of verbal propositions that each one is meaningful. On the other hand, algebraic and logical symbols, as used in logistics, are not in themselves meaningful. Praxeology asserts the action axiom as true, and from this, together with a few empirical axioms, such as the existence of a variety of resources and individuals, are deduced, by the rules of logical inference, all the propositions of economics, each one of which is verbal and meaningful. 
If the logistic array of symbols were used, each proposition would not be meaningful. Logistics, therefore, is far more suited to the physical sciences, where, in contrast to the science of human action, the conclusions, rather than the axioms, are known. In the physical sciences, the premises are only hypothetical, and logical deductions are made from them. In these cases, there is no purpose in having meaningful propositions at each step of the way, and therefore symbolic and mathematical language is more useful. Simply to develop economics verbally, then to translate into logistic symbols, and finally to retranslate the propositions back into English, makes no sense and violates the fundamental scientific principle of Occam's razor, which calls for the greatest possible simplicity in science and the avoidance of unnecessary multiplication of entities or processes. Contrary to what might be believed, the use of verbal logic is not inferior to logistics. On the contrary, the latter is merely an auxiliary device based on the former for formal logic deals with the necessary and fundamental laws of thought, which must be verbally expressed, and logistics is only a symbolic system that uses this formal verbal logic as its foundation. Therefore, praxeology and economics need not be apologetic in the slightest for the use of verbal logic, the fundamental basis of symbolic logic, and meaningful at each step of the route. Appendix B. On Means and Ends It is often charged that any theory grounded on a logical separation of means and ends is unrealistic, because the two are often amalgamated or fused into one. Yet if man acts purposively, he therefore drives toward ends, and whatever route he takes, he must, ipso facto, employ means to achieve them. The distinction between means and ends is a necessary logical distinction rooted in all human, indeed, all purposive action. It is difficult to see the sense in any denial of this primordial truth, the only sense to the charge concerns those cases where certain objects, or rather, certain roots of action, become ends in themselves, as well as means to other ends. This, of course, can often happen. There is no difficulty, however, in incorporating them into an analysis, as has been done above. Thus, a man may work at a certain job not only for the pay, but also because he enjoys the work or the location. Moreover, any desire for money is a desire for a means to other ends. The critics of praxeology confuse the necessary and eternal separation of ends and means as categories with their frequent coincidence in a particular concrete resource or course of action. Chapter 2. Direct Exchange 1. Types of Interpersonal Action Violence The analysis in Chapter 1 was based on the logical implications of the assumption of action, and its results hold true for all human action. 
The application of these principles was confined, however, to Crusoe economics, where the actions of isolated individuals are considered by themselves. In these situations, there are no interactions between persons. Thus, the analysis could easily and directly be applied to n number of isolated Crusoes on n islands or other isolated areas. The next task is to apply and extend the analysis to consider interactions between individual human beings. Let us suppose that Crusoe eventually finds that another individual, say Jackson, has also been living an isolated existence at the other end of the island. What types of interaction may now take place between them? One type of action is violence. Thus, Crusoe may entertain a vigorous hatred toward Jackson and decide to murder or otherwise injure him. In that case, Crusoe would gain his end, murder of Jackson, by committing violence. Or Crusoe may decide that he would like to expropriate Jackson's house and collection of furs and murder Jackson as a means to that end. In either case, the result is that Crusoe gains in satisfaction at the expense of Jackson, who, to say the least, suffers great psychic loss. Fundamentally similar is action based on a threat of violence or intimidation. Thus, Crusoe may hold up Jackson at the point of a knife and rob him of his accumulated furs and provisions. Both examples are cases of violent action and involve gain for one at the expense of another. The following factors, singly or in combination, might work to induce Crusoe or Jackson to refrain from any violent action against the other. 1. He may feel that the use of violence against any other human being is immoral. That is, that refraining from violence against another person is an end in itself, whose rank in his value scale is higher than that of any advantages in the form of capital or consumer's goods that he might gain from such action. 2. He may decide that instituting violent action might well establish an unwelcome precedent, causing the other person to take up arms against him, so that he may end by being the victim instead of the victor. If he begins a type of action where one must gain at the expense of another, then he must face the fact that he might turn out to be the loser as a result of the action. 3. Even if he feels that his violent action eventually will result in victory over the other, he may conclude that the costs of the war would exceed his net gain from the victory. Thus, the disutility of time and labor energy spent in fighting the war, war may be defined as violent action used by two or more opponents, in accumulating weapons for the war, capital goods for war uses, etc., might in prospect outweigh the spoils of conquest. 4. Even if Crusoe feels reasonably certain of victory and believes that the costs of fighting will be far less than the utility of his spoils of victory, this short-run gain may well be outweighed in his decision by long-run losses. Thus his conquest of Jackson's furs and house may add to his satisfaction for a while after the period of production, that is, preparing for the war plus the length of time of the war itself. 
but after a time his house will decay and his furs will become worthless. He may then conclude that by his murder of Jackson he has lost permanently many services which Jackson's continued existence might have furnished. This might be companionship or other types of consumers or capital goods. How Jackson might have served Crusoe without resort to violence will be indicated below, but at any rate, Crusoe may be detained from using violence by estimating the disutility of the long-run consequences more highly than the utility of the expected short-run gains. On the other hand, his time preference may be so high as to cause his short-run gains to override the long-run losses in his decision. It is possible that Crusoe may institute violent action without taking into consideration the costs of the war or the long-run consequences, in which case his actions will turn out to be erroneous. That is, the means he used were not the appropriate ones to maximize his psychic revenue. Instead of murdering his opponent, Crusoe might find it more useful to enslave him, and under continual threat of violence to force Jackson to agree to expend his labor for the satisfaction of Crusoe's wants rather than his own. Under slavery, the master treats the slaves as he does his livestock, horses, and other animals, using them as factors of production to gratify his wants, and feeding, housing them, etc., just enough to enable them to continue in the master's service. It is true that the slave agrees to this arrangement, but this agreement is the result of a choice between working for the master and injury through violence. Labor under these conditions is qualitatively different from labor not under the threat of violence, and may be called compulsory labor as compared to free labor or voluntary labor. If Jackson agrees to continue working as a slave under Crusoe's dictates, it does not mean that Jackson is an enthusiastic advocate of his own slavery. It simply means that Jackson does not believe that revolt against his master will better his condition because of the costs of the revolt in terms of possible violence inflicted on him, the labor of preparing and fighting, etc., the argument that the slave might be an enthusiastic supporter of the system because of the food, etc., provided by his master, ignores the fact that, in that case, violence and the threat of violence by the master would not be necessary. Jackson would simply voluntarily place himself in Crusoe's service, and this arrangement would not be slavery, but another type, considered in the next section. It is true that man, being what he is, cannot absolutely guarantee lifelong service to another under a voluntary arrangement. Thus Jackson, at present, might agree to labor under Crusoe's direction for life in return for food, clothing, etc., but he cannot guarantee that he will not change his mind at some point in the future and decide to leave. In this sense, a man's own person and will is inalienable, that is, cannot be given up to someone else for any future period. Such an arrangement is not a guarantee of security of provisions, since no one can guarantee a steady supply of such goods. 
It simply means that A believes that B is better able to furnish a supply of these goods than he is himself. It is clear that the slave is always worse off than he would be without the threat of violence by the master, and therefore that the master always gains at the expense of the slave. The interpersonal relation under slavery is known as hegemonic. The relationship is one of command and obedience, the commands being enforced by threats of violence. The master uses the slaves as instruments, as factors of production, for gratifying his wants. Thus slavery, or hegemony, is defined as a system in which one must labor under the orders of another under the threat of violence. Under hegemony, the man who does the obeying, the slave, serf, ward, or subject, makes only one choice among two alternatives— one, to subject himself to the master or dictator, or two, to revolt against the regime of violence by use of his own violence, or by refusing to obey orders. If he chooses the first course, he submits himself to the hegemonic ruler, and all the other decisions and actions are made by that ruler. The subject chooses once in choosing to obey the ruler. The other choices are made by the ruler." The subject acts as a passive factor of production for use by the master. After that one act of continual choice made by the slave, he engages in coerced or compulsory labor, and the dictator alone is free to choose and act. Violent action may result in the following developments. A. Inconclusive fighting, with neither opponent the victor in which case the war may continue intermittently for a long period of time, or violent action may cease and peace be established, the absence of war. b. The victor may kill the victim, in which case there is no further interpersonal action between the two. c. The victor may simply rob the victim and leave to return to isolation, or perhaps with intermittent violent forays or d. The victor may establish a continuing hegemonic tyranny over the victim by threats of violence. In course a, the violent action has proved abortive and erroneous. In b, there is no further interpersonal interaction. In c, there is an alternation between robbery and isolation, and in d, a continuing hegemonic bond is established. Of these results, only in D has a continuing pattern of interpersonal relationship been constituted. These relations are compulsory, involving the following coerced exchanges. The slaves are treated as factors of production in exchange for food and other provisions. The masters acquire factors of production in exchange for supplying the provisions. Any continuing pattern of interpersonal exchanges is called a society, and it is clear that a society has been established only in case D. There is, of course, no judgment at this point concerning whether the establishment of a society, or such a society, is a good, bad, or indifferent development. In the case of Crusoe's enslavement of Jackson, the society established is a totally hegemonic one. 
The term society, then, denotes a pattern of interpersonal exchanges among human beings. It is obviously absurd to treat society as real with some independent force of its own. There is no reality to society apart from the individuals who compose it, and whose actions determine the type of social pattern that will be established. We have seen in Chapter 1 that all action is an exchange, and we may now divide exchanges into two categories. One is autistic exchange. Autistic exchange consists of any exchange that does not involve some form of interpersonal exchange of services. Thus, all of isolated Crusoe's exchanges were autistic. On the other hand, the case of slavery did involve interpersonal exchange, in which each gives up some goods in order to acquire other goods from the other. In this form of compulsory exchange, however, only the ruler benefits from the exchange, since he is the only one who makes it of his own free choice. Since he must impose the threat of violence in order to induce the subject to make the exchange, it is clear that the latter loses by the exchange. The master uses the subject as a factor of production for his own profit at the latter's expense, and this hegemonic relationship may be called exploitation. Under hegemonic exchange, the ruler exploits the subject for the ruler's benefit. This system has sometimes been called compulsory cooperation, but we prefer to limit the term cooperation to the result of voluntary choices. 2. Types of Interpersonal Action Voluntary Exchange and the Contractual Society From this point on, we shall develop an analysis of the workings of a society based purely on voluntary action, entirely unhampered by violence or threats of violence. We shall examine interpersonal actions that are purely voluntary and have no trace of hegemonic relations. Then, after working out the laws of the unhampered market, we shall trace the nature and results of hegemonic relations, of actions based on violence or the threat of violence. We shall note the various effects of violent interference with voluntary actions, and shall consider the consequences of approaches to a regime of total hegemony, of pure slavery or subjection. At present, we shall confine our discussion to an analysis of actions unhampered by the existence of violence of man against man. The major form of voluntary interaction is voluntary interpersonal exchange. A gives up a good to B in exchange for a good that B gives up to A. The essence of the exchange is that both people make it because they expect that it will benefit them. Otherwise, they would not have agreed to the exchange. A necessary condition for an exchange to take place is that the two goods have reverse valuations on the respective value scales of the two parties to the exchange. Thus, suppose A and B are the two exchangers, and A gives B good X in exchange for good Y. In order for this exchange to take place, the following must have been their value scales before making the exchange. To person A, 
good Y outranks good X. To person B, good X outranks good Y. A possesses good X and B possesses good Y, and each evaluates the good of the other more highly than his own. After the exchange is made, both A and B have shifted to a higher position on their respective value scales. Thus, the conditions for an exchange to take place are that the goods are valued in reverse order by the two parties, and that each of the parties knows of the existence of the other and the goods that he possesses. Without knowledge of the other person's assets, no exchange of these assets could take place. It is clear that the things that must be exchanged are goods, which will be useful to the receiving party. The goods may be present or future goods, or claims to future goods, which may be considered as equivalent to future goods. They may be capital goods or consumers' goods, labor or nature-given factors. At any rate, the objects of an exchange must be scarce means to human ends, since if they were available in abundance for all, they would be general conditions of human welfare and not objects of human action. If something were a general condition of human welfare, there would be no need to give something up to acquire it, and it would not become the object of exchange. If the goods in question are unique goods with a supply of one unit, then the problem of when exchanges will or will not be made is a simple one. If A has a vase and B a typewriter, if each knows of the other's asset, and if A values the typewriter more highly and B values the vase more highly, there will be an exchange. If, on the other hand, either A or B values whatever he has more highly than what the other has, then an exchange will not take place. Similarly, an exchange will not take place if either party has no knowledge that the other party has a vase or a typewriter. On the other hand, if the goods are available in supplies of homogeneous units, the problem becomes more complex. Here, in determining how far exchanges of the two goods will go, the law of marginal utility becomes the decisive factor. Strictly, the law of marginal utility is also applicable to the case where the supply is only one unit, and we can say that, in the example above, exchange will take place if, for A, the marginal utility of good Y is greater than the marginal utility of good X, and vice versa for B. If Jones and Smith have certain quantities of units of goods X and Y in their possession, then in order for Jones to trade one unit of X for one unit of Y, the following conditions have to be met. To Jones, the marginal utility of the added unit of Y must be greater than the marginal utility of the unit of X given up and to Smith, the marginal utility of the added unit of X must be greater than the marginal utility of the unit of Y given up. The marginal utilities of the goods to Jones and to Smith are, of course, not comparable, since they cannot be measured, and the two value scales cannot be reduced to one measure or scale. 
However, as Jones continues to exchange with Smith units of X for units of Y, the marginal utility of X to Jones increases because of the law of marginal utility. Furthermore, the marginal utility of the added unit of Y continues to decrease as Jones' stock of Y increases because of the operation of this law. Eventually, therefore, Jones will reach a point where, in any further exchange of X for Y, the marginal utility of X will be greater than the marginal utility of the added unit of Y, so that he will make no further exchange. Furthermore, Smith is in a similar position. As he continues to exchange Y for X, for him, the marginal utility of Y increases, and the marginal utility of the added unit of X decreases, with the operation of the law of marginal utility. He, too, will eventually reach a point where a further exchange will lower rather than raise his position on his value scale, so that he will decline to make any further exchange. Since it takes two to make a bargain, Jones and Smith will exchange units of X for units of Y until one of them reaches a point beyond which further exchange will lead to loss, rather than profit. Thus, suppose that Jones begins with a position where his assets, stock of goods, consist of a supply of five horses and zero cows, while Smith begins with assets of five cows and zero horses. How much, if any, exchanges of one cow for one horse will be effected is reflected in the value scales of the two people. It is almost impossible to overestimate the importance of exchange in a developed economic system. Interpersonal exchanges have an enormous influence on productive activities. Their existence means that goods and units of goods have not only direct use value for the producer, but also exchange value. In other words, goods may now be exchanged for other goods of greater usefulness to the actor. A man will exchange a unit of a good so long as the goods that it can command in exchange have greater value to him than the value it had in direct use, that is, so long as its exchange value is greater than its direct use value. In the example above, the first two horses that Jones exchanged and the first two cows surrendered by Smith had a greater exchange value than direct use value to their owners. On the other hand, from then on, their respective assets had greater use value to their owners than exchange value. The existence and possibilities of exchange open up for producers the avenue of producing for a market rather than for themselves. Instead of attempting to maximize his product in isolation by producing goods solely for his own use, each person can now produce goods in anticipation of their exchange value and exchange these goods for others that are more valuable to him. It is evident that since this opens a new avenue for the utility of goods, it becomes possible for each person to increase his productivity. Through praxeology, therefore, we know that only gains can come to every participant in exchange, and that each must benefit by the transaction, 
otherwise he would not engage in it. Empirically, we know that the exchange economy has made possible an enormous increase in productivity and satisfactions for all the participants. Thus, any person can produce goods either for his own direct use or for purposes of exchange with others for goods that he desires. In the former case, he is the consumer of his own product. In the latter case, he produces in the service of other consumers, that is, he produces for a market. In either case, it is clear that on the unhampered market, it is the consumers who dictate the course of production. At any time, a good or a unit of a good may have for its possessor either direct use value or exchange value, or a mixture of both and whichever is the greater is the determinant of his action. Examples of goods with only direct use value to their owner are those in an isolated economy, or such goods as eyeglasses ground to an individual prescription. On the other hand, producers of such eyeglasses or of surgical instruments find no direct use value in these products, but only exchange value. Many goods, as in the foregoing example of exchange, have both direct and exchange value for their owners. For the latter goods, changing conditions may cause direct use value to replace exchange value in the actor's hierarchy of values, or vice versa. Thus, if a person with a stock of wine happens to lose his taste for wine, the previous greater use value that wine had for him will change and the wine's exchange value will take precedence over its use value, which has now become almost nil. Similarly, a grown person may exchange the toys that he had used as a child now that their use value has greatly declined. On the other hand, the exchange value of goods may decline, causing their possessors to use them directly rather than exchange them. Thus, a milliner might make a hat for purposes of exchange, but some minor defect might cause its expected exchange value to dwindle, so that the milliner decides to wear the hat herself. One of the most important factors causing a change in the relationship between direct use value and exchange value is an increase in the number of units of a supply available. From the law of marginal utility, we know that an increase in the supply of a good available decreases the marginal utility of the supply for direct use. Therefore, the more units of supply are available, the more likely will the exchange value of the marginal unit be greater than its value in direct use, and the more likely will its owner be to exchange it. The more horses that Jones had in his stock, and the more cows Smith had, the more eager would they be to exchange them. Conversely, a decrease in supply will increase the likelihood that direct use value will predominate. The network of voluntary interpersonal exchanges forms a society. It also forms a pattern of interrelations known as the market. A society formed solely by the market has an unhampered market, or a free market, a market not burdened by the interference of violent action. A society based on voluntary exchanges is called a contractual society. 
In contrast to the hegemonic society based on the rule of violence, the contractual type of society is based on freely entered contractual relations between individuals. Agreements by individuals to make exchanges are called contracts, and a society based on voluntary contractual agreements is a contractual society. It is the society of the unhampered market. In a contractual society, each individual benefits by the exchange contract that he makes. Each individual is an actor free to make his own decisions at every step of the way. Thus, the relations among people in an unhampered market are symmetrical. There is equality in the sense that each person has equal power to make his own exchange decisions. This is in contrast to a hegemonic relationship where power is asymmetrical, where the dictator makes all the decisions for his subjects except the one decision to obey, as it were, at bayonet point. Thus, the distinguishing features of the contractual society, of the unhampered market, are self-responsibility, freedom from violence, full power to make one's own decisions, except the decision to institute violence against another, and benefits for all participating individuals. The distinguishing features of a hegemonic society are the rule of violence, the surrender of the power to make one's own decisions to a dictator, and exploitation of subjects for the benefit of the masters. It will be seen below that existing societies may be totally hegemonic, totally contractual, or various mixtures of different degrees of the two— and the nature and consequences of these various mixed economies and totally hegemonic societies will be analyzed. Before we examine the exchange process further, it must be considered that in order for a person to exchange anything, he must first possess it, or own it. He gives up the ownership of good X in order to obtain the ownership of good Y. Ownership by one or more owners implies exclusive control and use of the goods owned, and the goods owned are known as property. Freedom from violence implies that no one may seize the property of another by means of violence or the threat of violence, and that each person's property is safe or secure from such aggression. What goods become property? Obviously, only scarce means are property. General conditions of welfare, since they are abundant to all, are not the objects of any action, and therefore cannot be owned or become property. On the free market, it is nonsense to say that someone owns the air. Only if a good is scarce is it necessary for anyone to obtain it, or ownership of it, for his use. The only way that a man could assume ownership of the air is to use violence to enforce this claim. Such action could not occur on the unhampered market. On the free unhampered market, a man can acquire property in scarce goods as follows. 1. In the first place, each man has ownership over his own self, over his will and actions, and the manner in which he will exert his own labor. 2. 
he acquires scarce nature-given factors either by appropriating hitherto unused factors for his own use or by receiving them as a gift from someone else, who in the last analysis must have appropriated them as hitherto unused factors. Analytically, receiving a factor from someone as a gift simply pushes the problem back another stage. At some point, the actor must have appropriated it from the realm of unused factors, as Crusoe appropriated the unused land on the island. 3. He acquires capital goods or consumers' goods either by mixing his own labor with nature-given factors to produce them, or by receiving them as a gift from someone else. As in the previous case, gifts must eventually resolve themselves into some actor's production of the goods by the use of his own labor. Clearly, it will be nature-given factors, capital goods, and durable consumers' goods that are likely to be handed down through gifts, since non-durable consumers' goods will probably be quickly consumed. 4. He may exchange any type of factor, labor service, nature-given factor, capital good, consumer's good, for any type of factor. It is clear that gifts and exchanges as a source of property must eventually be resolved into self-ownership, appropriation of unused nature-given factors, and production of capital and consumer's goods, as the ultimate sources of acquiring property in a free economic system. In order for the giving or exchanging of goods to take place, they must first be obtained by individual actors in one of these ways. The logical sequence of events is, therefore, a man owns himself— he appropriates unused nature-given factors for his ownership. He uses these factors to produce capital goods and consumers' goods, which become his own. He uses up the consumers' goods and or gives them and the capital goods away to others. He exchanges some of these goods for other goods that had come to be owned in the same way by others. These are the methods of acquiring goods that obtain on the free market, and they include all but the method of violent or other invasive expropriation of the property of others. The problem of self-ownership is complicated by the question of children. Children cannot be considered self-owners because they are not yet in possession of the powers of reason necessary to direct their actions. The fact that children are under the hegemonic authority of their parents until they are old enough to become self-owning beings is therefore not contrary to our assumption of a purely free market. Since children are not capable of self-ownership, authority over them will rest in some individuals. On an unhampered market, it would rest in their producers, the parents. On the other hand, the property of the parents in this unique case is not exclusive. The parents may not injure the children at will. Children, not long after birth, begin to acquire the powers of reasoning human beings and embody the potential development of full self-owners. Therefore, the child will, on the free market, be defended from violent actions in the same way as an adult. In contrast to general conditions of welfare, which on the free market cannot be subject to appropriation as property, 
Scarce goods in use and production must always be under someone's control, and therefore must always be property. On the free market, the goods will be owned by those who either produce them, first put them to use, or receive them in gifts. Similarly, under a system of violence and hegemonic bonds, someone or some people must superintend and direct the operations of these goods. Whoever performs these functions, in effect, owns these goods as property, regardless of the legal definition of ownership. This applies to persons and their services, as well as to material goods. On the free market, each person is a complete owner of himself, whereas under a system of full hegemonic bonds, he is subject to the ownership of others, with the exception of the one decision not to revolt against the authority of the owner. Thus, violent or hegemonic regimes do not and cannot abolish property, which derives from the fundamentals of human action, but can only transfer it from one person or set of people, the producers or natural self-owners, to another set. We may now briefly sum up the various types of human action. 1. Isolation, autistic exchange. 2. Interpersonal action. A. Invasive action. 1. War. 2. Murder, assault. 3. Robbery. 4. Slavery. B. Non-invasive action. 1. Gifts. 2. Voluntary exchange. This and subsequent chapters are devoted to an analysis of a non-invasive society, particularly that constituted by voluntary interpersonal exchange. 3. Exchange and the Division of Labor In describing the conditions that must obtain for interpersonal exchange to take place, such as reverse valuations, we implicitly assumed that it must be two different goods that are being exchanged. If Crusoe at his end of the island produced only berries, and Jackson at his end produced only the same kind of berries, then no basis for exchange between them would occur. If Jackson produced 200 berries and Crusoe 150 berries, it would be nonsensical to assume that any exchange of berries would be made between them. It is possible that Crusoe and Jackson, for the mutual fun of it, might pass 50 berries back and forth between them. This, however, would not be genuine exchange, but joint participation in an enjoyable consumer's good, a game or play. The only voluntary interpersonal action in relation to berries that could occur would be a gift from one to another. If exchangers must exchange two different goods, this implies that each party must have a different proportion of assets of goods in relation to his wants. He must have relatively specialized in the acquisition of different goods from those the other party produced. This specialization by each individual may have occurred for any one of three different reasons, or any combination of the three. a. Differences in suitability and yield of the nature-given factors. b. Differences in given capital and durable consumers' goods. 
and c. Differences in skill and in the desirability of different types of labor. Basically, Class B is resolvable into differences in Classes A and C, which account for their production. These factors, in addition to the potential exchange value and use value of the goods, will determine the line of production that the actor will pursue. If the production is directed toward exchange, then the exchange value will play a major role in his decision. Thus, Crusoe may have found abundant crops on his side of the island. These resources, added to his greater skill in farming and the lower disutility of this occupation for him because of a liking for agriculture, might cause him to take up farming. While Jackson's greater skill in hunting and more abundant game supply induce him to specialize in hunting and trapping. Exchange, a productive process for both participants, implies specialization of production or division of labor. The extent to which division of labor is carried on in a society depends on the extent of the market for the products. The latter determines the exchange value that the producer will be able to obtain for his goods. Thus, if Jackson knows that he will be able to exchange part of his catch of game for the grains and fruits of Crusoe, he may well expend all his labor on hunting. Then he will be able to devote all his labor time to hunting while Crusoe devotes his to farming, and their surplus stocks will be exchanged up to the limits analyzed in the previous section. On the other hand, if, for example, Crusoe has little use for meat, Jackson will not be able to exchange much meat, and he will be forced to be far more directly self-sufficient, producing his own grains and fruits as well as meat. It is clear that, praxeologically, the very fact of exchange and the division of labor implies that it must be more productive for all concerned than isolated autistic labor. Economic analysis alone, however, does not convey to us knowledge of the enormous increase in productivity that the division of labor brings to society. This is based on a further empirical insight, namely the enormous variety in human beings and in the world around them. It is a fact that, superimposed on the basic unity of species and objects in nature, there is a great diversity. Particularly is there variety in the aforementioned factors that would give rise to specialization— in the locations and types of natural resources, and in the ability, skills, and tastes of human beings. In the words of Professor von Mises, one may as well consider these two facts as one and the same fact, namely the manifoldness of nature which makes the universe a complex of infinite varieties, if the Earth's surface were such that the physical conditions of production were the same at every point, and if one man were equal to all other men, division of labor would not offer any advantages for acting man. It is clear that conditions for exchange, and therefore increased productivity for the participants, will occur where each party has a superiority in productivity in regard to one of the goods exchanged. 
a superiority that may be due either to better nature-given factors or to the ability of the producer. If individuals abandon attempts to satisfy their wants in isolation, and if each devotes his working time to that specialty in which he excels, it is clear that total productivity for each of the products is increased. If Crusoe can produce more berries per unit of time and Jackson can kill more game, it is clear that productivity in both lines is increased. If Crusoe devotes himself wholly to the production of berries and Jackson to hunting game, after which they can exchange some of the berries for some of the game. In addition to this, full-time specialization in a line of production is likely to improve each person's productivity in that line and intensify the relative superiority of each. More puzzling is the case in which one individual is superior to another in all lines of production. Suppose, for example, that Crusoe is superior to Jackson both in the production of berries and in the production of game. Are there any possibilities for exchange in this situation? Superficially, it might be answered that there are none, and that both will continue in isolation. Actually, it pays for Crusoe to specialize in that line of production in which he has the greatest relative superiority in production, and to exchange this product for the product in which Jackson specializes. It is clear that the inferior producer benefits by receiving some of the products of the superior one. The latter benefits also, however, by being free to devote himself to that product in which his productive superiority is the greatest. Thus, if Crusoe has a great superiority in berry production and a small one in game production, it will still benefit him to devote his full working time to berry production and then exchange some berries for Jackson's game products. In an example mentioned by Professor Boulding, a doctor who is an excellent gardener may very well prefer to employ a hired man who, as a gardener, is inferior to himself, because thereby he can devote more time to his medical practice. This important principle, that exchange may beneficially take place even when one party is superior in both lines of production, is known as the law of association, the law of comparative costs, or the law of comparative advantage. With all pervasive variation offering possibilities for specialization and favorable conditions of exchange occurring even when one party is superior in both pursuits, great opportunities abound for widespread division of labor and extension of the market. As more and more people are linked together in the exchange network, the more extended is the market for each of the products, and the more will exchange value predominate as compared to direct use value in the decisions of the producer. Thus, suppose that there are five people on the desert island, and each specializes in that line of product in which he has a comparative or absolute advantage. Suppose that each one concentrates on the following products. A. Produces berries. B. Produces game. 
C. Produces fish. D. Produces eggs. E. Produces milk. With more people participating in the market process, the opportunities for exchange for each actor are now greatly increased. This is true even though each particular act of exchange takes place between just two people and involves two goods. Exchange value now takes a far more dominant place in the decisions of the producers. Crusoe now knows that if he specializes in berries, he does not now have to rely solely on Jackson to accept them, but can exchange them for the products of several other people. A sudden loss of taste for berries by Jackson will not impoverish Crusoe and deprive him of all other necessities, as it would have before. Furthermore, berries will now bring to Crusoe a wider variety of products each in far greater abundance than before, some being available now that would not have been earlier. The greater productivity and the wider market and emphasis on exchange value obtain for all participants in the market. It is evident, as will be explained further in later sections on indirect exchange, that the contractual society of the market is a genuinely cooperative society. Each person specializes in the task for which he is best fitted, and each serves his fellow men in order to serve himself in exchange. Each person, by producing for exchange, cooperates with his fellow men voluntarily and without coercion. In contrast to the hegemonic form of society, in which one person or one group of persons exploits the others, a contractual society leaves each person free to benefit himself in the market, and, as a consequence, to benefit others as well. An interesting aspect of this praxeological truth is that this benefit to others occurs regardless of the motives of those involved in exchange. Thus Jackson may specialize in hunting and exchange the game for other products, even though he may be indifferent to, or even cordially detest, his fellow participants. Yet, regardless of his motives, the other participants are benefited by his actions as an indirect but necessary consequence of his own benefit. It is this almost marvelous process whereby a man in pursuing his own benefit also benefits others that caused Adam Smith to exclaim that it almost seemed that an invisible hand was directing the proceedings. Those critics of Adam Smith and other economists who accuse the latter of assuming that God or nature directs the market process by an invisible hand for the benefit of all participants completely miss the mark. The fact that the market provides for the welfare of each individual participating in it is a conclusion based on scientific analysis not an assumption upon which the analysis is based. The invisible hand was simply a metaphor used in commenting on this process and its results. Thus, in explaining the origins of society, there is no need to conjure up any mystic communion or sense of belonging among individuals. 
individuals recognize through the use of reason the advantages of exchange resulting from the higher productivity of the division of labor, and they proceed to follow this advantageous course. In fact, it is far more likely that feelings of friendship and communion are the effects of a regime of contractual social cooperation rather than the cause. Suppose, for example, that the division of labor were not productive, or that men had failed to recognize its productivity. In that case, there would be little or no opportunity for exchange, and each man would try to obtain his goods in autistic independence. The result would undoubtedly be a fierce struggle to gain possession of the scarce goods, since in such a world each man's gain of useful goods would be some other man's loss. It would be almost inevitable for such an autistic world to be strongly marked by violence and perpetual war. Since each man could gain from his fellows only at their expense, violence would be prevalent, and it seems highly likely that feelings of mutual hostility would be dominant. As in the case of animals quarreling over bones, such a warring world could cause only hatred and hostility between man and man. Life would be a bitter struggle for survival. On the other hand, in a world of voluntary social cooperation through mutually beneficial exchanges, where one man's gain is another man's gain, it is obvious that great scope is provided for the development of social sympathy and human friendships. It is the peaceful, cooperative society that creates favorable conditions for feelings of friendship among men. The mutual benefits yielded by exchange provide a major incentive, as in the case of Crusoe above, to would-be aggressors, initiators of violent action against others, to restrain their aggression and cooperate peacefully with their fellows. Individuals then decide that the advantages of engaging in specialization and exchange outweigh the advantages that war might bring. Another feature of the market society formed by the division of labor is its permanence. The wants of men are renewed for each period of time, and so they must try to obtain for themselves anew a supply of goods for each period. Crusoe wants to have a steady rate of supply of game, and Jackson would like to have a continuing supply of berries, etc., Therefore, the social relations formed by the division of labor tend to be permanent, as individuals specialize in different tasks and continue to produce in those fields. There is one less important type of exchange that does not involve the division of labor. This is an exchange of the same types of labor for certain tasks, Thus, suppose that Crusoe, Jackson, and Smith are trying to clear their fields of logs. If each one engaged solely in the work of clearing his own field, it would take a long period of time. However, if each put in some time in a joint effort to roll the other fellow's logs, the productivity of the log-rolling operations would be greatly increased. Each man could finish the task in a shorter period of time. 
This is particularly true for operations such as rolling heavy logs, which each man alone could not possibly accomplish at all, and which they could perform only by agreed-upon joint action. In these cases, each man gives up his own labor in someone else's field in exchange for receiving the labor of the others in his field, the latter being worth more to him. Such an exchange involves a combination of the same type of labor, rather than a division of labor into different types, to perform tasks beyond the ready capacity of an isolated individual. This type of cooperative log-rolling, however, would entail merely temporary alliances based on specific tasks, and would not, as do specialization and division of labor, establish permanent exchange ties and social relations. The great scope of the division of labor is not restricted to situations in which each individual makes all of one particular product, as was the case above. Division of labor may entail the specializing by individuals in the different stages of production necessary to produce a particular consumer's good. Thus, with a wider market permitting, different individuals specialize in the different stages, for example, involved in the production of the ham sandwich discussed in the previous chapter. General productivity is greatly increased as some people and some areas specialize in producing iron ore, some in producing different types of machines, some in baking bread, some in packaging meat, some in retailing, etc. The essence of developed market economies consists in the framework of cooperative exchange emerging with such specialization. Such specialization of stages requires the adoption of indirect exchange discussed in the following chapters. 4. Terms of Exchange before analyzing the problem of the terms of exchange, it is well to recall the reason for exchange, the fact that each individual values more highly the good he gets than the good he gives up. This fact is enough to eliminate the fallacious notion that if Crusoe and Jackson exchange 5,000 berries for one cow, there is some sort of equality of value between the cow and the 5,000 berries. Value exists in the valuing minds of individuals, and these individuals make the exchange precisely because for each of them there is an inequality of values between the cow and the berries. For Crusoe, the cow is valued more than the 5,000 berries. For Jackson, it is valued less. Otherwise, the exchange could not be made. Therefore, for each exchange, there is a double inequality of values, rather than an equality, and hence there are no equal values to be measured in any way. We have already seen what conditions are needed for exchange to occur, and the extent to which exchange will take place on given terms. The question then arises, are there any principles that decide the terms on which exchanges are made? 
Why does Crusoe exchange with Jackson at a rate of 5,000 berries for one cow, or 2,000 berries for one cow? Let us take the hypothetical exchange of 5,000 berries for one cow. These are the terms, or the rate of exchange, 5,000 berries for one cow. If we express one commodity in terms of the other, we obtain the price of the commodity. Thus, the price of one good in terms of another is the amount of the other good divided by the amount of the first good in exchange. If two cows exchange for 1,000 berries, then the price of cows in terms of berries, the berry price of cows, is 500 berries per cow. Conversely, the price of berries in terms of cows, the cow price of berries, is 1 500th cow per berry. The price is the rate of exchange between two commodities expressed in terms of one of the commodities. Other useful concepts in the analysis of exchange are those of selling and buying. Thus, in the above exchange, we may say that Crusoe sold 1,000 berries and bought two cows in exchange. On the other hand, Jackson sold two cows and bought 1,000 berries. The sale is the good given up in exchange, while the purchase is the good received. Let us again focus attention on the object of exchange. We remember from chapter 1 that the object of all action is to maximize psychic revenue, and to do this the actor tries to see to it that the psychic revenue from the action exceeds the psychic cost, so that he obtains a psychic profit. This is no less true of interpersonal exchange. The object in such an exchange for each party is to maximize revenue, to exchange so long as the expected psychic revenue exceeds the psychic cost. The psychic revenue from any exchange is the value of the goods received in the exchange. This is equal to the marginal utility to the purchaser of adding the goods to his stock. More complicated is the problem of the psychic costs of an exchange. Psychic costs include all that the actor gives up by making the exchange. This is equal to the next best use that he could have made of the resources that he has used. Suppose, for example, that Jackson possesses five cows and is considering whether or not to sell one cow in exchange. He decides on his value scale that the following is the rank in value of the possible uses of the cow. 1. 5,000 berries offered by Crusoe. 2. 100 barrels of fish offered by Smith. 3. 4,000 berries offered by Jones. 4. Marginal utility of the cow in direct use. In this case, the top three alternatives involve the exchange value of the cow, the fourth its value in direct use. Jackson will make the best use of his resource by making the exchange with Crusoe. 
The 5,000 berries of Crusoe will be his psychic revenue from the exchange, while the loss of the 100 barrels of fish constitutes his psychic cost. We saw above that in order for exchange to take place, the marginal utility of the goods received must be greater than the marginal utility of the goods given up. We now see that for any specific exchange to occur, the marginal utility of the goods received must also be greater than the marginal utility foregone, that which could have been received in another type of exchange. It is evident that Jackson will always prefer an offer of more units of one type of good to an offer of fewer units of the same good. In other words, the seller will always prefer the highest possible selling price for his good. Jackson will prefer the price of 5,000 berries per cow offered by Crusoe to the price of 4,000 berries per cow offered by Jones. It might be objected that this may not always be true and may be offset by other factors. Thus, the prospect of 4,000 berries from Jones may be evaluated higher than the prospect of 5,000 berries from Crusoe if a. the psychic disutility of labor and time, etc., for delivery over a longer distance to the latter renders the prospect of sale to Crusoe less attractive despite the higher price in berries, or b. Special feelings of friendship for Crusoe or hatred for Jones serve to change the utilities on Jackson's value scale. On further analysis, however, these turn out not to be vitiating factors at all. The rule that the actor will prefer the highest selling price for his good in terms of the other good always holds. It must be reiterated that a good is not defined by its physical characteristics, but by the equal serviceability of its units to the actor. Now clearly a berry from a longer distance, since it must call forth the disutility of labor to move it, is not the same good as the berry from a shorter distance, even though it is physically the same berry. The very fact that the first is further away means that it is not as serviceable as the other berry, and hence not the same good. For one price to be comparable with another, the good must be the same. Thus, if Jackson prefers to sell his cow for 4,000 berries from Jones as compared to 5,000 berries from Crusoe, it does not mean that he chooses a lower price for his product in terms of the same good, berries, but that he chooses a price in terms of one good, berries from Jones, over a price in terms of an entirely different good, berries from Crusoe. Similarly, if, because of feelings of friendship or hostility, receiving berries from Crusoe takes on a different quality from that of receiving berries from Jones, the two packets of berries are no longer of equal serviceability to Jackson, and therefore they become, for him, two different goods. 
If these feelings cause him to sell to Jones for 4,000 berries rather than to Crusoe for 5,000 berries, this does not mean that he chooses a lower price for the same good. He chooses between two different goods, berries from Crusoe and berries from Jones. Thus, at all times, an actor will sell his product at the highest possible price in terms of the good received. Clearly, the converse is true for the buyer. The buyer will always purchase his good at the lowest possible price. This truth can be traced in the example just discussed, since at the point that Jackson was a seller of the cow, he was also a buyer of the berries. Where the good in question, berries, was comparable, he bought at the lowest possible price, say one five-thousandth of a cow per berry in preference to one four-thousandth of a cow per berry. In cases where Jackson chooses the latter price, the two berries are no longer the same, but different goods. If, to buy berries, the purchaser has to range further afield or buy from someone he dislikes, then this good becomes a different one in kind from the good closer by or sold by a friend. 5. Determination of Price Equilibrium Price One of the most important problems in economic analysis is the question, what principles determine the formation of prices on the free market? What can be said by logical derivation from the fundamental assumption of human action in order to explain the determination of all prices in interpersonal exchanges, past, present, and future? It is most convenient to begin with a case of isolated exchange, a case where only two isolated parties are involved in the exchange of two goods. For example, Johnson and Smith are considering a possible exchange of a horse of the former for some barrels of fish possessed by the latter. The question is, what can economic analysis say about the determinants of the exchange rate established between the two goods in the exchange? An individual will decide whether or not to make an exchange on the basis of the relative positions of the two goods on his value scale. Thus, suppose the value scale of Smith, the possessor of the fish, is as follows. His highest value, 103 barrels of fish. His second highest value, 102 barrels of fish. His third highest value, 101 barrels of fish. His fourth highest value, a horse. His fifth highest value, 100 barrels of fish. His sixth highest value, 99 barrels of fish. His seventh highest value, 98 barrels of fish. It is clear that Smith would be willing to acquire a horse from Johnson if he could give up 100 barrels of fish or less. 100 barrels or less are less valuable to Smith than the horse. On the other hand, 101 or more barrels of fish are more valuable to him than the horse. Thus, if the price of the horse in terms of the fish offered by Smith is 100 barrels or less, then Smith will make the exchange. 
If the price is 101 barrels or more, then the exchange will not be made. Suppose Johnson's value scale looks like this. Johnson's highest value, 104 barrels of fish. His second highest value, 103 barrels of fish. His third highest value, 102 barrels of fish. His fourth highest value, a horse. His fifth highest value, 101 barrels of fish. His sixth highest value, 100 barrels of fish. His seventh highest value, 99 barrels of fish. Then Johnson will not give up his horse for less than 102 barrels of fish. If the price offered for his horse is less than 102 barrels of fish, he will not make the exchange. Here it is clear that no exchange will be made, for at Johnson's minimum selling price of 102 barrels of fish, it is more beneficial for Smith to keep the fish than to acquire the horse. In order for an exchange to be made, then, the minimum selling price of the seller must be lower than the maximum buying price of the buyer for that good. In this case, it must be lower than the price of 100 barrels of fish per horse. Suppose that this condition is met, and Johnson's value scale is as follows. Johnson's highest value, 84 barrels of fish. Johnson's second highest value, 83 barrels of fish. His third highest value, 82 barrels of fish. His fourth highest value, 81 barrels of fish. His fifth highest value, a horse. His sixth highest value, 80 barrels of fish. His seventh highest value, 79 barrels of fish. Johnson will sell the horse for any amount of fish at or above 81 barrels. This, then, is his minimum selling price for the horse. With this as Johnson's value scale, and Smith's as previously described, what price will they agree upon for the horse, and, conversely, for the fish? All analysis can say about this problem is that since the exchange must be for the mutual benefit of both parties, the price of the good in isolated exchange will be established somewhere between the maximum buying price and the minimum selling price. That is, the price of the horse will be somewhere between 100 barrels and 81 barrels of fish. Similarly, the price of the fish will be set somewhere between 181st and 1/100th of a horse per barrel. We cannot say at which point the price will be set. That depends on the data of each particular case, on the specific conditions prevailing. In particular, it will depend upon the bargaining skill of the two individuals. Clearly, Johnson will try to set the price of the horse as high as possible, while Smith will try to set the price as low as possible. This is based on the principle that the seller of the product tries to obtain the highest price, while the buyer tries to secure the lowest price. We cannot predict the point that the two will agree on except that it will be somewhere in this range set by the two points.
Of course, given other value scales, the final prices might be determinate at our point or within a narrow range. Thus, if Smith's maximum buying price is 87 barrels of fish and Johnson's minimum selling price is 87 barrels of fish, the price will be uniquely determined at 87 barrels of fish. Now, let us gradually remove our assumption of isolated exchange. Let us first assume that Smith has a competitor, Brown, a rival in offering fish for the desired horse of Johnson's. We assume that the fish offered by Brown is of identical serviceability to Johnson as the fish offered by Smith. Suppose that Smith's value scale is the same as before, but that Brown's value scale is such that the horse is worth more than 90 barrels of fish to him, but less than 91 barrels. The value scales of the three individuals will then be as follows. Smith's highest value, 103 barrels of fish. Second highest, 102 barrels of fish. Third highest, 101 barrels of fish. Fourth highest, a horse. Fifth highest, 100 barrels of fish. His maximum buying price. Sixth highest, 99 barrels of fish. Seventh highest, 98 barrels of fish. Brown's highest value is 93 barrels of fish. His second highest, 92 barrels of fish. His third highest, 91 barrels of fish. His fourth highest, a horse. His fifth highest, 90 barrels of fish. His maximum buying price. Sixth highest, 89 barrels of fish. Seventh highest, 88 barrels of fish. Johnson's highest value is 84 barrels of fish. Second highest, 83 barrels of fish. Third highest, 82 barrels of fish. Fourth highest, 81 barrels of fish. His minimum selling price. Fifth highest, a horse. Sixth highest, 80 barrels of fish. Seventh highest, 79 barrels of fish. Brown and Smith are competing for the purchase of Johnson's horse. Clearly, only one of them can make the exchange for the horse, and since their goods are identical to Johnson, the latter's decision to exchange will be decided by the price offered for the horse. Obviously, Johnson will make the exchange with that potential buyer who will offer the highest price. Their value scales are such that Smith and Brown can continue to overbid each other as long as the price range is between 81 and 90 barrels of fish per horse. Thus, if Smith offers Johnson an exchange at 82 barrels per horse, Brown can compete by raising the bid to 84 barrels of fish per horse, etc., this can continue, however, only until Brown's maximum buying price has been exceeded. If Smith offers 91 barrels for the horse, it no longer pays for Brown to make the exchange, and he drops out of the competition. Thus, the price in the exchange will be high enough to exclude the less capable or less urgent buyer, the one whose value scale does not permit him to offer as high a price as the other, more capable buyer. 
We do not know exactly what the price will be, but we do know that it will be set by bargaining somewhere at or below the maximum buying price of the most capable buyer and above the maximum buying price of the next most capable buyer. It will be somewhere between 100 barrels and 91 barrels, and the exchange will be made with Smith. We see that the addition of another competing buyer for the product considerably narrows the zone of bargaining in determining the price that will be set. This analysis can easily be extended to a case of one seller and n number of buyers, each offering the same commodity in exchange. Thus, suppose that there are five potential buyers for the horse, all offering fish, whose value scales are as follows. Smith's highest value, 101 barrels of fish. His second highest value, a horse. His third highest value, 100 barrels of fish. A's highest value, 100 barrels of fish. His second highest value, a horse. His third highest value, 99 barrels of fish. B's highest value, 98 barrels of fish. His second highest value, a horse. His third highest value, 97 barrels of fish. C's highest value, 95 barrels of fish. His second highest value, a horse. His third highest value, 94 barrels of fish. Brown's highest value, 91 barrels of fish. His second highest value, a horse. His third highest value, 90 barrels of fish. With only one horse to be disposed of to one buyer, the buyers overbid each other until each must drop out of the competition. Finally, Smith can outbid A, his next most capable competitor, only with a price of 100 barrels of fish. We see that in this case the price in the exchange is uniquely determined, once the various value scales are given, at 100, since at a lower price A is still in the bidding, and at a higher price no buyer will be willing to conclude the exchange. At any rate, even if the value scales are not such as to determine the price uniquely, the addition of more competitors greatly narrows the bargaining zone. The general rule still holds. The price will be between the maximum buying price of the most capable and that of the next most capable competitor, including the former and excluding the latter. Auction sales are examples of markets for one unit of a good with one seller and many buyers. It is also evident that the narrowing of the bargaining zone has taken place in an upward direction and to the advantage of the seller of the product. The case of one-sided competition of many sellers with just one buyer is the direct converse of the above, and may be considered by merely reversing the example and considering the price of the fish instead of the price of the horse. As more sellers of the fish competed to conclude the exchange with the one buyer, the zone of determination of the price of fish narrowed although this time in a downward direction, and to the further advantage of the buyer. 
As more sellers were added, each tried to underbid his rival to offer a lower price for the product than his competitors. The sellers continued to underbid each other until all but the one seller were excluded from the market. In a case of many sellers and one buyer, the price will be set at a point between the minimum selling price of the second most capable and that of the most capable competitor, strictly at a point below the former and down to or including the latter. In the final example above, the point was pushed down to be uniquely determined at the latter point, one one-hundredth horse per barrel. We have so far considered the cases of one buyer and more than one seller, and of one seller and more than one buyer. We now come to the only case with great importance in a modern complex economy based on an intricate network of exchanges, two-sided competition of buyers and sellers. Let us therefore consider a market with any number of competing buyers and sellers, any product could be considered, but our hypothetical example will continue to be the sale of horses in exchange for fish, with the horses as well as the fish considered by all parties as homogeneous units of the same good. The following is a list of the maximum buying prices of the various buyers, based on the valuations on their respective value scales. Buyers of Horses First buyer, X1, maximum buying price, 100 barrels of fish. Buyer X2's maximum buying price, 98 barrels of fish. Buyer X3's maximum buying price, 95 barrels of fish. Buyer X4's maximum buying price, 91 barrels of fish. Buyer X5's maximum buying price, 89 barrels of fish. Buyer X6's maximum buying price, 88 barrels of fish. Buyer X7's maximum buying price, 86 barrels of fish. Buyer X8's maximum buying price, 85 barrels of fish. Buyer X9's maximum buying price, 83 barrels of fish. The following is a list of the minimum selling prices of the various sellers on the market. Sellers of Horses The first seller, Z1, has a minimum selling price of 81 barrels of fish. Z2's minimum selling price, 83 barrels of fish. Z3's minimum selling price, 85 barrels of fish. Z4's minimum selling price, 88 barrels of fish. Z5's minimum selling price, 89 barrels of fish. Z6's minimum selling price, 90 barrels of fish. Z7's minimum selling price, 92 barrels of fish. Z8's minimum selling price, 96 barrels of fish. The most capable buyer of horses we recognize as Smith, with a buying price of 100 barrels. Johnson is the most capable seller, the seller with the lowest minimum selling price, at 81 barrels. The problem is to find the principle by which the price or prices of the exchanges of horses will be determined. Now let us first take the case of X1. 
Smith. It is clear that it is to the advantage of Smith to make the exchange at a price of one hundred barrels for the horse. Yet it is to Smith's greater advantage to buy the good at the lowest possible price. He is not engaged in overbidding his competitors merely for the sake of overbidding. He will try to obtain the good for the lowest price that he can. Therefore, Smith will prefer to begin bidding for a horse at the lowest prices offered by his competitors, and only raise the offered price if it becomes necessary to do so in order to avoid being shut out of the market. Similarly, Johnson would make an advantageous sale at a price of eighty-one barrels. However, he is interested in selling his product at the highest possible price. He will underbid his competitor only if it becomes necessary to do so in order to avoid being shut out of the market without making a sale. It is evident that buyers will tend to start negotiations by offering as low prices as possible, while sellers will tend to start by asking for as high a price as they think they can obtain. Clearly, this preliminary testing of the market will tend to be more prolonged in a new market where conditions are unfamiliar, while it will tend to be less prolonged in an old market where the participants are relatively familiar with the results of the price formation process in the past and can estimate more closely what the results will be. Let us suppose that buyers begin by offering the low price of eighty-two barrels for a horse. Here is a price at which each of the buyers would be glad to make a purchase, but only one seller, Z one, would be willing to sell at eighty-two. It is possible that Z one, through ignorance, might conclude the exchange with some one of the buyers at eighty-two, without realizing that he could have obtained a higher price. It is also possible that the other buyers will, through ignorance, permit the buyer to get away with this windfall without overbidding him for this cheap horse. But such a result is not very likely. It seems most likely that Z one will not sell at such a low price, and that the buyers would immediately overbid any attempt by one of their number to conclude an exchange at that price. Even if by some chance one exchange was concluded at eighty-two, it is obvious that such a price could not last, since no other seller would make an exchange at that price. The price of further exchanges would have to rise further as a result of upbidding by buyers. Let us assume at this point that no exchange will be made at this price because of the further upbidding of the buyers and the knowledge of this by the sellers. As the offering price rises, the least capable buyers, as in the previous case, begin to be excluded from the market. A price of eighty-four will bring two sellers into the market, but will exclude X nine from the buyer's side. As the offering price rises, the disproportion between the amount offered for sale and the amount demanded for purchase at the given price diminishes. But as long as the latter is greater than the former, mutual overbidding of buyers will continue to raise the price. The amount offered for sale at each price is called the supply. The amount demanded for purchase at each price is called 
the demand. Evidently, at the first price of 82, the supply of horses on the market is 1. The demand for horses on the market is 9. Only one seller would be willing to sell at this price, while all nine buyers would be willing to make their purchase. This reflects the progressive entry into the market of the sellers as the price increases and the dropping out of the buyers as the price increases. As was seen above, as long as the demand exceeds the supply at any price, buyers will continue to overbid and the price will continue to rise. The converse occurs if the price begins near its highest point, Thus, if sellers first demand a price of 101 barrels for the horse, there will be eight eager sellers and no buyers. At a price of 99, the sellers may find one eager buyer, but chances are that a sale will not be made. The buyer will realize that there is no point in paying such a high price, and the other sellers will eagerly underbid the one who tries to make the sale at the price of 99. Thus, when the price is so high that the supply exceeds the demand at that price, underbidding of suppliers will drive the price downward. As the tentative price falls, more sellers are excluded from the market, and more buyers enter it. If the overbidding of buyers will drive the price up whenever the quantity demanded is greater than the quantity supplied, and the underbidding of sellers drives the price down whenever supply is greater than demand, it is evident that the price of the good will find a resting point where the quantity demanded is equal to the quantity supplied, that is, where supply equals demand. At this price, and at this price only, the market is cleared. That is, there is no incentive for buyers to bid prices up further, or for sellers to bid prices down. In our example, this final or equilibrium price is 89. And at this price, five horses will be sold to five buyers. This equilibrium price is the price at which the good will tend to be set, and sales to be made. It is possible that the equilibrium point will not be uniquely determined at one definite price. Thus, the pattern of supply and demand schedules might be as follows. At a price of 89, 5 are supplied and 6 are demanded. At a price of 90, 6 are supplied and 5 are demanded. The inequality is the narrowest possible, but there is no one point of equality. In that case, if the units are further divisible, then the price will be set to clear the market at a point in between, say, 89.5 barrels of fish per horse. If both goods being exchanged are indivisible further, however, such as cows against horses, then the equilibrium price will be either 89 or 90, and this will be the closest approach to equilibrium, rather than equilibrium itself. Specifically, the sales will be made to the five most capable buyers at that price, X1, X2, X3, X4, and X5. The other less capable or less urgent buyers are excluded from the market. 
because their value scales do not permit them to buy horses at that price. Similarly, sellers Z1 through Z5 are the ones that make the sale at 89. The other sellers are excluded from the market because their value scales do not permit them to be in the market at that price. In this horse and fish market, Z5 is the least capable of the sellers who have been able to stay in the market. Z5, whose minimum selling price is 89, is just able to make his sale at 89. He is the marginal seller, the seller at the margin, the one who would be excluded with a slight fall in price. On the other hand, X5 is the least capable of the buyers who have been able to stay in the market. He is the marginal buyer, the one who would be excluded by a slight rise in price. Since it would be foolish for the other buyers to pay more than they must to obtain their supply, they will also pay the same price as the marginal buyer, that is, 89. Similarly, the other sellers will not sell for less than they could obtain. They will sell at the price permitting the marginal seller to stay in the market. Evidently, the more capable or more urgent buyers and sellers, the supramarginal, which includes the marginal, obtain a psychic surplus in this exchange, for they are better off than they would have been if the price had been higher or lower. However, since goods can be ranked only on each individual's value scale, and no measurement of psychic gain can be made either for one individual or between different individuals, little of value can be said about this psychic gain except that it exists. We cannot even make the statement, for example, that the psychic gain in exchange obtained by X1 is greater than that of X5. The excluded buyers and sellers are termed sub-marginal. The specific feature of the clearing of the market performed by the equilibrium price is that, at this price alone, all those buyers and sellers who are willing to make exchanges can do so. At this price, five sellers with horses find five buyers for the horses. All who wish to buy and sell at this price can do so. At any other price, there are either frustrated buyers or frustrated sellers. Thus, at a price of 84, eight people would like to buy at this price, but only two horses are available. At this price, there is a great amount of unsatisfied demand, or excess demand. Conversely, at a price of, say, 95, there are seven sellers eager to supply horses, but only three people willing to demand horses. Thus, at this price, there is unsatisfied supply, or excess supply. Other terms for excess demand and excess supply are shortage and surplus of the good. Aside from the universal fact of the scarcity of all goods, a price that is below the equilibrium price creates an additional shortage of supply for demanders, while a price above equilibrium creates a surplus of goods for sale as compared to demands for purchase. 
we see that the market process always tends to eliminate such shortages and surpluses and establish a price where demanders can find a supply and suppliers a demand. It is important to realize that this process of overbidding of buyers and underbidding of sellers always takes place in the market, even if the surface aspects of the specific case make it appear that only the sellers or buyers are setting the price. Thus, a good might be sold in retail shops with prices simply quoted by the individual seller. But the same process of bidding goes on in such a market as in any other. If the sellers set their prices below the equilibrium price, buyers will rush to make their purchases, and the sellers will find that shortages develop, accompanied by queues of buyers eager to purchase goods that are unavailable. Realizing that they could obtain higher prices for their goods, the sellers raise their quoted prices accordingly. On the other hand, if they set their prices above the equilibrium price, surpluses of unsold stocks will appear, and they will have to lower their prices in order to move their accumulation of unwanted stocks and to clear the market. The case where buyers quote prices and therefore appear to set them is similar. If the buyers quote prices below the equilibrium price, they will find that they cannot satisfy all their demands at that price. As a result, they will have to raise their quoted prices. On the other hand, if the buyers set the prices too high, they will find a stampede of sellers with unsaleable stocks and will take advantage of the opportunity to lower the price and clear the market. Thus, regardless of the form of the market, the result of the market process is always to tend toward the establishment of the equilibrium price via the mutual bidding of buyers and sellers. It is evident that if we eliminate the assumption that no preliminary sales were made before the equilibrium price was established, this does not change the results of the analysis. Even if, through ignorance and error, a sale was made at a price of 81 or 99, these prices still will be ephemeral and temporary, and the final price for the good will tend to be the equilibrium price. Once the market price is established, it is clear that one price must rule over the entire market. This has already been implied by the fact that all buyers and sellers will tend to exchange at the same price as their marginal competitors. There will always be a tendency on the market to establish one and only one price at any time for a good. Thus, suppose that the market price has been established at 89, and that one crafty seller tries to induce a buyer to buy at 92. It is evident that no buyer will buy at 92 when he knows that he can buy on the regular market at 89. Similarly, no seller will be willing to sell at a price below the market if he knows that he can readily make his sale at 89. If, for example, an ignorant seller sells a horse at 87, the buyer is likely to enter the market as a seller to sell the horse at 89. 
Such drives for arbitrage gains, buying and selling to take advantage of discrepancies in the price of a good, act quickly to establish one price for one good over the entire market. Such market prices will tend to change only when changing supply and demand conditions alter the equilibrium price and establish a condition of excess supply or excess demand where before the market had been cleared. It is evident that as the price increases, new suppliers with higher minimum selling prices are brought into the market, while demanders with low maximum buying prices will begin to drop out. Therefore, as the price decreases, the quantity demanded must always either remain the same or increase, never decrease. Similarly, as the price decreases, the amount offered in supply must always decrease or remain the same, never increase. The tabulation of supply offered at any given price is known as the supply schedule. Similarly, the tabulation of demand is the demand schedule. The direct determinants of the price are the marginal buyers and sellers, while the valuations of the supramarginal people are important in determining which buyers and sellers will be at the margin. The valuations of the excluded buyers and sellers far beyond the margin have no direct influence on the price. Up to this point, we have assumed, for the sake of simplicity and clarity, that each demander as well as each supplier was limited to one unit of the good, the price of which we have been concentrating on, the horse. Now we can remove this restriction and complete our analysis of the real world of exchange by permitting suppliers and demanders to exchange any number of horses that they may desire. It will be seen immediately that the removal of our implicit restriction makes no substantial change in the analysis. Thus, let us revert to the case of Johnson, whose minimum selling price for a horse was 81 barrels of fish. Let us now assume that Johnson has a stock of several horses. He is willing to sell one horse, the first, for a minimum price of 81 barrels, since on his value scale he places the horse between 81 and 80 barrels of fish. What will be Johnson's minimum selling price to part with his second horse? We have seen earlier in this chapter that according to the law of marginal utility, as a man's stock of goods declines, the value placed on each unit remaining increases. Conversely, as a man's stock of goods increases, the marginal utility of each unit declines. Therefore, the marginal utility of the second horse, or strictly of each horse after the first horse is gone, will be greater than the marginal utility of the first horse. This will be true even though each horse is capable of the same service as every other. Similarly, the value of parting with a third horse will be still greater. On the other hand, while the marginal utility placed on each horse given up increases, the marginal utility of the additional fish acquired in exchange will decline. The result of these two factors is, inevitably, to raise the minimum selling price for each successive horse sold. 
Thus, suppose the minimum selling price for the first horse is 81 barrels of fish. When it comes to the second exchange, the value foregone of the second horse will be greater, and the value of the same barrels in exchange will decline. As a result, the minimum selling price below which Johnson will not sell the horse will increase, say, to 88. Thus, as the seller's stock dwindles, his minimum selling price increases. Johnson's value scale may appear as follows. Johnson's highest value is 100 barrels of fish, followed by 99 barrels of fish, followed by a fourth horse, followed by 98 barrels of fish, followed by 97 barrels of fish, followed by 96 barrels of fish, followed by 95 barrels of fish, followed by a third horse, followed by 94 barrels of fish, followed by 93 barrels of fish, followed by 92 barrels of fish, followed by 91 barrels, followed by 90 barrels, followed by 89 barrels, followed by 88 barrels, followed by a second horse, followed by 87 barrels, followed by 86 barrels, followed by 85 barrels, followed by 84 barrels, followed by 83 barrels, followed by 82 barrels, followed by 81 barrels, followed by a horse, followed by 80 barrels. Thus, Johnson's minimum selling prices are 81, 88, 95, and 99 barrels of fish. On the basis of this value scale, Johnson's own individual supply schedule can be constructed. He will supply zero horses up to a price of 80, one horse at a price between 81 and 87, two horses with the price between 88 and 94, three horses at a price of 95 to 98, and four horses at a price of 99 and above. The same can be done for each seller in the market. Where the seller has only one horse to sell, the supply schedule is constructed as before. It is clear that a market supply schedule can be constructed simply by adding the supplies that will be offered by the various individual sellers in the market at any given price. The essentials of the foregoing analysis of market supply remain unchanged. Thus, the effect of constructing the market supply schedule in this case is the same as if there were four sellers, each supplying one horse and each with a minimum selling price of 81, 88, 95, and 99. The fact that it is one man that is supplying the new units, rather than different men, does not change the results of the analysis. What it does is to reinforce the rule that the supply must always remain unchanged or increase with an increase in price. For in addition to the fact that new suppliers will be brought into the market with an increase in price, the same supplier will offer more units of the good. Thus, the operation of the law of marginal utility serves to reinforce the rule that the supply cannot decrease at higher prices, but must increase or remain the same.
The exact converse occurs in the case of demand. Suppose that we allow buyers to purchase any desired number of horses. We remember that Smith's maximum buying price for the first horse was 100 barrels of fish. If he considers buying a second horse, the marginal utility of the additional horse will be less than the utility of the first one, and the marginal utility of the same amount of fish that he would have to give up will increase. If the marginal utility of the purchases declines as more are made, and the marginal utility of the good given up increases, these factors result in lower maximum buying prices for each successive horse bought. Thus, Smith's value scale might appear as follows. Smith's highest value, 102 barrels of fish, followed by 101 barrels of fish, followed by a horse, followed by 100 barrels, followed by 99 barrels, followed by 98 barrels, followed by 97 barrels, followed by 96 barrels, followed by 95 barrels, followed by a second horse, followed by 94 barrels, followed by 93 barrels, followed by 92 barrels, followed by 91 barrels, followed by 90 barrels, followed by a third horse, followed by 89 barrels, followed by 88 barrels, followed by 87 barrels, followed by 86 barrels, followed by 85 barrels, followed by 84 barrels, followed by a fourth horse, followed by 83 barrels, followed by 82 barrels. On this basis, an individual demand schedule for Smith can be constructed. Smith will demand four horses at a price of 83 and below, three horses at a price of 84 to 89, two horses at a price of 90 to 94, one horse at a price of 95 to 100, and zero horses at a price of 101 or over. Such individual demand schedules can be made for each buyer on the market. It is evident that the effect of allowing more than one unit to be demanded by each buyer brings in the law of marginal utility to reinforce the aforementioned rule that the demand must either increase or remain unchanged as the price decreases. For, added to the fact that lower prices bring in previously excluded buyers, each individual will tend to demand more as the price declines, since the maximum buying prices will be lower with the purchase of more units, in accordance with the law of marginal utility. Let us now sum up the factors determining prices in interpersonal exchange. One price will tend to be established for each good on the market, and that price will tend to be the equilibrium price, determined by the intersection of the market's supply and demand schedules. Those making the exchanges at this price will be the supramarginal and marginal buyers and sellers, while the less capable or submarginal will be excluded from the sale because their value scales do not permit them to make an exchange. Their maximum buying prices are too low or their minimum selling prices too high. 
The market supply and demand schedules are themselves determined by the minimum selling prices and maximum buying prices of all the individuals in the market. The latter, in turn, are determined by the placing of the units to be bought and sold on the individual's value scales, these rankings being influenced by the law of marginal utility. In addition to the law of marginal utility, there is another factor influencing the rankings on each individual's value scale. It is obvious that the amount that Johnson will supply at any price is limited by the stock of goods that he has available. Thus, Johnson may be willing to supply a fourth horse at a price of 99, but if this exhausts his available stock of horses, no higher price will be able to call forth a larger supply from Johnson. At least this is true as long as Johnson has no further stock available to sell. Thus, at any given time, the total stock of the good available puts a maximum limit on the amount of the good that can be supplied in the market. Conversely, the total stock of the purchasing good will put a maximum limit on the total of the sale good that any one individual or the market can demand. At the same time that the market's supply and demand schedules are setting the equilibrium price, they are also clearly setting the equilibrium quantity of both goods that will be exchanged. In our previous example, the equilibrium quantities exchanged are 5 horses and 5 times 89, or 445 barrels of fish, for the aggregate of the market. 6. Elasticity of Demand The demand schedule tells us how many units of the purchase good will be bought at each hypothetical price. From this schedule, we may easily find the total number of units of the sale good that will be expended at each price. If three horses are demanded at a price of 95 barrels of fish, then the total number of units of the sale good that will be offered in exchange will be 3 times 95, or 285 barrels of fish. This, then, is the total outlay of the sale good that will be offered on the market at that price. Outlay equals price times quantity demanded of purchase good. But we know that as the price decreases, the demand must either increase or remain the same. Therefore, a decrease in price tends to be counteracted by an increase in quantity, and as a result, the total outlay of the sale good may either increase or decrease as the price changes. For any two prices, we may compare the total outlay of the sale good that will be expended by buyers. If the lower price yields a greater total outlay than the higher price, the total outlay is defined as being elastic over that range. If the lower price yields a lower total outlay than the higher price, then the outlay is inelastic over that range. Alternatively, we may say that the former case is that of an elasticity greater than unity, the latter of an elasticity less than unity, and the case where the total outlay is the same for the two prices is one of unit elasticity, or elasticity equal to one, 
Since numerical precision in the concept of elasticity is not important, we may simply use the terms inelastic, elastic, and, for the last case, neutral. Some examples will clarify these concepts. Thus, suppose that we examine the total outlay schedule at prices of 96 and 95. At 96, the total outlay is 192 barrels. At 95, it is 285 barrels. The outlay is greater at the lower price, and hence the outlay schedule is elastic in this range. On the other hand, let us take the prices 95 and 94. At 94, the outlay is 282. Consequently, the schedule here is inelastic. There is no reason why the concept of elasticity must be confined to two prices next to each other. Any two prices on the schedule may be compared. It is evident that an examination of the entire outlay demonstrates that it is basically elastic. It is elastic over most of its range, with the exception of a few small gaps. If we compare any two rather widely spaced prices, it is evident that the outlay is less at the higher price. If the price is high enough, the demand for any good will dwindle to zero, and therefore the outlay will dwindle to zero. Contrary to what might be thought at first, the concept of elasticity of supply is not a meaningful one, as is elasticity of demand. If we multiply the quantity supplied at each price by the price, we obtain the number of barrels of fish, the sale good, which the sellers will demand in exchange. It will easily be seen, however, that this quantity always increases as the price increases, and vice versa. The reason is that its other determinant, quantity supplied, changes in the same direction as the price, not in the inverse direction as does quantity demanded. As a result, supply is always elastic, and the concept is an uninteresting one. The attention of some writers to the elasticity of supply stems from an erroneous approach to the entire analysis of utility, supply, and demand. They assume that it is possible to treat human action in terms of infinitely small differences, and therefore to apply the mathematically elegant concepts of the calculus, etc., to economic problems. Such a treatment is fallacious and misleading, however, since human action must treat all matters only in terms of discrete steps. If, for example, the utility of X is so little smaller than the utility of Y that it can be regarded as identical or negligibly different, then human action will treat them as such, that is, as the same good. As a result, the seemingly precise concept of elasticity at a point, percentage increase in demand divided by a negligibly small percentage decrease in price, is completely out of order. It is this mistaken substitution of mathematical elegance for the realities of human action that lends a seeming importance to the concept of elasticity of supply, comparable to the concept of elasticity of demand. 7. Speculation and Supply and Demand Schedules 
We have seen that market price is, in the final analysis, determined by the intersection of the supply and demand schedules. It is now in order to consider further the determinants of these particular schedules. Can we establish any other conclusions concerning the causes of the shape and position of the supply and demand schedules themselves? We remember that at any given price, the amount of a good that an individual will buy or sell is determined by the position of the sale good and the purchase good on his value scale. He will demand a good if the marginal utility of adding a unit of the purchase good is greater than the marginal utility of the sale good that he must give up. On the other hand, another individual will be a seller if his valuations of the units are in a reverse order. Let us further analyze the value scales of the buyers and sellers. We have seen that the two sources of value that a good may have are direct use value and exchange value, and that the higher value is the determinant for the actor. An individual, therefore, can demand a horse in exchange for one of two reasons, its direct use value to him or the value that he believes it will be able to command in exchange. If the former, then he will be a consumer of the horse's services. If the latter, then he purchases in order to make a more advantageous exchange later. Thus, suppose in the foregoing example that the existing market price has not reached equilibrium, that it is now at 85 barrels per horse. Many demanders may realize that this price is below the equilibrium, and that therefore they can attain an arbitrage profit by buying at 85 and reselling at the final higher price. We are now in a position to refine the analysis in the foregoing section, which did not probe the question whether or not sales took place before the equilibrium price was reached. It is evident that sales will be made en route to the equilibrium price, and shortages or surpluses will finally reveal the path to the final price. On the other hand, suppose that many sellers anticipate the final equilibrium price, Clearly, they will refuse to make sales at a lower price, even though they would have done so if that were the final price. On the other hand, they will sell more above the equilibrium price, since they will be able to make an arbitrage profit by selling their horses above the equilibrium price and buying them back at the equilibrium price. Let us suppose the highly unlikely event that all demanders and suppliers are able to forecast exactly the final equilibrium price. What would be the pattern of supply and demand on the market in such an extreme case? It would be as follows. At a price above equilibrium, say 89, no one would demand the good and suppliers would supply their entire stock. At a price below equilibrium, no one would supply the good, and everyone would demand as much as he could purchase. Such unanimously correct forecasts are not likely to take place in human action, but this case points up the fact that the more this anticipatory or speculative element enters into supply and demand, the more quickly will the market price tend toward equilibrium. 
Obviously, the more the actors anticipate the final price, the further apart will be supply and demand at any price differing from equilibrium, the more drastic the shortages and surpluses will be, and the more quickly will the final price be established. Up to now, we have assumed that this speculative supply and demand, this anticipating of the equilibrium price, has been correct, and we have seen that these correct anticipations have hastened the establishment of equilibrium. Suppose, however, that most of these expectations are erroneous. Suppose, for example, that the demanders tend to assume that the equilibrium price will be lower than it actually is. Does this change the equilibrium price, or obstruct the passage to that price? Suppose that the intersection of the supply and demand schedules will be at 85 instead of 89. It is clear that this will be only a provisional resting point for the price. As soon as the price settles at 85, the demanders see that shortages develop at this price, that they would like to buy more than is available, and the overbidding of the demanders raises the price again to the genuine equilibrium price. The same process of revelation of error occurs in the case of errors of anticipation by suppliers, and thus the forces of the market tend inexorably toward the establishment of the genuine equilibrium price, undistorted by speculative errors, which tend to reveal themselves and be eliminated. As soon as suppliers or demanders find that the price that their speculative errors have set is not really an equilibrium, and that shortages and or surpluses develop, their actions tend once again to establish the equilibrium position. The actions of both buyers and sellers on the market may be related to the concepts of psychic revenue, profit, and cost. We remember that the aim of every actor is the highest position of psychic revenue, and thus the making of a psychic profit compared to his next best alternative, his cost. Whether or not an individual buys depends on whether it is his best alternative with his given resources, in this case, his fish. His expected revenue in any action will be balanced against his expected cost, his next best alternative. In this case, the revenue will be either a. the satisfaction of ends from the direct use of the horse, or b. expected resale of the horse at a higher price, whichever has the highest utility to him. His cost will be either a. the marginal utility of the fish given up in direct use, or b. possibly the exchange value of the fish for some other good, or c. the expected future purchase of the horse at a lower price, whichever has the highest utility. He will buy the horse if the expected revenue is greater. He will fail to buy if the expected cost is greater. The expected revenue is the marginal utility of the added horse for the buyer. The expected cost is the marginal utility of the fish given up. For either revenue or cost, the higher value in direct use or in exchange will be chosen as the marginal utility of the good. Now let us consider the seller. 
the seller, as well as the buyer, attempts to maximize his psychic revenue by trying to attain a revenue higher than his psychic cost, the utility of the next best alternative he will have to forego in taking his action. The seller will weigh the marginal utility of the added sale good, in this case, fish, against the marginal utility of the purchase good given up, the horse, in deciding whether or not to make the sale at any particular price. The psychic revenue for the seller will be the higher of the utilities stemming from one of the following sources. A. The value in direct use of the sale good, the fish, or b. the speculative value of re-exchanging the fish for the horse at a lower price in the future. The psychic revenue for the seller will be the higher of the utilities stemming from one of the following sources. a. the value in direct use of the sale good, the fish, or b. the speculative value of re-exchanging the fish for the horse at a lower price in the future. The cost of the seller's action will be the highest utility foregone among the following alternatives. A. The value in direct use of the horse given up. Or B. The speculative value of selling at a higher price in the future. Or C. The exchange value of acquiring some other good for the horse. He will sell the horse if the expected revenue is greater. He will fail to sell if the expected cost is greater. We thus see that the situations of the sellers and the buyers are comparable. Both act or fail to act in accordance with their estimate of the alternative that will yield them the highest utility. It is the position of the utilities on the two sets of value scales, of the individual buyers and sellers, that determines the market price and the amount that will be exchanged at that price. In other words, it is, for every good, utility and utility alone that determines the price and the quantity exchanged. Utility and utility alone determines the nature of the supply and demand schedules. It is therefore fallacious to believe, as has been the popular assumption, that utility and costs are equally and independently potent in determining price. Cost is simply the utility of the next best alternative that must be foregone in any action, and it is therefore part and parcel of utility on the individual's value scale. This cost is, of course, always a present consideration of a future event, even if this future is a very near one. Thus, the foregone utility in making the purchase might be the direct consumption of fish that the actor might have engaged in within a few hours, or it might be the possibility of exchanging for a cow, whose utility would be enjoyed over a long period of time. It goes without saying, as has been indicated in the previous chapter, that the present consideration of revenue and of cost in any action is based on the present value of expected future revenues and costs. The point is that both the utilities derived and the utilities foregone in any action refer to some point in the future, even if a very near one 
and that past costs play no role in human action, and hence in determining price. The importance of this fundamental truth will be made clear in later chapters. 8. Stock and the Total Demand to Hold There is another way of treating supply and demand schedules, which, for some problems of analysis, is more useful than the schedules presented earlier. At any point on the market, suppliers are engaged in offering some of their stock of the good and withholding their offer of the remainder. Thus, at a price of 86, suppliers supply three horses on the market and withhold the other five in their stock. This withholding is caused by one of the factors mentioned as possible costs of the exchange, either the direct use of the good, say the horse, has greater utility than the receipt of the fish in direct use, or else the horse could be exchanged for some other good, or, finally, the seller expects the final price to be higher so that he can profitably delay the sale. The amount that sellers will withhold on the market is termed their reservation demand. This is not, like the demand studied previously, a demand for a good in exchange. This is a demand to hold stock. Thus, the concept of a demand to hold a stock of goods will always include both demand factors. It will include the demand for the good in exchange by non-possessors, plus the demand to hold the stock by the possessors. The demand for the good in exchange is also a demand to hold, since, regardless of what the buyer intends to do with the good in the future, he must hold the good from the time it comes into his ownership and possession by means of exchange. We therefore arrive at the concept of a total demand to hold for a good, differing from the previous concept of exchange demand, although including the latter in addition to the reservation demand by the sellers. If we know the total stock of the good in existence, here eight horses, we may by inspecting the supply and demand schedules arrive at a total demand to hold, or total demand schedule for the market. For example, at a price of 82, nine horses are demanded by the buyers in exchange, and 8 minus 1 equals 7 horses are withheld by the sellers, that is, demanded to be held by the sellers. Therefore, the total demand to hold horses on the market is 9 plus 7 equals 16 horses. On the other hand, at the price of 97, no horses are withheld by sellers, whose reservation demand is therefore zero, while the demand by buyers is two. Total demand to hold at this price is zero plus two equals two horses. It is clear that the demand schedule increases or remains the same as the price falls, while the reservation demand schedule of the sellers also tends to increase as the price falls. The total demand schedule is the result of adding the two schedules. Clearly, the reservation demand of the sellers increases as the price falls for this reason. 
With a lower price, the value of the purchase good in direct use or in other and future exchanges relatively increases, and therefore the seller tends to withhold more of the good from exchange. Another point of interest is that at the equilibrium price, the total demand to hold is equal to the total stock in existence. Thus, the equilibrium price not only equates the supply and demand on the market, it also equates the stock of a good to be held with the desire of people to hold it, buyers and sellers included. It is clear that the market always tends to set the price of a good so as to equate the stock with the total demand to hold the stock. Suppose that the price of a good is higher than this equilibrium price. Say that the price is 92, at which the stock is 8 and the total demand to hold is 4. This means four horses exist which their possessors do not want to possess. It is clear that someone must possess this stock, since all goods must be property, otherwise they would not be objects of human action. Since all the stock must at all times be possessed by someone, the fact that the stock is greater than total demand means that there is an imbalance in the economy, that some of the possessors are unhappy with their possession of the stock. They tend to lower the price in order to sell the stock, and the price falls until finally the stock is equated with the demand to hold. Conversely, suppose that the price is below equilibrium, say at 85, where 13 horses are demanded compared to a stock of 8. The bids of the eager non-possessors for the scarce stock push up the price until it reaches equilibrium. In cases where individuals correctly anticipate the equilibrium price, the speculative element will tend to render the total demand even more elastic and flatter. At a higher than equilibrium price, few will want to keep the stock, the buyers will demand very little, and the sellers will be eager to dispose of the good. On the other hand, at a lower price, the demand to hold will be far greater than the stock. Buyers will demand heavily, and sellers will be reluctant to sell their stock. The discrepancies between total demand and stock will be far greater, and the underbidding and overbidding will more quickly bring about the equilibrium price. We have seen that at the equilibrium price, the most capable or most urgent buyers made the exchanges with the most capable sellers. Here we see that the result of the exchange process is that the stock finally goes into the hands of the most capable possessors. We remember that in the sale of the eight horses, the most capable buyers, X1 through X5, purchased from the most capable sellers of the good, Z1 through Z5. At the conclusion of the exchange, then, the possessors are X1 through X5, and the excluded sellers, Z6 through Z8. It is these individuals who finish by possessing the eight horses, and these are the most capable possessors. At a price of 89 barrels of fish per horse, these were the ones who preferred the horse on their value scales to 89 barrels of fish and they acted on the basis of this preference. 
For five of the individuals, this meant exchanging their fish for a horse. For three, it meant refusing to part with their horses for the fish. The other nine individuals on the market were the less capable possessors, and they concluded by possessing the fish instead of the horse, even if they started by possessing horses. These were the ones who ranked 89 barrels of fish above one horse on their value scale. Five of these were original possessors of horses who exchanged them for fish. Four simply retained the fish without purchasing a horse. The total demand stock analysis is a useful twin companion to the supply-demand analysis. Each has advantages for use in different spheres. One relative defect of the total demand stock analysis is that it does not reveal the differences between the buyers and the sellers. In considering total demand, it abstracts from actual exchanges, and therefore does not determine the quantity of exchanges. It reveals only the equilibrium price, without demonstrating the equilibrium quantity exchanged. However, it focuses more sharply on the fundamental truth that price is determined solely by utility. We see that the fundamental determinants of price are the value scales of all individuals, buyers and sellers in the market, and that the physical stock simply assumes its place on these scales. It is clear in these cases of direct exchange of useful goods that even if the utility of goods for buyers or sellers is at present determined by its subjective exchange value for the individual, the sole ultimate source of utility of each good is its direct use value. If the major utility of a horse to its possessor is the fish or the cow that he can procure in exchange, and the major value of the latter to their possessors is the horse obtainable in exchange, etc., the ultimate determinant of the utility of each good is its direct use value to its individual consumer. 9. Continuing Markets and Changes in Price how, then, may we sum up the analysis of our hypothetical horse and fish market? We began with a stock of eight horses in existence, and a certain stock of fish as well, and a situation where the relative positions of horses and fish on different people's value scales were such as to establish conditions for the exchange of the two goods. Of the original possessors, the most capable sellers sold their stock of horses, while among the original non-possessors, the most capable buyers purchased units of the stock with their fish. The final price of their sale was the equilibrium price determined ultimately by their various value scales, which also determined the quantity of exchanges that took place at that price. The net result was a shift of the stock of each good into the hands of its most capable possessors in accordance with the relative rank of the good on their value scales. The exchanges having been completed, the relatively most capable possessors own the stock, and the market for this good has come to a close. With arrival at equilibrium, the exchanges have shifted the goods to the most capable possessors, and there is no further motive for exchange. 
the market has ended, and there is no longer an active ruling market price for either good, because there is no longer any motive for exchange. Yet, in our experience, the markets for almost all goods are being continually renewed. The market can be renewed again only if there is a change in the relative position of the two goods under consideration on the value scales of at least two individuals, one of them a possessor of one good and the other a possessor of the second good. Exchanges will then take place in a quantity and at a final price determined by the intersection of the new combination of supply and demand schedules. This may set a different quantity of exchanges at the old equilibrium price or at a new price, depending on their specific content. Or it may happen that the new combination of schedules in the new period of time will be identical with the old, and therefore set the same quantity of exchanges and the same price as on the old market. The market is always tending quickly toward its equilibrium position, and the wider the market is, and the better the communication among its participants, the more quickly will this position be established for any set of schedules. Furthermore, a growth of specialized speculation will tend to improve the forecasts of the equilibrium point, and hasten the arrival at equilibrium. However, in those cases where the market does not arrive at equilibrium before the supply or demand schedules themselves change, the market does not reach the equilibrium point. It becomes continuous, moving toward a new equilibrium position before the old one has been reached. This situation is not likely to arise in the case of the market equilibria described earlier, Generally, a market tends to clear itself quickly by establishing its equilibrium price, after which a certain number of exchanges take place, leading toward what has been termed the plain state of rest, the condition after the various exchanges have taken place. These equilibrium market prices, however, as will be seen in later chapters, in turn tend to move toward certain long-run equilibria, in accordance with the demand schedule and the effect on the size of stock produced. The final state is never reached. If this is the effect of changes in the demand and supply schedules from one period of time to another, the next problem is to explain the causes of these changes themselves. A change in the demand schedule is due purely to a change in the relative utility rankings of the two goods, the purchase good and the sale good, on the value scales of the individual buyers on the market. An increase in the demand schedule, for example, signifies a general rise in the purchase good on the value scales of the buyers. This may be due to either a. a rise in the direct use value of the good, b. poorer opportunities to exchange the sale good for some other good, as a result, say, of a higher price of cows in terms of fish, or c. a decline in speculative waiting for the price of the good to fall further. The last case has been discussed in detail and has been shown to be self-correcting, impelling the market more quickly towards the true equilibrium. 
We can therefore omit this case now and conclude that an increase in the demand schedule is due either to an increase in the direct use value of the good or to a higher price of other potential purchase goods in terms of the sale good that buyers offer in exchange. A decrease in demand schedules is due precisely to the converse cases, a fall in the value in direct use or greater opportunities to buy other purchase goods for this sale good. The latter would mean a greater exchange value of fish, for example, in other fields of exchange. Changes in opportunities for other types of exchange may be a result of higher or lower prices for the other purchase goods, or they may be the result of the fact that new types of goods are being offered for fish on the market. The sudden appearance of cows being offered for fish, where none had been offered before, is a widening of exchange opportunities for fish, and will result in a general decline of the demand for horses in terms of fish. A change in the market supply is, of course, also the result of a change in the relative rankings of utility on the seller's value scales. This, however, may be broken down into the amount of physical stock and the reservation demand schedule of the sellers. If we assume that the amount of physical stock is constant in the two periods under comparison, then a shift in supply is purely the result of a change in reservation demand. A decrease in the supply caused by an increase in reservation demand for the stock may be due to either a. an increase in the direct use value of the good for the sellers, b. greater opportunities for making exchanges for other purchase goods, or c. a greater speculative anticipation of a higher price in the future. Conversely, a fall in the reservation demand schedule may be due to either a. a decrease in the direct use value of the good to the sellers, or b. a dwindling of exchange opportunities for other purchase goods. Thus, with the total stock constant, changes in both supply and demand are due solely to changes in the demand to hold the good by either sellers or buyers, which in turn are due to shifts in the relative utility of the two goods. From the beginning of the supply-demand analysis up to this point, we have been assuming the existence of a constant physical stock. Thus, we have been assuming the existence of eight horses, and have been considering the principles on which this stock will go into the hands of different possessors. The analysis above applies to all goods, to all cases where an existing stock is being exchanged for the stock of another good. For some goods, this point is as far as analysis can be pursued. This applies to those goods of which the stock is fixed and cannot be increased through production. They are either once produced by man or given by nature, but the stock cannot be increased by human action. Such a good, for example, is a Rembrandt painting after the death of Rembrandt. Such a painting would rank high enough on individual value scales to command a high price in exchange for other goods. 
The stock can never be increased, however, and its exchange and pricing is solely in terms of the previously analyzed exchange of existing stock, determined by the relative rankings of these and other goods on numerous value scales. Or assume that a certain quantity of diamonds has been produced, and no more diamonds are available anywhere. Again, the problem would be solely one of exchanging the existing stock. In these cases, there is no further problem of production, of deciding how much of a stock should be produced in a certain period of time. For most goods, however, the problem of deciding how much to produce is a crucial one. Much of the remainder of this volume, in fact, is devoted to an analysis of the problem of production. We shall now proceed to cases in which the existing stock of a good changes from one period to another. A stock may increase from one period to the next because an amount of the good has been newly produced in the meantime. This amount of new production constitutes an addition to the stock. Thus, three days after the beginning of the horse market referred to above, two new horses might be produced and added to the existing stock. If the demand schedule of buyers and the reservation demand schedule of sellers remain the same, the increased stock will lower the price of the good. At the old equilibrium price, individuals find that their stock is in excess of the total demand to hold, and the consequence is an underbidding to sell that lowers the price to the new equilibrium. In terms of supply and demand, an increase in stock, with demand and reservation demand schedules remaining the same, is equivalent to a uniform increase in the supply schedule by the amount of the increased stock, in this case by two horses. The amount supplied would be the former total plus the added two. Possessors with an excess of stock at the old equilibrium price must underbid each other in order to sell the increased stock. The increased stock is reflected in a uniform increase in the supply and a consequent fall in price and an increase in the quantity exchanged. Of course, there is no reason to assume that, in reality, an increased stock will necessarily be accompanied by an unchanged reservation demand. But in order to study the various causal factors that interact to form the actual historical result, it is necessary to isolate each one and consider what would be its effect if the others remained unchanged. Thus, if an increased stock were at the same time absorbed by an equivalent increase in the reservation demand schedule, the supply would not increase at all, and the price and quantity exchanged would remain unchanged. On the total demand stock schedule, this situation would be reflected in an increase in stock accompanied by an offsetting rise in the total demand, leaving the price at the original level. A decrease in stock from one period to another may result from the using up of the stock. Thus, if we consider only consumers' goods, a part of the stock may be consumed. Since goods are generally used up in the process of consumption, 
If there is not sufficient production during the time considered, the total stock in existence may decline. Thus, one new horse may be produced, but two may die, from one point of time to the next, and the result may be a market with one less horse in existence. A decline in stock, with demand remaining the same, has the exactly reverse effect. At the old equilibrium price, there is an excess demand to hold compared to the stock available, and the result is an upbidding of prices to the new equilibrium. The supply schedule uniformly decreases by the decrease in stock, and the result is a higher price and a smaller quantity of goods exchanged. Thus, in the case just mentioned, if the original stock is eight horses and one new horse is produced while two die, the new stock of the good is eight plus one minus two equals seven horses. It is important to be on one's guard here against a common confusion over such a term as an increase in demand. Whenever this phrase is used by itself in this work, it always signifies an increase in the demand schedule, that is, an increase in the amounts that will be demanded at each hypothetical price. This always tends to cause an increase in price. It must never be confused with the increase in quantity demanded that takes place, for example, in response to an increased supply. An increased supply schedule by lowering price induces the market to demand the larger quantity offered. This, however, is not an increase in the demand schedule, but an extension along the same demand schedule. It is a larger quantity demanded in response to a more attractive price offer. This simple movement along the same schedule must not be confused with an increase in the demand schedule at each possible price. 10. Specialization and Production of Stock We have analyzed the exchanges that take place in existing stock and the effect of changes in the stock of a good. The question still remains, on what principles is the size of the stock itself determined? Aside from the consumer's or producer's goods given directly by nature, all goods must be produced by man, and even seemingly nature-given products must be searched for and then used by man, and hence are ultimately products of human effort. The size of the stock of any good depends on the rate at which the good has been and is being produced, and since human wants for most goods are continuous, the goods that are worn out through use must constantly be replaced by new production. An analysis of the rate of production and its determinants is thus of central importance in an analysis of human action. A complete answer to this problem cannot be given at this point, but certain general conclusions on production can be made. In the first place, while any one individual can at different times be both a buyer and a seller of existing stock, in the production of that stock there must be specialization. This omnipresence of specialization has been treated above, 
and the further an exchange economy develops, the further advanced will be the specialization process. The basis for specialization has been shown to be the varying abilities of men and the varying location of natural resources. The result is that a good comes first into existence by production, and then is sold by its producer in exchange for some other good, which has been produced in the same way. The initial sales of any new stock will all be made by original producers of the good. Purchases will be made by buyers who will use the good either for their direct use or for holding the good in speculative anticipation of later reselling it at a higher price. At any given time, therefore, new stock will be sold by its original producers. The old stock will be sold by a. original producers who, through past reservation demand, had accumulated old stock, b. Previous buyers who had bought in speculative anticipation of reselling at a higher price, and c. Previous buyers on whose value scales the relative utility of the good for their direct use has fallen. At any time, then, the market supply schedule is formed by the addition of the supply schedules of the following groups of sellers. A. The supply offered by producers of the good. 1. The initial supply of new stock. 2. The supply of old stock previously reserved by the producers. B. The supply of old stock offered by previous buyers. 1. Sales by speculative buyers who had anticipated reselling at a higher price. 2. Sales by buyers who had purchased for direct use, but on whose value scales the relative utility of the good has fallen. The market demand schedule at any time consists of the sum of the demand schedules of C. Buyers for direct use, and D. Speculative buyers for resale at a higher price. Since the good consists of equally serviceable units, the buyers are necessarily indifferent as to whether it is old or new stock that they are purchasing. If they are not, then the stock refers to two different goods and not the same good. The supply of the class B type of sellers has already been fully analyzed earlier. For example, the relationship between stock and reservation demand for speculative resellers and for those whose utility position has changed. What more can be said, however, of the supply schedule of the Class A sellers, the original producers of the good? In the first place, the stock of newly produced goods in the hands of the producers is also fixed for any given point in time. Say that for the month of December, the producers of copper decide to produce 5,000 tons of copper. At the end of that month, their stock of newly produced copper is 5,000 tons. They might regret their decision and believe that if they could have made it again, they would have produced, say, 1,000 tons, but they have their stock and they must use it as best they can. 
The distinguishing feature of the original producers is that, as a result of specialization, the direct use value of their product to them is likely to be almost non-existent. The further specialization proceeds, the less possible use value the product can have for its producer. Picture, for example, how much copper a copper manufacturer could consume in his personal use, or the direct use value of the huge number of produced automobiles to the Ford family. Therefore, in the supply schedule of the producers, the direct use element in their reservation demand disappears. The only reason for a producer to reserve, to hold on to any of his stock, is speculative, in anticipation of a higher price for the good in the future. In direct exchange, there is also the possibility of exchange for a third good, say, cows instead of fish, in our example. The removal of direct use value from the calculation of the sellers signifies that all the stock must eventually be sold, so that ultimately none of the stock can be reserved from sale by the producers. The producers will make their sales at that point at which they expect the market price to be the greatest that they can attain, that is, at the time when the market demand for the given stock is expected to be the greatest. Strictly, of course, costs of storage will have to be considered in their calculations. The length of time that producers can reserve supply is, of course, dependent on the durability of the good. A highly perishable good, like strawberries, for example, could not be reserved for long. Suppose that an equilibrium price for a good has been reached on the market. In this case, the speculative element of reservation demand drops out. However, in contrast to the market in re-exchange of existing stock, the market for new production does not end. Since wants are always being renewed in each successive period of time, new stock will also be produced in each period, and if the amount of stock is the same and the demand schedule given, the same amount will continue to be sold at the same equilibrium price. Thus, suppose that the copper producers produce 5,000 tons in a month. These are sold, no reservation demand, at the equilibrium price. The following month, if 5,000 tons are produced, the equilibrium price will be the same. If more is produced, then the equilibrium price is lower. If less, the equilibrium price will be higher. If the speculative elements are also excluded from the demand schedule, it is clear that this schedule will be determined solely by the utility of the good in direct use, as compared with the utility of the sale good. The only two elements in the value of a good are its direct use value and its exchange value and the demand schedule consists of demand for direct use plus the speculative demand in anticipation of reselling at a higher price. If we exclude the latter element, for example at the equilibrium price, the only ultimate source of demand is the direct use value of the good to the purchaser.
If we abstract from the speculative elements in a market, therefore, the sole determinant of the market price of the stock of a good is its relative direct use value to its purchasers. It is clear, as has been shown in previous sections, that production must take place over a period of time. To obtain a certain amount of new stock at some future date, the producer must first put into effect a series of acts, using labor, nature, and capital goods. And the process must take time from the initial and intermediary acts until the final stock is produced. Therefore, the essence of specialized production is anticipation of the future state of the market by the producers. In deciding whether or not to produce a certain quantity of stock by a future date, the producer must use his judgment in estimating the market price at which he will be able to sell his stock. This market price is likely to be at some equilibrium, but an equilibrium is not likely to last for more than a short time. This is especially true when, as a result of ever-changing value scales, the demand curve for the good continually shifts. Each producer tries to use his resources, his labor and useful goods, in such a way as to obtain, in the production of stock, the maximum psychic revenue, and hence a psychic profit. He is ever liable to error, and errors in anticipating the market will bring him a psychic loss. The essence of production for the market, therefore, is entrepreneurship. The key consideration is that the demand schedules, and consequently the future prices, are not and can never be definitely and automatically known to the producers. They must estimate the future state of demand as best they can. Entrepreneurship is also the dominant characteristic of buyers and sellers who act speculatively, who specialize in anticipating higher or lower prices in the future. Their entire action consists in attempts to anticipate future market prices, and their success depends on how accurate or erroneous their forecasts are. Since, as was seen earlier, correct speculation quickens the movement toward equilibrium, and erroneous speculation tends to correct itself, the activity of these speculators tends to hasten the arrival of an equilibrium position. The direct users of a good must also anticipate their desires for a good when they purchase it. At the time of purchase, their actual use of a good will be at some date in the future, even if in the very near future. The position of the good on their value scales is an estimate of its expected future value in these periods, discounted by time preferences. It is very possible for the buyer to make an erroneous forecast of the value of the good to him in the future, and the more durable the good, the greater the likelihood of error. Thus, it is more likely that the buyer of a house will be in error in forecasting his own future valuation than the buyer of strawberries. Hence, entrepreneurship is also a feature of the buyer's activity, even in direct use. 
However, in the case of specialized producers, entrepreneurship takes the form of estimating other people's future wants, and this is obviously a far more difficult and challenging task than forecasting one's own valuations. Human action occurs in stages, and at each stage, an actor must make the best possible use of his resources in the light of expected future developments. The past is forever bygone. The role of errors in different stages of human action may be considered in the comparatively simple case of the man who buys a good for direct use. Say that his estimate of his future uses is such that he purchases a good, for example, ten quarts of milk, in exchange for one hundred barrels of fish, which also happens to be his maximum buying price for ten quarts of milk. Suppose that after the purchase is completed, he finds, for some reason, that his valuations have changed, and that the milk is now far lower on his value scale. He is now confronted with the question of the best use to make of the ten quarts of milk. The fact that he has made an error in using his resources of one hundred barrels of fish does not remove the problem of making the best use of the ten quarts of milk. If the price is still one hundred barrels of fish, his best course at present would be to resell the milk and reobtain the one hundred barrels of fish. If the price is now above one hundred, he has made a speculative gain, and he can resell the milk for more fish. And if the price of milk has fallen, but the fish is still higher on his value scale than the ten quarts of milk, it would maximize his psychic revenue to sell the milk for less than one hundred barrels of fish. It is important to recognize that it is absurd to criticize such an action by saying that he suffered a clear loss of X barrels of fish from the two exchanges. To be sure, if he had correctly forecast later developments, the man would not have made the original exchange. His original exchange can therefore be termed erroneous in retrospect. But once the first exchange has been made, he must make the best possible present and future use of the milk, regardless of past errors, and therefore his second exchange was his best possible choice under the circumstances. If, on the other hand, the price of milk has fallen below his new minimum buying price, then his best alternative is to use the milk in its most valuable direct use. Similarly, a producer might decide to produce a certain amount of stock, and after the stock has been made, the state of the market turns out to be such as to make him regret his decision. However, he must do the best he can with the stock once it has been produced, and obtain the maximum psychic revenue from it. In other words, if we consider his action from the beginning, when he invested his resources in production, his act in retrospect was a psychic loss because it did not yield the best available alternative from these resources. But once the stock is produced, this is his available resource, and its sale at the best possible price now nets him a psychic gain.
At this point, we may summarize the expected psychic revenue and the expected psychic cost factors that enter into the decision of buyers and sellers in any direct exchange of two goods. The buyer's revenue is either a direct use of purchase good or b anticipated later sale at higher price, whichever is the greater on his value scale. Seller revenue is either a direct use of sale good, or b anticipated later purchase at lower price, whichever is the greater on his value scale. Buyer cost is either a direct use of sale good, or b anticipated later purchase at lower price, or c exchange for a third good. Whichever is the greatest on his value scale, seller cost is either a direct use of purchase good, or b exchange for a third good, or c later sale at a higher price. Whichever is the greatest on his value scale. If we eliminate the temporary speculative element. If we consider the sellers as the specialized original producers, and this will be more true the greater the proportion of the rate of production to accumulated stock, and if we also remember that since the exchange involves two goods, the set of buyers for one good is the set of sellers for the other good. Then the revenue for both the buyers and the sellers is the expected direct use of the goods acquired. The costs are the exchange for a third good that is foregone because of this exchange. The revenue and costs that are involved in making the original decision regarding the production of stock are, as we have indicated, of a different order, and these will be explored in subsequent chapters. Eleven types of exchangeable goods. For the sake of clarity, the examples of exchangeable goods in this chapter have mainly been taken from tangible commodities such as horses, fish, eggs, etc. Such commodities are not the only type of goods subject to exchange. However, A may exchange his personal services for the commodity of B. Thus, for example, A may give his labor services to farmer B in exchange for farm produce. Furthermore, A may give personal services that function directly as consumers' goods in exchange for another good. An individual may thus exchange his medical advice or his musical performance for food or clothing. These services are as legitimately consumers' goods as those goods that are embodied in tangible, physical commodities. Similarly, individual labor services are as much producers' goods as are tangible capital goods. As a matter of fact, tangible goods are valued not so much for their physical content as for their services to the user, whether he is a consumer or a producer. The actor values the bread for its services in providing nourishment, the house for its services in providing shelter, the machine for its service in producing a lower-order good, 
In the last analysis, tangible commodities are also valued for their services, and are thus on the same plane as intangible personal services. Economics, therefore, is not a science that deals particularly with material goods or material welfare. It deals in general with the action of men to satisfy their desires, and specifically with the process of exchange of goods as a means for each individual to produce satisfactions for his desires. These goods may be tangible commodities, or they may be intangible personal services. The principles of supply and demand, of price determination, are exactly the same for any good, whether it is in one category or the other. The foregoing analysis is applicable to all goods. Thus, the following types of possible exchanges have been covered by our analysis. A. A commodity for a commodity, such as horses for fish. B. A commodity for a personal service, such as medical advice for butter or farm labor for food. C. A personal service for a personal service, such as mutual log rolling by two settlers, or medical advice for gardening labor, or teaching for a musical performance. In cases where there are several competing homogeneous units, supply and demand schedules can be added. In cases where one or both parties are isolated, or are the only ones exchanging, the zone of price determination will be established as indicated previously. Thus, if one arithmetic teacher is bargaining with one violinist for an exchange of services, their respective utility rankings will set the zone of price determination. If several arithmetic teachers and several violinists who provide homogeneous services form a market for their two goods, the market price will be formed with the addition and intersection of supply and demand schedules. If the services of the different individuals are not considered as of equal quality by the demanders, they will be evaluated separately, and each service will be priced separately. This is not to deny, of course, that the existence of several violinists of different quality will affect the consumer's evaluations of each one. One evident reason for the confusion of exchange with a mere trade of material objects is the fact that much intangible property cannot, by its very nature, be exchanged. A violinist may own his musicianly ability and exchange units of it in the form of service for the services of a physician, but other personal attributes which cannot be exchanged may be desired as goods. Thus, Brown might have a desired end, to gain the genuine approval of Smith. This is a particular consumer's good which he cannot purchase with any other good, for what he wants is the genuine approval rather than a show of approval that might be purchased. In this case, the consumer's good is a property of Smith's that cannot be exchanged. It might be acquired in some way, but not by exchange. In relation to exchange, this intangible good is an inalienable property of Smith's, that is, it cannot be given up. 
Another example is that a man cannot permanently transfer his will, even though he may transfer much of his services and his property. As mentioned above, a man may not agree to permanent bondage by contracting to work for another man for the rest of his life. He might change his mind at a later date, and then he cannot, in a free market, be compelled to continue working thereafter. Because a man's self-ownership over his will is inalienable, he cannot, on the unhampered market, be compelled to continue an arrangement whereby he submits his will to the orders of another, even though he might have agreed to this arrangement previously. If he has taken the property of another by means of such an agreement, he will, on the free market, have to return the property. Thus, if A has agreed to work for life for B in exchange for 10,000 grams of gold, he will have to return the proportionate amount of property if he terminates the arrangement and ceases the work. In other words, he cannot make enforceable contracts binding his future personal actions. This applies also to marriage contracts. Since human self-ownership cannot be alienated, a man or a woman on a free market could not be compelled to continue in marriage if he or she no longer desired to do so. This is regardless of any previous agreement. Thus, a marriage contract, like an individual labor contract, is on an unhampered market, terminable at the will of either one of the parties. On the other hand, when property that can be alienated is transferred, it, of course, becomes the property under the sole and exclusive jurisdiction of the person who has received it in exchange, and no later regret by the original owner can establish any claim to the property. Thus, exchange may occur with alienable goods. They may be consumers' goods of varying degrees of durability, or they may be producers' goods. They may be tangible commodities or intangible personal services. There are other types of exchangeable items which are based on these alienable goods. For example, suppose that Jones deposits a good, say 1,000 bushels of wheat, in a warehouse for safekeeping. He retains ownership of the good, but transfers its physical possession to the warehouse owner, Green, for safekeeping. Green gives Jones a warehouse receipt for the wheat, certifying that the wheat is there for safekeeping and giving the owner of the receipt a claim to receive the wheat whenever he presents the receipt to the warehouse. In exchange for this service as a guardian of the wheat, Jones pays him a certain agreed amount of some other good, say, emeralds. Thus, the claim originates from an exchange of a commodity for a service, emeralds for storage, and the price of this exchange is determined according to the principles of the foregoing analysis. Now, however, the warehouse receipt has come into existence as a claim to the wheat. On an unhampered market, the claim would be regarded as absolutely secure and certain to be honored and therefore Jones would be able to exchange the claim as a substitute for actual physical exchange of the wheat. He might find another party, Robinson, who wishes to purchase the wheat in exchange for horses. 
They agree on a price, and then Robinson accepts the claim on the warehouse as a perfectly good substitute for actual transfer of the wheat. He knows that when he wants to use the wheat, he will be able to redeem the claim at the warehouse. The claim therefore functions here as a goods substitute. In this case, the claim is to a present good, since the good can be redeemed at any time that the owner desires. Here, the nature and function of the claim is simple. The claim is a secure evidence of ownership of the good. Even simpler is a case where ownership of property, say a farm, is transferred from A to B by transferring written title, or evidence of ownership, which may be considered a claim. The situation becomes more complicated, however, when ownership is divided into pieces, and these pieces are transferred from person to person. Thus, suppose that Harrison is the owner of an iron mine. He decides to divide up the ownership and sell the various divided pieces or shares of the good to other individuals. Assume that he creates 100 tickets, with the total constituting the full ownership of the mine, and then sells all but 10 tickets to numerous other individuals. The owner of two shares then becomes a 2% owner of the mine. Since there is very little practical scope for such activity in a regime of direct exchange, analysis of this situation will be reserved for later chapters. It is clear, however, that the 2% owner is entitled to his proportionate share of direction and control of, and revenue from, the jointly owned property. In other words, the share is evidence of part ownership, or a claim to part ownership of a good. This property right in a proportionate share of the use of a good can also be sold or bought in exchange. A third type of claim arises from a credit exchange, or credit transaction. Up to this point, we have been discussing exchanges of one present good for another, that is, the good can be used at present or at any desired time by each receiver in the exchange. In a credit transaction, a present good is exchanged for a future good, or rather, a claim on a future good. Suppose, for example, that Jackson desires to acquire 100 pounds of cotton at once. He makes the following exchange with Peters. Peters to give Jackson 100 pounds of cotton now, a present good. And, in return, Jackson gives Peters a claim on 110 pounds of cotton one year from now. This is a claim on a future good. 110 pounds of cotton one year from now. The price of the present good in terms of the future good is 1.1 pounds of future cotton one year from now per pound of present cotton. Prices in such exchanges are determined by value scales and the meeting of supply and demand schedules, just as in the case of exchanges of present goods. Further analysis of the pricing of credit transactions must be left for later chapters. 
Here it may be pointed out that, as explained in the previous chapter, every man will evaluate a homogeneous good more highly the earlier in time is his prospect of attaining it. A present good, a good consisting of units capable of rendering equivalent satisfaction, will always be valued more highly than the same good in the future, in accordance with the individual's rate of time preference. It is evident that the various rates of time preference, ultimately determined by relative positions on individual value scales, will act to set the price of credit exchanges. Moreover, the receiver of the present good, the debtor, will always have to repay a greater amount of the good in the future to the creditor, the man who receives the claim, since the same number of units is worth more as a present good than as a future good. The creditor is rendering the debtor the service of using a good in the present, while the debtor pays for this service by repaying a greater amount of the good in the future. At the date when the claim finally falls due, the creditor redeems the claim and acquires the good itself, thus ending the existence of the claim. In the meanwhile, however, the claim is in existence, and it can be bought and sold in exchange for other goods. Thus, Peters, the creditor, might decide to sell the claim, or promissory note, to Williams in exchange for a wagon. The price of this exchange will again be determined by supply and demand schedules. Demand for the note will be based on its security as a claim to the cotton. Thus, Williams' demand for the note, or Peter's demand to hold in terms of wagons, will be based on a. the direct utility and exchange value of the wagon, and b. the marginal utility of the added units of cotton discounted by him on two possible grounds. 1. the length of time the claim has left until the date of maturity, and 2. the estimate of the security of the note. Thus, the less time there remains to elapse for a claim to any given good, the higher will it tend to be valued in the market. Also, if the eventual payment is considered less than absolutely secure because of possible failure to redeem, the claim will be valued less highly in accordance with people's estimates of the likelihood of its failure. After a note has been transferred, it becomes the property of the new owner, who becomes the creditor, and will be entitled to redeem the claim when due. When a claim is thus transferred in exchange for some other good or claim, this in itself is not a credit transaction. A credit exchange sets up an unfinished payment on the part of the debtor, in this case, Peters pays Williams the claim in return for the other good, and the transaction is finished. Jackson, on the other hand, remains the debtor as a result of the original transaction, which remains unfinished until he makes his agreed-upon payment to the creditor on the date of maturity. In a credit transaction, it is not necessary for the present and the future goods exchanged to be the same commodity. Thus, a man can sell wheat now in exchange for a certain amount of corn at a future date. 
The example in the text, however, highlights the importance of time preference and is also more likely to occur in practice. The several types of claims, therefore, are on present goods, by such means as warehouse receipts or shares of joint ownership in a good, and on future goods, arising from credit transactions. These are evidences of ownership, or, as in the latter case, objects that will become evidence of ownership at a later date. Thus, in addition to the three types of exchanges mentioned earlier, there are three other types whose terms and principles are included in the preceding analysis of this chapter. D. A commodity for a claim. Examples of this are 1. The deposit of a commodity for a warehouse receipt. The claim to a present good. 2. A credit transaction with a commodity exchanged for a claim to a future commodity. 3. The purchase of shares of stock in a commodity by exchanging another type of commodity for them. 4. The purchase of promissory notes on a debtor by exchanging a commodity. All four of these cases have been described. E. A claim for a service. An example is personal service being exchanged for a promissory note, or warehouse receipt, or stock. F. A claim for a claim. Examples would be exchange of a promissory note for another one, of stock shares for a note, of one type of stock share for another, of a warehouse receipt for any of the other types of claims. With all goods analyzable into categories of tangible commodities, services, or claims to goods, goods substitutes, all six possible types of exchanges are covered by the utility and supply-demand analysis of this chapter. In each case, different concrete considerations enter into the formation of the value scales, such as time preference in the case of credit exchanges and this permits more to be said about the various specific types of exchanges. The level of analysis presented in this chapter, however, encompasses all possible exchanges of goods. In later chapters, when indirect exchange has been introduced, the present analysis will apply also, but further analysis will be made of production and exchange problems involved in credit exchanges, time preference, in exchanges for capital goods and consumer goods, and in exchanges for labor services, wages. 12. Property, the appropriation of raw land. As we have stated previously, the origin of all property is ultimately traceable to the appropriation of an unused, nature-given factor by a man, and his mixing his labor with this natural factor to produce a capital good or a consumer's good. For when we trace back through gifts and through exchanges, we must reach a man and an unowned natural resource. In a free society, any piece of nature that has never been used is unowned and is subject to a man's ownership through his first use or mixing of his labor with this resource. 
How will an individual's title to the nature-given factor be determined? If Columbus lands on a new continent, is it legitimate for him to proclaim all the new continent his own, or even that sector as far as his eye can see? Clearly, this would not be the case in the free society that we are postulating. Columbus or Crusoe would have to use the land, to cultivate it in some way, before he could be asserted to own it. This cultivation does not have to involve tilling the soil, although that is one possible form of cultivation. If the natural resource is land, he may clear it for a house or a pasture, or care for some plots of timber, etc., if there is more land than can be used by a limited labor supply, then the unused land must simply remain unowned until a first user arrives on the scene. Any attempt to claim a new resource that someone does not use would have to be considered invasive of the property right of whoever the first user will turn out to be. There is no requirement, however, that land continue to be used in order for it to continue to be a man's property. Suppose that Jones uses some new land, then finds it is unprofitable and lets it fall into disuse. Or suppose that he clears new land and therefore obtains title to it, but then finds that it is no longer useful in production and allows it to remain idle. In a free society, would he lose title? No, for once his labor is mixed with the natural resource, it remains his owned land. His labor has been irretrievably mixed with the land, and the land is therefore his or his assigns in perpetuity. We shall see in later chapters that the question whether or not labor has been mixed with land is irrelevant to its market price or capital value. In catalactics, the past is of no interest. In establishing the ownership of property, however, the question is important, for once the mixture takes place, the man and his heirs have appropriated the nature-given factor— and for anyone else to seize it would be an invasive act. As Volovsky and Levasseur state, nature has been appropriated by him, man, for his use. She has become his own. She is his property. This property is legitimate. It constitutes a right as sacred for man as is the free exercise of his faculties, it is his because it has come entirely from himself, and is in no way anything but an emanation from his being. Before him there was scarcely anything but matter. Since him and by him there is interchangeable wealth. The producer has left a fragment of his own person in the thing which has thus become valuable, and may hence be regarded as a prolongation of the faculties of man acting upon external nature. As a free being, he belongs to himself. Now the cause, that is to say, the productive force, is himself. The effect, that is to say, the wealth produced, is still himself. Who shall dare contest his title of ownership, so clearly marked by the seal of his personality? 
Some critics, especially the Henry Georgists, assert that while a man or his assigns may be entitled to the produce of his own labor or anything exchanged for it, he is not entitled to an original nature-given factor, a gift of nature. For one man to appropriate this gift is alleged to be an invasion of a common heritage that all men deserve to use equally. This is a self-contradictory position, however. A man cannot produce anything without the cooperation of original nature-given factors, if only as standing room. In order to produce and possess any capital good or consumer's good, therefore, he must appropriate and use an original nature-given factor. He cannot form products purely out of his labor alone. He must mix his labor with original nature-given factors. Therefore, if property and land or other nature-given factors is to be denied man, he cannot obtain property in the fruits of his labor. Furthermore, in the question of land, it is difficult to see what better title there is than the first bringing of this land from a simple, unvaluable thing into the sphere of production. For that is what the first user does. He takes a factor that was previously unowned and unused, and therefore worthless to anyone, and converts it into a tool for production of capital and consumer's goods. While such questions as communism of property will be discussed in later parts of this book, it is difficult indeed to see why the mere fact of being born should automatically confer upon one some aliquot part of the world's land. For the first user has mixed his labor with the land, while neither the newborn child nor his ancestors have done anything with the land at all. The problem will be clearer if we consider the case of animals. Animals are economic land, because they are equivalent to physical land in being original, nature-given factors of production. Yet will anyone deny title to a cow to the man that finds and domesticates her, putting her to use? For this is precisely what occurs in the case of land. Previously valueless wild land, like wild animals, is taken and transformed by a man into goods useful for man. The mixing of labor gives equivalent title in one case as in the other. We must remember also what production entails. When man produces, he does not create matter. He uses given materials and transforms and rearranges them into goods that he desires. In short, he moves matter further toward consumption. His finding of land or animals and putting them to use is also such a transformation. Even if the value accruing to a piece of land at present is substantial, therefore, it is only economic land because of the innumerable past efforts of men at work on the land. When we are considering legitimacy of title, the fact that land always embodies past labor becomes extremely important. If animals are also land in the sense of given original nature factors, so are water and air. We have seen that air is inappropriable, 
a condition of human welfare rather than a scarce good that can be owned. However, this is true only of air for breathing under usual conditions. For example, if some people want their air to be changed or conditioned, then they will have to pay for this service, and the conditioned air becomes a scarce good that is owned by its producers. Furthermore, if we understand by air the medium for the transmission of such things as radio waves and television images, there is only a limited quantity of wavelengths available for radio and for television purposes. This scarce factor is appropriable and ownable by man. In a free society, ownership of these channels would accrue to individuals just like that of land or animals the first users obtain the property. The first user, Jones, of the wavelength of 1,000 kilocycles, would be the absolute owner of this length for his wave area, and it will be his right to continue using it, to abandon it, to sell it, etc. Anyone else who set up a transmitter on the owner's wavelength would be as guilty of invasion of another's property right as a trespasser on someone else's land, or a thief of someone else's livestock. If a channel has to be a certain number of wavelengths in width in order to permit clear transmission, then the property would accrue to the first user in terms of such width. Federal ownership of airwaves was arrogated in the 1920s not so much to alleviate a preceding chaos as to forestall this very acquisition of private property rights in airwaves, which the courts were in the process of establishing according to common law principles. The same is true of water. Water, at least in rivers and oceans, has been considered by most people as also inappropriable and unownable, although it is conceded to be ownable in the cases of small lakes and wells. Now it is true that the high seas in relation to shipping lanes are probably inappropriable, because of their abundance in relation to shipping routes. It is rapidly becoming evident, however, that air lanes for planes are becoming scarce, and in a free society would be owned by first users, thus obviating a great many plane crashes. This is not true, however, of fishing rights in oceans. Fish are definitely not available in unlimited quantities relative to human wants. Therefore, they are appropriable their stock and source, just as the captured fish themselves. Indeed, nations are always quarreling about fishing rights. In a free society, fishing rights to the appropriate areas of oceans would be owned by the first users of those areas, and then usable or saleable to other individuals. Ownership of areas of water that contain fish is directly analogous to private ownership of areas of land or forests that contain animals to be hunted. Some people raise the difficulty that water flows and has no fixed position, as land does. This is a completely invalid objection, however. Land moves, too, as when soil is uprooted in dust storms. Most important, water can definitely be marked off in terms of latitudes and longitudes. 
These boundaries, then, would circumscribe the area owned by individuals, in the full knowledge that fish and water can move from one person's property to another. The value of the property would be gauged according to this knowledge. Flowing water should be owned in proportion to its rate of use by the first user, that is, by the appropriation rather than the riparian method of ownership. However, the appropriator would then have absolute control over his property, might transfer his share, etc., something which cannot be done in those areas, for example, states in the West, where an approach to appropriation ownership now predominates. Another argument is that appropriation of ownership by a first user would result in an uneconomic allocation of the nature-given factors. Thus suppose that one man can fence, cultivate, or otherwise use only five acres of a certain land, while the most economic allocation would be units of 15 acres. However, the rule of first ownership by the first user, followed in a free society, would not mean that ownership must end with this allocation. On the contrary, in this case, either the owners would pool their assets in one corporate form, or the most efficient individual owners would buy out the others, and the final size of each unit of land in production would be 15 acres. It must be added that the theory of land ownership in a free society set forth here, that is, first ownership by the first user, has nothing in common with another superficially similar theory of land ownership advanced by J.K. Ingalls and his disciples in the late 19th century. Ingalls advocated continuing ownership only for actual occupiers and personal users of the land. This is in contrast to original ownership by the first user. The Ingalls system would, in the first place, bring about a highly uneconomic allocation of land factors. Land sites where small homestead holdings are uneconomic would be forced into use in spite of this, and land would be prevented from entering other lines of use greatly demanded by consumers. Some land would be artificially and coercively withdrawn from use, since land that could not be used by owners in person would have to lie idle. Furthermore, this theory is self-contradictory, since it would not really permit ownership at all. One of the prime conditions of ownership is the right to buy, sell, and dispose of property as the owner or owners see fit. Since small holders would not have the right to sell to non-occupying large holders, the small holders would not really be owners of the land at all. The result is that on the ownership question, the Ingalls thesis reverts in the final analysis to the Georgist view that society in the alleged person of the state should own the land. 13. Enforcement Against Invasion of Property this work is largely the analysis of a market society unhampered by the use of violence or theft against any man's person or property. The question of the means by which this condition is best established is not at present under consideration. 
For the present purpose, it makes no difference whether this condition is established by every man's deciding to refrain from invasive action against others, or whether some agency is established to enforce the abandonment of such action by every individual. Invasive action may be defined as any action, violence, theft, or fraud, taking away another's personal freedom or property without his consent. Whether the enforcement is undertaken by each person or by some sort of agency, we assume here that such a condition, the existence of an unhampered market, is maintained in some way. One of the problems in maintaining the conditions of a free market is the role of the enforcing agency, whether individual or organizational, in exchange contracts. What type of contracts are to be enforced to maintain the conditions of an unhampered market? We have already seen that contracts assigning away the will of an individual cannot be enforced in such a market, because the will of each person is, by its nature, inalienable. On the other hand, if the individual made such a contract and received another's property in exchange, he must forfeit part or all of the property when he decides to terminate the agreement. We shall see that fraud may be considered as theft, because one individual receives the other's property but does not fulfill his part of the exchange bargain, thereby taking the other's property without his consent. This case provides the clue to the role of contract and its enforcement in the free society. Contract must be considered as an agreed-upon exchange between two persons of two goods, present or future. Persons would be free to make any and all property contracts that they wished, and for a free society to exist, all contracts where the good is naturally alienable must be enforced. Failure to fulfill contracts must be considered as theft of the other's property. Thus, when a debtor purchases a good in exchange for a promise of future payment, the good cannot be considered his property until the agreed contract has been fulfilled and payment made. Until then, it remains the creditor's property, and non-payment would be equivalent to theft of the creditor's property. An important consideration here is that contract not be enforced because a promise has been made that is not kept. It is not the business of the enforcing agency or agencies in the free market to enforce promises merely because they are promises. Its business is to enforce against theft of property, and contracts are enforced because of the implicit theft involved. Evidence of a promise to pay property is an enforceable claim, because the possessor of this claim is, in effect, the owner of the property involved, and failure to redeem the claim is equivalent to theft of the property. On the other hand, take the case of a promise to contribute personal services without an advance exchange of property. Thus, suppose that a movie actor agrees to act in three pictures for a certain studio for a year. Before receiving any goods in exchange, salary, he breaks the contract and decides not to perform the work. 
Since his personal will is inalienable, he cannot, on the free market, be forced to perform the work there. Further, since he has received none of the movie company property in exchange, he has committed no theft, and thus the contract cannot be enforced on the free market. Any suit for damages could not be entertained on an unhampered market. The fact that the movie company may have made considerable plans and investments on the expectation that the actor would keep the agreement may be unfortunate for the company, but it could not expect the actor to pay for its lack of foresight and poor entrepreneurship. It pays the penalty for placing too much confidence in the man. The movie actor has not received and kept any of the company's property, and therefore cannot be held accountable in the form of payment of goods as damages. This is true even if the actor had previously agreed in a contract that he would pay damages, for this is still merely a promise. He has not implicitly seized someone else's property. The object of an enforcing agency in a free society is not to uphold promise-keeping by force, but to redress any invasions of person and property. Any such enforced payment in the present case would be an invasion of the movie actor's property rights on the free market, rather than an attack upon invasion. It may be considered more moral to keep promises than to break them, but the condition of a free market is that each individual's rights of person and property be maintained, and not that some further standard of morals be coercively imposed on all. Any coercive enforcement of such a moral code, going beyond the abolition of invasive acts, would in itself constitute an invasion of individual rights of person and property, and be an interference in the free market. Sir Frederick Pollock thus describes original English contract law. Money debts, it is true, were recoverable from an early time. But this was not because the debtor had promised to repay the loan. It was because the money was deemed still to belong to the creditor, as if the identical coins were merely in the debtor's custody. The creditor sued to recover money, in exactly the same form which he would have used to demand possession of land. And down to Blackstone's time, the creditor was said to have a property in the debt, property which the debtor had granted him. Giving credit, in this way of thinking, is not reliance on the right to call thereafter for an act to be performed by the debtor, but merely suspension of the immediate right to possess one's own particular money, as the owner of a house lot suspends his right to occupy it. The foundation of the plaintiff's right was not bargain or promise, but the unjust detention by the defendant of the plaintiff's money or goods. It certainly would be consonant with the free market, however, for the movie company to ask the actor to pay a certain sum in consideration of his breaking the contract, and if he refuses, to refuse to hire him again, and to notify other prospective contracting parties, such as movie companies, of the person's action. It seems likely that his prospect of making exchanges in the future will suffer because of his action. 
Thus, the blacklist is permissible on the free market. Another legitimate action on the free market is the boycott, by which A urges B not to make an exchange with C for whatever reason. Since A's and B's actions are purely voluntary and non-invasive, there is no reason for a boycott not to be permitted on the unhampered market. On the contrary, any coercive action against a boycott is an invasion against the rights of free persons. If default on contracted debts is to be considered as equivalent to theft, then on the unhampered market its treatment by the enforcing agency will be similar to that of theft. It is clear, for example, in the case of burglary, that the recovery of the stolen property to its owner would be the fundamental consideration for the enforcing agency. Punishment of the wrongdoer would be a consideration subsidiary to the former. Thus, suppose A has stolen 100 ounces of gold from B. By the time A has been apprehended by the enforcing agency, he has dissipated the 100 ounces and has no assets by which the 100 ounces can be obtained. The main goal of the enforcement agency should be to force A to return the 100 ounces. Thus, instead of simply idle imprisonment, the agency could force the thief to labor and to attach his earnings to make up the amount of the theft, plus a compensation for the delay in time. Whether this forced labor is done in or out of prison is immaterial here. The main point is that the invader of another's rights on the free market gives up his rights to the same extent. The first consideration in the punishment of the aggressor against property in the free market is the forced return of the equivalent property. As Wordsworth Donisthorpe reminds us, in Rome one could recover stolen goods or damages for their loss by what we should call a civil process, without in the least affecting the relation between the thief and the public by reason of the theft. Restitution first and punishment afterwards was the rule. On the other hand, suppose that B voluntarily decides to forgive A and grant the latter a gift of the property. He refuses to press charges against the thief. In that case, the enforcement agency would take no action against the robber since he is now in the position of the receiver of a gift of property. This analysis provides the clue to the treatment of defaulting debtors on the free market. If a creditor decides to forget about the debt and not press charges, he, in effect, grants a gift of his property to the debtor, and there is no further room for enforcement of contract. What if the creditor insists on keeping his property? It is clear that if the debtor can pay the required amount but refuses to do so, he is guilty of pure fraud, and the enforcing agency would treat his act as such. Its prime move would be to make sure that the debtor's assets are transferred to their rightful owner, the creditor. But suppose that the debtor has not got the property and would be willing to pay if he had it. Does this entitle him to special privilege or coerced elimination of the debt, as in the case of bankruptcy laws? Clearly not. The prime consideration in the treatment of the debtor would be his continuing and primary responsibility to redeem the property of the creditor. 
The only way by which this treatment could be eliminated would be for the debtor and the creditor to agree, as part of the original contract, that if the debtor makes certain investments and fails to have the property at the date due, the creditor will forgive the debt. In short, he grants the debtor the rights of a partial co-owner of the property. There could be no room, in a free society such as we have outlined, for negotiable instruments. Where the government designates a good as negotiable, if A steals it from B and then sells it to C without the latter's knowledge of the theft, B cannot take the good back from C, despite the fact that A was a thief and had no proper title to the good. C is decreed to be the legitimate owner, and B has no way of regaining his property. The law of negotiability is evidently a clear infringement of property right. Where property rights are fully defended, theft cannot be compounded in this manner. The buyer would have to purchase at his own risk and make sure that the good is not stolen. If he nonetheless does buy stolen goods, he must try to obtain restitution from the thief and not at the expense of the rightful owner. What of a cartel agreement? Would that be enforceable in a free society? If there has been no exchange of property, and A, B, C firms agree among themselves to set quotas on their production of a good, this agreement would surely not be illegal but neither would it be enforceable. It could be only a simple promise and not an enforceable case of implicit theft. This reason for the unenforceability of a cartel agreement in a free society has no relation to any common law hostility to agreements allegedly in restraint of trade. One difficulty often raised against a free society of individual property rights is that it ignores the problem of external diseconomies or external costs. But cases of external diseconomy all turn out to be instances of failure of government, the enforcing agency, adequately to enforce individual property rights. The blame, therefore, rests not on the institution of private property, but on the failure of the government to enforce this property right against various subtle forms of invasion, the failure, for example, to maintain a free society. One instance of this failure is the case of smoke, as well as air pollution generally, Insofar as the outpouring of smoke by factories pollutes the air and damages the persons and property of others, it is an invasive act. It is equivalent to an act of vandalism, and in a truly free society would have been punished after court action brought by the victims. Air pollution, then, is not an example of a defect in a system of absolute property rights, but of failure on the part of the government to preserve property rights. Note that the remedy in a free society is not the creation of an administrative state bureau to prescribe regulations for smoke control. The remedy is judicial action to punish and proscribe pollution damage to the person and property of others. Noise is also an invasive act against another, a transmission of sound waves assaulting the eardrums of others.
In a free society, as we have stated, every man is a self-owner. No man is allowed to own the body or mind of another, that being the essence of slavery. This condition completely overthrows the basis for a law of defamation, that is, libel, written defamation, or slander, oral defamation. For the basis of outlawing defamation is that every man has a property in his own reputation, and that therefore any malicious or untruthful attack on him or his character, or even more, a truthful attack, injures his reputation and therefore should be punished. However, a man has no such objective property as reputation. His reputation is simply what others think of him, that is, it is purely a function of the subjective thoughts of others. But a man cannot own the minds or thoughts of others. Therefore, I cannot invade a man's property right by criticizing him publicly. Further, since I do not own others' minds either, I cannot force anyone else to think less of the man because of my criticism. Similarly, blackmail would not be illegal in the free society, for blackmail is the receipt of money in exchange for the service of not publicizing certain information about the other person. No violence or threat of violence to person or property is involved. The foregoing observations should firmly remind us that what the enforcing agency combats in a free society is invasion of the physical person and property, not injury to the values of property. For physical property is what the person owns. He does not have any ownership in monetary values, which are a function of what others will pay for his property. Thus, someone's vandalism against or robbery of a factory is an invasion of physical property and is outlawed. On the other hand, someone's shift from the purchase of this factory's product to the purchase of a competing factory's product may lower the monetary value of the former's property, but this is certainly not a punishable act. It is precisely the condition of a free society that a property owner have no unearned claim on the property of anyone else. Therefore, he has no vested right in the value of his property, only in its physical existence. As for the value, this must take its chance on the free market. This is the answer, for example, to those who believe that undesirable businesses or people must be legally prevented from moving into a certain neighborhood, because this may or will lower the existing property value. One method of acquiring property that we have not discussed yet is fraud. Fraud involves cases where one party to an agreed-upon exchange deliberately refuses to fulfill his part of the contract. He thus acquires the property of the other person, but he sacrifices either none of the agreed-upon goods or less than he had agreed. We have seen that a debtor's deliberate failure to pay his creditor is equivalent to an outright theft of the creditor's property. Another example of fraudulent action is the following exchange. Smith agrees to give up 15 ounces of gold to Jones in exchange for a package of certain specified chinaware. 
When he receives the package, after having given up the gold, Smith finds that he has received an empty crate, instead of the goods that the two had agreed to exchange. Jones has falsely represented the goods that he would exchange. And here again, this is equivalent to outright theft of Smith's property. Since the exchange has been made falsely, the actual form of which might not have been contracted had the other party not been deceived, this is not an example of voluntary exchange, but of one-sided theft. We therefore exclude both explicit violence and the implicit violence of fraud from our definition of the market, the pattern of voluntary interpersonal exchanges. At this point, we are dealing only with an analysis of the market unhampered by fraud or violence. We have not here been discussing what type of enforcing agency will be set up, or the means it will use, but what type of actions the agency will combat, and what type will be permissible. In a free market, all invasive acts by one person against another's property, either against his person or his material goods, will be combated by the enforcing agency or agencies. We are assuming here that there are no invasive acts in the society, either because no individuals commit them, or because they are successfully combated and prevented by some sort of enforcing agency. The problem then becomes one of defining invasive as distinguished from non-invasive acts, and this is what has been done here in various typical examples. Each man would be entitled to ownership over his own person and over any property that he has acquired by production, by appropriation of unowned factors, by receiving gifts, or by voluntary exchange. Never has the basis of the free, non-invasive, or voluntarist society been described more clearly in a brief space than by the British political philosopher Auberon Herbert. 1. The great natural fact of each person being born in possession of a separate mind and separate body implies the ownership of such mind and body by each person, and rights of direction over such mind and body. It will be found on examination that no other deduction is reasonable. 2. Such self-ownership implies the restraint of violent or fraudulent aggressions made upon it. 3. Individuals, therefore, have the right to protect themselves by force against such aggressions made forcibly or fraudulently, and they may delegate such acts of self-defense to a special body called a government. Condensed into a few words, our voluntarist formula would run, The sovereignty of the individual must remain intact, except where the individual coerced has aggressed upon the sovereignty of another unaggressive individual. Elaborating on the first point, Herbert continued, if there is one thing on which we can safely build, it is the great natural fact that each human being forms with his or her body and mind a separate entity, from which we must conclude that the entities belong to themselves and not to each other. As I have said, no other deduction is possible. 
If the entities do not belong to themselves, then we are reduced to the most absurd conclusion. A or B cannot own himself, but he can own or part own C or D. Chapter 3. The Pattern of Indirect Exchange 1. The Limitations of Direct Exchange we have seen in the previous chapter how exchange benefits each participant and how the division of labor on a market increases productivity. The only exchange so far discussed, however, has been direct exchange, or barter, the exchange of one useful good for another, each for purposes of direct use by the party to the exchange. Although a treatment of direct exchange is important for economic analysis, the scope for direct exchange in society is extremely limited. In a very primitive society, for example, Crusoe could employ Jackson to labor on his farm in exchange for a part of the farm produce. There could, however, be no advanced system of production in a direct exchange society, and no accumulation of capital in higher stages of production. Indeed, no production at all beyond the most primitive level. Thus, suppose that A is a house builder. He builds a house on contract and employs masons, carpenters, etc., in a regime of direct exchange, how would it be possible to pay these men? He could not give pieces of the house to each of the laborers. He would have to try to sell the house for precisely that combination of useful goods that each of the laborers and each of the sellers of raw material would accept. It is obvious that production could not be carried on and that the difficulties would be insuperable. This problem of the lack of coincidence of wants holds even for the simple direct exchange of consumers' goods, in addition to the insoluble problem of production. Thus, suppose that A, with a supply of eggs for sale, wants a pair of shoes in exchange. B has shoes but does not want eggs. There is no way for the two to get together. For anyone to sell the simplest commodity, he must find not only one who wants to purchase it, but one who has a commodity for sale that he wants to acquire. The market for anyone's commodities is therefore extremely limited. The extent of the market for any product is very small, and the scope for division of labor is negligible. Furthermore, someone with a less divisible commodity, such as a plow, is in worse straits. Suppose that D, with a plow, would like to exchange it for eggs, butter, shoes, and various other commodities. Obviously, he cannot divide his plow into several pieces and then exchange the various pieces for eggs, butter, etc. The value of each piece to the others would be practically nil. Under a system of direct exchange, a plow would have almost no marketability in exchange, and few, if any, would be produced. In addition to all these difficulties, which render a regime of direct exchange practically impossible, such a society could not solve the various problems of estimation, which, as was seen in Chapter 1, even Crusoe had to face. 
Since there would be no common denominator of units, there could be no way of estimating which line of production various factors should enter. Is it better to produce automobiles or tractors or houses or steel? Is it more productive to employ fewer men and more land on a certain product, or less land and more men? Is the capital structure being maintained or consumed? None of these questions could be answered, since in the stages beyond immediate consumption, there would be no way of comparing the usefulness or the productivity of the different factors or products. The conclusion is evident that no sort of civilized society can be built on the basis of direct exchange. And that direct exchange, as well as Crusoe-like isolation, could yield only an economy of the most primitive type. Two, the emergence of indirect exchange. The tremendous difficulties of direct exchange can be overcome only by indirect exchange, where an individual buys a commodity in exchange not as a consumer's good for the direct satisfaction of his wants, or for the production of a consumer's good, but simply to exchange again for another commodity that he does desire for consumption or for production. Offhand, this might seem a clumsy and roundabout operation. Actually, it is indispensable for any economy above the barely primitive level. Let us return, for example, to the case of A, with a supply of eggs, who wants a pair of shoes in exchange. B, the shoemaker, has shoes for sale, but does not desire any more eggs than he has in stock. A cannot acquire shoes by means of direct exchange. If A wants to purchase a pair of shoes, he must find out what commodity B does want in exchange and procure it. If A finds that B wants to acquire butter, A may exchange his eggs for the butter of C, and then exchange this butter for B's shoes. In this case, butter has been used as a medium of indirect exchange. The butter was worth more to A than the eggs. Say the exchange was ten dozen eggs for ten pounds of butter, then for one pair of shoes. Not because he wanted to consume the butter or to use the butter to produce some other good in a later stage of production, but because the butter greatly facilitated his obtaining the shoes in exchange. Thus, for A, the butter was more marketable than his eggs, and was worth purchasing because of its superior marketability. Or consider the enormous benefit that D, the owner of a plow, acquires by using a medium of exchange. D, who would like to acquire many commodities, but finds that his plow has a very limited marketability, can sell it in exchange for quantities of a more marketable commodity. For example, butter. Butter, for one thing, is more marketable because, unlike the plow, its nature is such that it does not lose its complete value when divided into smaller pieces. D now uses the butter as a medium of indirect exchange to obtain the various commodities that he desires to consume.
Just as it is fundamental to human experience that there is great variety in resources, goods desired, and human skills, so is there great variety in the marketability of various commodities. Tending to increase the marketability of a commodity are its demand for use by more people, its divisibility into small units without loss of value, its durability, and its transportability over large distances. It is evident that people can vastly increase the extent of the market for their own products and goods by exchanging them for more marketable commodities, and using the latter as media to exchange for goods that they desire. D first exchanges his plow for X1's butter, and then uses the butter to exchange for the various goods that he desires to use, with X2 for eggs, X3 for shoes, X4 for horses, etc. As the more marketable commodities in any society begin to be picked by individuals as media of exchange, their choices will quickly focus on the few most marketable commodities available, if D saw, for example, that eggs were a more marketable commodity than butter, he would exchange his plow for eggs instead, and use them as his medium in other exchanges. It is evident that, as the individuals center on a few selected commodities as the media of exchange, the demand for these commodities on the market greatly increases. For commodities, insofar as they are used as media, have an additional component in the demand for them, not only the demand for their direct use, but also a demand for their use as a medium of indirect exchange. This demand for their use as a medium is superimposed on the demand for their direct use, and this increase in the composite demand for the selected media greatly increases their marketability. Thus, if butter begins as one of the most marketable commodities, and is therefore more and more chosen as a medium, this increase in the market demand for butter greatly increases the very marketability that makes it useful as a medium in the first place. The process is cumulative, with the most marketable commodities becoming enormously more marketable, and with this increase spurring their use as media of exchange. The process continues, with an ever-widening gap between the marketability of the medium and the other commodities, until finally one or two commodities are far more marketable than any others, and are in general use as media of exchange. Economic analysis is not concerned about which commodities are chosen as media of exchange. That is subject matter for economic history. The economic analysis of indirect exchange holds true regardless of the type of commodity used as a medium in any particular community. Historically, many different commodities have been in common use as media. The people in each community tended to choose the most marketable commodity available, tobacco in colonial Virginia, sugar in the West Indies, salt in Abyssinia, cattle in ancient Greece, nails in Scotland, copper in ancient Egypt, and many others, including beads, tea, cowrie shells, and fish hooks.
Through the centuries, gold and silver, specie, have gradually evolved as the commodities most widely used as media of exchange. Among the factors in their high marketability have been their great demand as ornaments, their scarcity in relation to other commodities, their ready divisibility, and their great durability. In the last few hundred years, their marketable qualities have led to their general adoption as media throughout the world. A commodity that comes into general use as a medium of exchange is defined as being a money. It is evident that whereas the concept of a medium of exchange is a precise one, and indirect exchange can be distinctly separated from direct exchange, the concept of money is a less precise one. The point at which a medium of exchange comes into common or general use is not strictly definable, and whether or not a medium is a money can be decided only by historical inquiry and the judgment of the historian. However, for purposes of simplification, and since we have seen that there is a great impetus on the market for a medium of exchange to become money, we shall henceforth refer to all media of exchange as monies. 3. Some Implications of the Emergence of Money the establishment of a money on the market enormously increases the scope for specialization and division of labor, immensely widens the market for every product, and makes possible a society on a civilized productive level. Not only are the problems of coincidence of wants and indivisibility of goods eliminated, but individuals can now construct an ever-expanding edifice of remote stages of production to arrive at desired goods. Intricate and remote stages of production are now possible, and specialization can extend to every part of a production process as well as to the type of good produced. Thus, an automobile producer can sell an automobile in exchange for the money, for example, butter or gold, and then exchange the gold partly for labor, partly for steel, partly for chrome, partly for rubber tires, etc. The steel producers can exchange the gold partly for labor, partly for iron, partly for machines, etc., then the various laborers, landowners, etc., who receive the gold in the production process can use it as a medium to purchase eggs, automobiles, or clothing, as they desire. The whole pattern of a modern society is thus built on the use of money, and the enormous importance of the use of money will become clearer as the analysis continues. It is evident that it is a mistake on the part of many writers who wish to set forth the doctrines of modern economics to analyze direct exchange only and then to insert money somewhere at the end of the analysis, considering the task finished. On the contrary, the analysis of direct exchange is useful only as an introductory aid to the analysis of a society of indirect exchange. Direct exchange would leave very little scope for the market or for production. With the great variety in human skills and natural resources resulting in enormous advantages from the division of labor, the existence of money permits the splitting of production into minute branches, 
each man selling his product for money and using money to buy the products that he desires. In the field of consumers' goods, a doctor can sell his services, or a teacher his, for money, and then use the money to purchase goods that he demands. In production, a man can produce a capital good, sell it for money, and use the gold received to purchase the labor, land, and capital goods of a higher order needed for its production. He may use the surplus of money income over money outlay on factors to purchase consumers' goods for his own needs. Thus, at any stage in the production of any product, a man employs land and labor factors, exchanging money for their services, as well as for the needed capital goods, and then sells the product for money to help in the next lower stage of production. This process continues until the final consumer's goods are sold to consumers. These consumers, on the other hand, obtain their money by purchasing it through the sale of their own goods, either durable consumers' goods or services in production. The latter may include the sale of labor services, the sale of services of their land, the sale of their capital goods, or inheritance from those who had previously contributed such services. Later sections will deal further with the receipt of money income in the production process. Here it must be noted that since the owner and seller of capital goods must pay for the land, labor, and capital goods in their production, in the last analysis the owner of capital receives income only as a holder of goods over a period of time. Thus nearly all exchanges are made against money, and money impresses its stamp upon the entire economic system, Producers of consumers' goods, as well as owners of durable consumers' goods, owners of capital goods, and sellers of labor services, all sell their goods against money, and purchase with money the factors that they need. They use their net money income to purchase consumers' goods produced by others in the society. Thus, all individuals, in their capacity as producers and owners, supply goods, commodities and services, and demand money in exchange. And in their capacity as producers purchasing factors, as well as in their capacity as consumers, they supply money and demand an almost infinite variety of goods in exchange. The economy is therefore a money economy and almost all goods are compared with and exchanged against the money commodity. This fact is of crucial importance to the analysis of any society beyond the most primitive level. We may sum up the complex pattern of exchanges in a money economy in the following way. Men in their capacity as producers sell consumers' goods, producers' goods, including labor, land, and capital goods, for money. Men in their capacity as producers buy producers' goods, including labor, land, and capital goods, with money. Men in their capacity as consumers buy consumers' goods, with money. 4. The Monetary Unit
We have seen that every good is in supply if it can be divided into units, each of which is homogeneous with every other. Goods can be bought and sold only in terms of such units, and those goods which are indivisible and unique may be described as being in a supply of one unit only. Tangible commodities are generally traded in terms of units of weight, such as tons, pounds, ounces, grains, grams, etc. The money commodity is no exception to this rule. The most universally traded commodity in the community, it is bought and sold always in terms of units of its weight. It is characteristic of units of weight, as of other metrical scales, that each unit is convertible into every other. Thus, one pound equals 16 ounces, and one ounce equals 437.5 grains, or 28.35 grams. Therefore, if Jones sells his tractor for 15 pounds of gold, he may also be described as having sold the tractor for 240 ounces of gold, or for 6,804 grams of gold, etc. It is clear that the size of the unit of the money commodity chosen for any transaction is irrelevant for economic analysis and is purely a matter of convenience for the various parties. All the units will be units of weight, and they will be convertible into pounds, ounces, etc., by multiplying or dividing by some constant number, and therefore all will be convertible into one another in the same manner. Thus, one pound of gold will equal 16 ounces, and will, of course, exchange for 16 ounces should such an exchange be desired on the market. The economic irrelevance of the names or sizes of the units may be seen from the following example. Suppose that the residents of Texas use in their exchanges a unit known as the Houston, equaling 20 grains of gold, while the residents of Massachusetts use the Adams, equaling 10 grains. The citizens of the respective areas may make their exchanges and calculations in these terms. For example, Jones sells his car for 2,000 Houstons of gold, or, more simply, 2,000 Houstons. Or, Jones might consider the money price of eggs as being one-half Houston per dozen. On the other hand, Smith might buy a house for 10,000 Adamses. It is obvious that the use of the different names will complicate matters, but it is economically insignificant. The Houston is still a unit of weight of gold, and is a shorthand name for 20 grains of gold. It is clear that on the market, one Houston will exchange for two Adamses. The names of the units can be and have been anything conceivable, depending on custom, language, etc. Such names as dollars, francs, marks, shekels are examples. The dollar, originated as the generally applied name of ounce weights of silver coined by the Count of Schlick in Bohemia. The Count, who lived in Joachim's Valley, or Joachimsthal, began coining ounces of silver in 1518, and their uniformity and fineness earned a reputation throughout Europe. They became known as Joachimsthalers, finally abbreviated to Thalers. The name dollar is derived from taller.
To avoid unnecessary complications and to clarify the analysis, therefore, the names of the monetary units in this work will be in terms of universally acceptable units of weight, such as ounces, grams, etc., rather than in terms of accidental names of only local significance, such as dollars or francs. Obviously, the more valuable the units of a commodity are, the smaller the size of the units used in daily transactions. Thus, platinum will be traded in terms of ounces, while iron is traded in terms of tons. Relatively valuable money commodities like gold and silver will tend to be traded in terms of smaller units of weight. Here again, this fact has no particular economic significance. The form in which a unit weight of any commodity is traded depends on its usefulness for any specific desired purpose. Thus, iron may be sold in the form of bars or chunks, cheese in rectangular or triangular shape, etc., whereas other commodities will be traded in those forms suitable for production or consumption, Money will be traded in forms suitable for exchange or storing until an exchange is made. Historically, the shapes of money have been innumerable. Gold, for example, has been traded as money in the raw form of nuggets, as gold dust in sacks, or as jewelry and other ornaments. One interesting example of a money shape was the iron money of Central Africa. Iron was a valuable commodity, in use as hose. The money form was made to be divisible into two parts, easily shaped into hose. In recent centuries, large bars of gold or silver have been used for storage or for exchange in larger transactions, while smaller, circular pieces, known as coins, are used for smaller transactions. 5. Money Income and Money Expenditures In a money economy, each individual sells goods and services that he owns for money and uses the money to buy desired goods. Each person may make a record of such monetary exchanges for any period of time. Such a record may be called his balance of payments for that period. One record may be the transactions of goods sold for money in a certain period to other individuals. Suppose, for example, that Mr. Brown draws up the record of goods sold for money for the month of September 1961. Suppose that he has sold his services as a carpenter to a Mr. Jones in building the latter's house, and has sold his services as a handyman to Messrs. Jones and Smith during the same period. Also, he has disposed of an old radio to Mr. Johnson. His account of money received, that is, money purchased for goods and services sold, is as follows. September 1961, James Brown, money purchased for goods and services sold. 20 ounces of gold for labor as carpenter to Jones. 5 ounces of gold for labor as handyman to Jones and Smith. 1 ounce of gold for old radio to Johnson. Total, 26 ounces of gold. 
From the account, we know that by his sales of goods and services during this period, Brown has purchased 26 ounces of gold. This total of money purchased is his total of money income for that period. It is clear that the more money income a man receives during any period, the more money he will be able to spend on desired goods. Other things being equal, an important qualification that will be examined in later sections, he will strive to earn as much money income in any prospective period as he can. Mr. Brown acquired his income by selling his labor services and a durable consumer's good. There are other ways of acquiring money income on an unhampered market. The owner of land may sell it for agricultural, locational, industrial, as well as other purposes. The owner of capital goods may sell them to those interested in using them as factors of production. Tangible land and capital goods may be sold for money outright, or the owner may retain ownership of the good while selling ownership of its services over a certain period of time. Since any good is bought only for the services that it can bestow, there is no reason why a certain period of service of a good may not be purchased. This can be done, of course, only where it is technically possible— Thus, the owner of a plot of land or a sewing machine or a house may rent it out for a certain period of time in exchange for money. While such hire may leave legal ownership of the good in the hands of the landlord, the actual owner of the good's service for that period is the renter or tenant. At the end of the hire period, the good is returned to the original owner, who may use or sell the remainder of the services. In addition to the sale of goods and services, a man may receive money as a gift. He does not purchase the money he receives in gifts. His money income for any period equals his money purchased plus the money he receives in gifts. One common form of receipt of a gift is an inheritance, the result of a bequest at death. Thus, Mr. Green's account of money income for June to December 1961 may be as follows. Money income from sale of goods and services. Purchased 28 ounces of gold for rent of land to Mr. Jones. 300 ounces of gold for sale of other land to Mr. Forrest, 15 ounces of gold for sale of threshing machine to Mr. Woods, given 400 ounces of gold, inheritance from uncle, total 743 ounces of gold. As was seen in the previous chapter, in order first to acquire the good or service that a man can sell for money, he must first either produce it himself or buy it from someone who has produced it, or who, in turn, has bought it from the original producer. If he has been given money, the original owner must have acquired it through producing a good, etc., Thus, in the last analysis, the first seller of a capital good or a durable consumer's good is the original producer, and later purchasers must have produced some service of their own in order to obtain the money to acquire it. 
The seller of labor service, of course, produces the service directly at the time. The seller of pure land must originally have appropriated unused land which he had found and transformed. On the unhampered market of a money economy, producers of commodities and services sell their goods for the money commodity, then use the money acquired to buy other desired goods. Money is acquired in this way by all except the producers of the original gold on the market, those who mined and marketed it. However, the production of the money commodity, as with all other valuable commodities, itself requires the use of land, labor, and capital goods, and these must be paid for by the use of money. The gold miner, then, receives no money by gift, but must actively find and produce gold to acquire his money. With the use of money acquired in these various ways, individuals purchase desired goods. They do so in two capacities, as consumers and as producers. As consumers, they purchase consumers' goods that they desire. In the case of durable goods, they may purchase the entire good, or they may hire the services of goods for some specified period of time. As producers, they use money to purchase the services of factors of production needed to produce consumers' goods or lower-order capital goods. Some factors they may purchase outright to use all their anticipated future services. Some they may hire for their services for a specified period of time. Thus, they may purchase capital goods that function as raw material, they may purchase some capital goods called machines and hire others, or they may hire or purchase the land that they need to work on. In general, just as consumers cannot very well hire short-lived, non-durable goods, so producers cannot very well hire capital goods, dubbed raw material or inventory, that are used up quickly in the process of production, on a free market, they cannot purchase labor services outright, as was explained in the preceding chapter. Since man's personal will is inalienable, he cannot, in a voluntary society, be compelled to work for another against his present will, and therefore no contracts can be made for purchase of his future will. Labor services, therefore, can only be bought for hire, on a pay-as-you-go basis. Any individual may draw up an account of his purchases of other goods with money for any period of time. The total amount of money given up in such exchanges is his money expenditures, or money outlays, for that period. Here it must be noted that his expenditure account, as well as his income account, can be itemized for each transaction or may be grouped into various classes. Thus, in Brown's account earlier, he might have tabulated his income as 25 ounces from labor in general and one ounce from his radio. How broad or narrow the classes are depends purely on the convenience of the person drawing up the account. The total, of course, is always unaffected by the type of classification chosen.
Just as money income equaled money purchased for goods and services sold, plus money received as gifts, so money expenditure equals money sold for goods and services bought, plus money given away as gifts. Thus, Mr. Brown's money expenditure account for September 1961 might be the following. September 1961, James Brown, money expended, money sold for goods and services bought, 12 ounces of gold for food, 6 ounces of gold for clothing, 3 ounces of gold for rent of house, 2 ounces of gold for entertainment. Money given, one ounce of gold for charity. Total, 24 ounces of gold. In this account, Brown is spending money purely as a consumer, and his total money expenditures for the period are 24 ounces. If he had desired it, he could have subdivided the account further into such items as apples, one-fifth ounce, hat, one ounce, etc., here it may be noted that an individual's total money income for any period may be termed his exports, and the goods sold may be termed the goods exported. On the other hand, his total money expenditure may be termed his imports, and the goods and services bought are the goods imported. These terms apply to goods purchased by producers or consumers. Now let us observe and compare Mr. Brown's income and expenditure accounts for September 1961. Brown's total money income was 26 ounces of gold. His money expenditures, 24 ounces. This must mean that 2 ounces of the 26 earned in this period remained unspent. These two ounces remain in the possession of Mr. Brown, and are therefore added to whatever previous stock of gold Brown might have possessed. If Brown's stock of money on September 1, 1961 was six ounces of gold, his stock of money on October 1, 1961 is eight ounces of gold. The stock of money owned by any person at any point in time is called his cash holding or cash balance at that time. The two ounces of income remaining unspent on goods and services constituted a net addition to Brown's cash balance over the month of September. For any period, therefore, a person's money income is equal to his money outlay plus his addition to cash balance. If we subdivide this income expenditure account into smaller periods of time, the picture of what is happening to the cash balance within the larger period is likely to be far different from a simple addition of two ounces. Thus suppose that all of Brown's money income came in two chunks on the 1st and 15th of September, while his expenditures occurred every day in varying amounts. As a result, his cash balance rose drastically on September 1st, say to 6 plus 13, or a total of 19 ounces. Then the cash balance was gradually drawn down each day until it equaled six again on the 15th. Then it rose sharply again to 19, 
finally being reduced to eight at the month's end. The pattern of Brown's supplies and demands on the market is clear. Brown supplied various goods and services on the market and demanded money in exchange. With this money income, he demanded various goods and services on the market and supplied money in exchange. The money must go into the cash balance before it can be spent on goods and services. This is also true if the income is gradual and the expenditure is in discrete sums, or for any other pattern of money income and expenditures. Suppose, on the other hand, that Brown's expenditures for September had been 29 ounces instead of 24 ounces. This was accomplished by drawing down Brown's previous cash balance by three ounces and leaving him with three ounces in his cash holding. In this case, his money expenditures for the period equaled his money income plus the decrease in his cash balance. In sum, the following formula always holds true for any individual over any period of time. Money income equals money expenditures plus net additions to cash balance minus net subtractions from cash balance. Alternatively, the term exports can be substituted for income and imports for expenditures in the equation. Let us assume, for purposes of simplification, that the total stock of the money commodity in the community has remained unchanged over the period. This is not an unrealistic assumption, since newly mined gold is small compared to the existing stock. Now it is obvious that, like all valuable property, all money must, at any point in time, be owned by someone. At any point in time, the sum of the cash holdings of all individuals is equal to the total stock of money in the community. Thus, if we consider Brown among a group of five persons living in a village, and their respective cash balances on September 1st were six, eight, three, twelve, and five ounces. Then the total stock of money held in the village on that date was 34 ounces. If the data were available, the same sort of summation could be performed for the world as a whole, and the total stock of money discovered. Now it is obvious that Brown's addition of two ounces to his cash balance for September must have been counterbalanced by a subtraction of two ounces from the cash balances of one or more other individuals. Since the stock of money has not changed, Brown's addition to his cash balance must have been acquired by drawing down the cash balances of other individuals. Similarly, if Brown had drawn down his cash balance by three ounces, this must have been counterbalanced by the addition of three ounces to the cash balance of one or more individuals. It is important to recognize that the additions to or subtractions from a cash balance are all voluntary acts on the part of the individuals concerned. In each period, some individuals decide to add to their cash balances, and others decide to reduce them, and each makes that decision which he believes will benefit him most. 
This section is limited to a discussion of expenditures on consumers' goods. A later section will discuss producers' expenditures on producers' goods. It will be seen, however, that even unwelcome losses from cash balances suffered by producers are purely the result of voluntary action that, in a later period, proved erroneous. For centuries, however, fallacious popular usage has asserted that one whose income is greater than expenditures, exports greater than imports, has a favorable balance of trade, while one whose expenditures have been greater than income for a period, imports greater than exports, has suffered an unfavorable balance of trade. Such a view implies that the active important part of the balance of payments is the trade part, the exports and imports, and that the changes in the individual's cash balance are simply passive balancing factors, serving to keep the total payments always in balance. In other words, it assumes that the individual spends as much as he wants to on goods and services, and that the addition or subtraction from his cash balance appears as an afterthought. On the contrary, changes in cash balance are actively decided upon by each individual in the course of his market actions. Thus, Brown decided to increase his cash balance by two ounces and sold his labor services to obtain the money, foregoing purchases of consumers' goods to the extent of two ounces. Conversely, in the later example, when he spent three ounces more than he earned in the month, he decided that his cash balance had been excessive and that he would rather spend some of it on consumers' goods and services. There is therefore never a need for anyone to worry about anyone else's balance of payments. A person's unfavorable balance of trade will continue so long as the individual wishes to reduce his cash balance, and others are willing to purchase his money for goods. His maximum limit is, of course, the point when his cash balance is reduced to zero, most likely, however, he will stop reducing his cash balance long before this point. The assertion has also been made that a person who spends most or all of his income on food and clothing must also have an unfavorable balance of trade, since his money expenditures must be at a certain minimum amount. However, if the man has spent all his cash balance, he can no longer continue to have an unfavorable balance, regardless of what goods he buys or what his standard of living is. 6. Producers' Expenditures The previous section concentrated on the case of Mr. Brown, whose entire money expenditures were on consumers' goods, his money income, aside from the sale of old, previously produced goods, came from the sale of current productive labor services. His expenditures were purely on consumption. His income was derived almost solely from his production of labor services. Every man must be a consumer, and therefore this analysis of consumer spending applies to all persons. Most people earn their income from the sale of their labor services. 
However, if we accept previously produced goods because someone must have originally produced them, all other money incomes must derive from new production of capital goods or consumers' goods. This is apart from the sellers of land or its services, whose ownership must have originally derived from the finding and reshaping of unappropriated land. Producers of capital goods and consumers' goods are in a different position from sellers of labor service only. Mr. Brown, for example, a seller solely of labor service, need not spend any money on purchasing capital goods. Purely from his expenditure on desired consumers' goods, he derives the energy to be able to produce and sell labor services on the market. But the producers of capital goods and consumers' goods, the nub of any civilized society, since labor services alone could produce very little, are not and cannot be in such a fortunate position. For a man to produce a consumer's good, he must obtain labor services and the services of land and capital goods in order to use the technological know-how available in the production of the good. Pushing the problem back, we find that in order to produce a capital good, the would-be producer must obtain the necessary land, labor, and capital goods. Each such individual producer, or group of individuals in partnership, obtains the required factors and then directs the combination of factors into producing a capital good. This process is repeated among numerous individuals until the lowest stage of production is reached and a consumer's good is produced. The producer of the capital good must obtain the needed factors, land, labor, and capital, by purchasing them for money. And when the lower-order capital good is completed, he sells it for money. This capital good is in turn used for the production of a still lower-order capital good, and the latter is sold for money. This process continues until the final producer of the consumer's good sells it for money to the ultimate consumer. Now let us call those producers who use their money to invest in the purchase of factors, either outright or for hire, capitalists. The capitalists then produce and own the various stages of capital goods, exchanging them for money until their products reach the consumers. Those who participate in the productive process are therefore the capitalists and the sellers of land and labor services. The capitalists are the only ones who spend money on producers' goods, and they, therefore, may here be termed the producers. It is evident that a dominant characteristic of the production process is that each individual must produce in anticipation of the sale of his product. Any investment in production is made in anticipation of later sale to lower-order producers and, finally, to consumers. Clearly, the consumer must have money in his cash balance in order to spend it on consumers' goods. And, likewise, the producer must have the original money to invest in factors. Where does the consumer get the money? 
As has been shown above, he may obtain it from gifts or from the sale of previously produced goods, but in the last analysis he must have obtained it from the sale of some productive service. These are the sellers of labor services and of the services of land. These laborers and landowners use the money thus obtained to buy the final products of the production system. The capitalist producers also receive income at each stage of the production process. Evidently, the principles regulating these incomes require careful investigation, which will be undertaken. Here it might be noted that the net incomes accruing to the owners of capital goods are not simply the results of the contribution to production by the capital goods, since these capital goods are in turn the products of other factors. Where then do the producers acquire their money for investment? Clearly from the same sources only. From the income acquired in production, individuals can, in addition to buying consumers' goods, purchase factors of production and engage in the productive process as producers of a good that is not simply their own labor service. In order to obtain the money for investment, then, an individual must save money by restricting his possible consumption expenditures. This saved money first goes into his cash balance and then is invested in the purchase of factors in the anticipation of a later sale of the produced good. It is obvious that investment can come only from funds that are saved by individuals from their possible consumption spending. The producers restrict their consumption expenditures, save their money, and go into business by investing their funds in factors that will yield them products in the future. Producers could also borrow the saved funds of others, but the whole process of lending and borrowing is omitted in this section in order to clarify the analysis. Loans will be analyzed in a later chapter. Thus, while every man must spend part of his money income in consumption, some decide to become producers of capital or consumers' goods, and to save money to invest in the required factors. Every person's income may be spent on consumption, on investment in the production of goods, or on an addition to his cash balance. For any period, an individual's money income equals his consumption expenditures plus investment expenditures plus additions to cash balance minus subtractions from cash balance. Investment expenditures may be defined as the sum of the money expenditures made in investment in factors of production. Let us take the hypothetical case of Mr. Fred Jones and his balance of payments for November 1961. Suppose his income from various sources during this month is 50 ounces. He decides to spend, during the month, 18 ounces on consumer's goods, to add 2 ounces to his cash balance, and to invest the other 30 ounces in a business for the production of some good. It must be emphasized that this business can involve the production of any good at all. It could be a steel factory, a farm, or a retail shoe store. 
It could be for the purchase of wheat in one season of the year in anticipation of sale in another season. All of this is productive enterprise, since in each instance a good is produced. That is, goods are moved a step forward in their progress to the ultimate consumer, since the investment is always in anticipation of later sale, the investors are also engaged in entrepreneurship, in enterprise. Let us assume that Jones expends the saved funds on investment in a paper factory. His income expenditure account for November may appear as follows. November 1961, Fred Jones. Income from sale of land, 20 ounces. From sale of a building, 30 ounces. Total, 50 ounces. Expenditures. Food, 7 ounces. Clothing, 4 ounces. Shelter, 4 ounces. Entertainment, 3 ounces. Consumption expenditures, 18 ounces. On paper machinery, 12 ounces. On wood pulp, 10 ounces. On labor services, 8 ounces. Investment expenditures, 30 ounces. Addition to cash balance, 2 ounces. Total, 50 ounces. Of course, these figures are purely illustrative of a possible situation. There are innumerable other illustrations. For example, there could have been a subtraction from cash balance to enable greater investment. Investment expenditures are always made in anticipation of future sale. Factors are purchased and transformed into the product, and the product is then sold by the enterpriser for money. The businessman makes his outlays with the expectation of being able to sell the product at a certain price on a certain future date. Suppose that Jones makes the investment of 30 ounces with the expectation of being able to transform his factors into the product, in this case, paper, and sell the product for 40 ounces at some date in November 1962. If his expectation proves correct, he will succeed in selling the paper for 40 ounces at that date, and his income account for any period that includes that date in November 1962 will include 40 ounces from sale of paper. It is obvious that other things being equal, an investor will attempt to acquire the greatest possible net income from his investment. Just as, with the same qualification, everyone attempts to acquire the greatest income from other types of sales. If Jones is confronted with investment opportunities for his 30 ounces in different possible lines or processes of production, and he expects one will net him 40 ounces in a year, another 37 ounces, another 34, etc., Jones will choose that investment promising the greatest return. A crucial difference, then, between man as an entrepreneur and man as a consumer is that in the latter case there is no drive to have exports greater than imports. A man's imports are his purchase of consumer's goods and are therefore the ends of his activity. The goods he imports are a source of satisfaction to him. 
On the other hand, the businessman is importing only producer's goods, which by definition are useless to him directly. He can gain from them only by selling them or their product, and therefore his imports are merely the necessary means to his later exports. Therefore, he tries to attain the greatest net income, or, in other words, to attain the largest surplus of exports over imports. The larger his business income, the more the owner of the business will be able to spend, that is, to import, on consumers' goods that he desires. It is clear, however, that the man considered as a whole has no particular desire to export more than he imports or to have a favorable balance of trade. He tries to export more than he imports of producers' goods in his business. Then he uses this surplus to spend on imports of consumers' goods for his personal wants. On total balance, he may, like Mr. Brown, choose to add to his cash balance or subtract from his cash balance, as he sees fit and considers most desirable. It was partly confusion between the total action of the individual and his action as a businessman that led writers to extrapolate from the behavior of the businessman and conclude that nations are better off if they export more than they import. Let us take as an example Mr. Jones, after he has been established in his business, over a certain period, he may decide to subtract five ounces from his cash balance. Even though he tries his best to achieve the largest net income from business and thus add to his cash balance as much as possible from this source, in total, he may well decide to reduce his cash balance. Thus, Fred Jones, income from business, 150 ounces. Expenditures in business on factors of production, producers' goods, 100 ounces. For consumers' goods, 55 ounces. Total expenditures, 155 ounces. Subtraction from cash balance, 5 ounces. 7. Maximizing Income and Allocating Resources we have seen that in the money economy, other things being equal, men will attempt to attain the highest possible money income. If they are investors, they will try to obtain the largest net return. If they sell their labor service, they will sell it for the largest return. The higher their money income, the more money they will have available for expenditure on consumers' goods. Before we proceed to a deeper analysis of the money economy, it is important to examine the other things being equal, or the ceteris paribus qualification. In Chapter 1, we examined the truth that in every action men try to obtain the greatest advantage, that is, to attain the end located on the highest possible point on their value scale. This was also called attempting to maximize psychic revenue, or psychic income. This is a praxeological truth, a general law holding for all human action, with no qualification whatsoever. 
Now, the establishment of indirect exchange, or a money economy, enables every person to obtain a vast number of consumers' goods that he could not obtain, or could barely obtain, in isolation or by way of barter. As we have demonstrated in this chapter, these consumers' goods are acquired by producing and selling a good for the money commodity, and then using money to purchase them. Despite this development, however, by no means can all goods be bought and sold on the market. Some goods are attainable in this way. Some cannot be. As was explained in Chapter 2, some goods cannot be alienated from a person, and therefore cannot be exchanged. They cannot come within the money nexus. They cannot be bought or sold for money. This fact does not mean that individuals disparage or revere them on that account. To some people, many of the unexchangeable consumers' goods are very precious and hold a high place on their value scale. To others, these goods mean little as compared to those consumers' goods that can be bought in exchange. The ranking on his value scale depends entirely on the voluntary choice of each individual. It is nonsense to place the blame on money for the tendencies of some people to value exchangeable goods highly as compared to some non-exchangeable goods. There is no force in the existence of the money economy that compels men to make such choices. Money simply enables men to expand enormously their acquisition of exchangeable goods. But the existence of the market leaves it to each individual to decide how he will value money and the goods that money will buy, as against other goods that are unexchangeable. As a matter of fact, the existence of the money economy has the reverse effect. Since, as we know from the law of utility, the marginal utility of a unit of any good diminishes as its supply increases, and the establishment of money leads to an enormous increase in the supply of exchangeable goods, it is evident that this great supply enables men to enjoy unexchangeable goods to a far greater extent than would otherwise be the case. The very fact that exchangeable consumers' goods are more abundant enables each individual to enjoy more of the non-exchangeable ones. There are many possible examples of grading exchangeable and non-exchangeable goods on one's value scale. Suppose that a man owns a piece of land containing an historic monument, which he prizes on aesthetic grounds. Suppose also that he has an offer for sale of the property for a certain sum of money, knowing that the purchaser intends to destroy the monument and use it for other purposes. To decide whether or not to sell the property, he must weigh the value to him of keeping the monument intact as against the value to him of the consumer's goods that he could eventually buy with the money. Which will take precedence depends on the constitution of the individual's value scale at that particular time. But it is evident that a greater abundance of consumers' goods already at his disposal will tend to raise the value of the unexchangeable aesthetic good to him as compared with the given sum of money.
Contrary, therefore, to the common accusation that the establishment of a money economy tends to lead men to slight the importance of non-exchangeable goods, the effect is precisely the reverse. A destitute person is far less likely to prefer the non-exchangeable to the exchangeable than one whose standard of living in terms of the latter is high. The terms non-exchangeable or unexchangeable and exchangeable goods are far superior to the terms ideal and material. The latter classification errs on two counts, aside from failing to convey the essential difference between the two types of goods. In the first place, as has been stated above, many exchangeable goods are intangible services rather than tangible material things. Secondly, many of the non-exchangeable goods valued by some persons would hardly be considered ideal by others, so that a less colored term is necessary. Examples such as these are of great importance for human action, but of little importance for the rest of this volume, which is mainly concerned with analysis of the market under a system of indirect exchange. In this study of money exchanges, the subdivision of praxeology known as catalactics, there is not much more that could be said about this problem. Other examples of such choices, however, are more important for catalactics. Consider the case of a man who has three offers for the purchase of his labor services, one of a money income of 30 ounces per month, another of 24 ounces, and a third of 21 ounces. Now, and here we return to the original problem of this section, the man will clearly choose to accept the offer of 30 ounces, provided that the psychic, or more precisely, the non-exchangeable factors, are equal between the various alternatives. If the man is indifferent to any variations in conditions of work among the three offers, then no factors enter into his choice except money income and leisure, and if he works at all, he will choose the income of 30 ounces. On the other hand, he may well have great differences in taste for the work itself and the varying conditions. Thus, the job earning 30 ounces may be for a firm or in a type of labor that he dislikes, or the job offering 24 ounces may have positive qualities that the man likes a great deal. We have seen in Chapter 1 that labor is evaluated on the basis not only of the monetary return, but also in terms of the individual's liking for or dislike of the work itself. The valuations that a man attaches to the work itself are non-exchangeable positive or negative goods, because they are, for the actor, inseparable attachments to the work itself. They may be weighed against monetary considerations, but they cannot be exchanged away or ignored. Thus, in the case currently under investigation, along with the prospective money income, the man must weigh the non-exchangeable consumer's goods attached to the different jobs in his value scale. What he is weighing, in essence, is two bundles of utility. A. The utility of 30 ounces per month, plus work in what he considers an immoral trade or in unpleasant surroundings 
versus B, the utility of 24 ounces per month plus work in a job that he likes. The choice will be made in accordance with the value scale of each individual. One man may choose the 30-ounce job, and another may choose the 24-ounce job. The important fact for catalactics is that a man always chooses a bundle of money income plus other psychic factors, and that he will maximize his money income only if psychic factors are neutral with respect to his choices. If they are not, then these factors must always be kept in view by the economist. Another similar example is the case of a prospective investor. Suppose an investor faces the choice of investing his saved money in various alternative production projects. He can, say, invest 100 ounces, with the prospect of earning a net return of 10% in a year in one project, 8% in a second, and 6% in a third. Other non-exchangeable psychic factors being equal, he will tend to invest in that line where he expects the greatest net money return, in this case, the 10% line. Suppose, however, that he has a great dislike for the product that would offer a 10% return, while he has a great fondness for the process and the product promising the 8% return. Here again, each prospect of investment carries with it a non-detachable positive or negative psychic factor. The pleasure in producing one product as against the distaste for producing another are non-exchangeable consumer's goods, positive and negative, which the actor has to weigh in deciding where to make his investment. He will weigh not simply 10% versus 8%, but 10% plus a disliked production process and product versus 8% plus a delightful production process. Which alternative he chooses depends on his individual value scale. Thus, in the case of enterprise as well as in the case of labor, we must say that the entrepreneur will tend to choose the course that maximizes his prospective money income, provided that other non-exchangeable factors are neutral with respect to the various alternatives. In all cases whatsoever, of course, each man will move to maximize the psychic income on his value scale, on which scale all exchangeable and unexchangeable goods are entered. The belief of the classical economists, notably John Stuart Mill, as well as their critics, that economics must postulate a mythical economic man who is interested only in acquiring money income, is thus a completely erroneous one. In deciding on the course that will maximize his psychic income, man therefore considers all the relevant factors, exchangeable and non-exchangeable. In considering whether to work and at what job, he must also consider the almost universally desired consumer's good, leisure. Suppose that, on the basis of the money return and the non-exchangeable values attached, the laborer in the example given previously chooses to work at the 24-ounce job. 
As he continues to work at the job, the marginal utility of the money wage per unit of time that he earns, whether it be 24 ounces per month or one quarter ounce per hour, etc., will decline. The marginal utility of money income will tend to decline as more money is acquired, since money is a good. Insofar as money is desired for a non-monetary use, such as ornaments, or for use as an addition to one's cash balance, addition to its stock will lead to a decline in its marginal utility, just as in the case of any other good. Insofar as money is desired for the purchase of consumers' goods, an ounce worth of consumers' goods will also decline in utility as new ounces are acquired. The first ounce of money spent on consumers' goods will fulfill the highest ranking once on the person's value scale, the next ounce spent the once ranking second highest, etc., of course, this will not be true for a good costing more than one ounce, but this difficulty can be met by increasing the size of the monetary units so that each is homogeneous in what it can buy. Consequently, the marginal utility of money income tends to decline as the income is increased. On the other hand, as the input of labor increases, the stock of possible units of leisure declines, and the marginal utility of leisure foregone increases. As was seen in Chapter 1, labor will tend to be supplied until the point at which the marginal utility reaped from labor no longer outweighs the marginal utility of leisure on the individual's value scale. In the money economy, labor will cease when the marginal utility of the additional money income per unit of time no longer exceeds the marginal utility of the leisure foregone by working for the additional time. Of course, the concrete result differs with the individual and with the unit of time selected for consideration. In terms of income per hour, the point at which labor stops may come fairly quickly. In terms of income per year, it may never come. Regardless of his money income per hour, in other words, he is likely to stop work after a certain number of hours worked, whereas he is likely to take a year off from work only if his annual income is substantial. Thus, man allocates his time between leisure and productive labor, between labor for money and labor on unexchangeable items, etc., in accordance with the principle of maximizing his psychic income. In deciding between labor and leisure, he weighs the marginal advantages of work with the marginal advantages of leisure. Similarly, man as a prospective investor must weigh not only the advantages and disadvantages, monetary and otherwise, from each prospective investment, but also whether or not to invest at all. Every man must allocate his money resources in three and only three ways, in consumption spending, in investment expenditure, and in addition to his cash balance. Assume that to the investor cited earlier the 10% project is highest in utility in his value scale, all factors considered. 
But then he must decide, shall he invest at all, or shall he buy consumers' goods now, or add to his cash balance? The marginal advantage of making the investment will be the prospective money return, weighted by the non-exchangeable utilities or disutilities involved. The advantage of a money return will be that he will have more money in the future that he could spend on consumers' goods. If he has 100 ounces of money now and invests it, in a year he might have 110 ounces, which he could spend on consumers' goods. On the other hand, what chiefly militates against investment, as was explained in Chapter 1, is the fact of time preference, the fact that he is giving up possible consumption in the present. If we assume that an ounce of money will buy the same quantity of goods as an ounce a year from now, an assumption that will be removed in later chapters, then one ounce of money now will always be worth more than one ounce a year from now, simply because enjoyment of a given good is always preferred as early as possible. Therefore, in deciding whether or not to invest, he must balance the additional return against his desire to consume in the present rather than the future. He must decide, if I value 100 ounces now, more than 100 ounces a year from now, do I value 100 ounces now more or less than 110 ounces a year from now? He will decide in accordance with his value scale. Similarly, he must weigh each against the marginal utility of adding to his cash balance. In what this consists will be examined later. Thus, every unit of the money commodity in a man's stock, his money resources owned, is always being allocated to the three categories of use in accordance with his value scale. The more money that he allocates to consumption, the lower will be the marginal utility of the goods consumed. Each further unit spent will be devoted to less urgently desired goods and each further unit so spent will decrease his available stock of investment goods and his available cash balance, and therefore will, in accordance with the law of utility, raise the marginal utility foregone in each of these uses. The same will be true for each of the other uses. The more money he spends on each use, the less will be the marginal utility from that use, and the higher will be the marginal utility of other uses foregone. Every man will allocate his money resources on the same principles that the hypothetical actor allocated his stock of horses in Chapter 1. Each unit will be used for the most useful end not yet achieved. It is in accordance with these principles, the maximizing of his psychic income, that each man will allocate his money stock. In accordance with his value scale, each man will judge the respective marginal utilities to be obtained by each monetary unit in each use, and his allocation of money expenditures as revealed in his balance of payments will be determined by such judgments.
Just as within the general category of investment expenditure there are different projects with different expected returns, so there are an innumerable variety of consumers' goods within the general category of consumption. On what principles does a man allocate his expenditures among the numerous types of consumers' goods available? On precisely corresponding principles. His first unit of money spent on consumers' goods will be spent on that good satisfying the most highly valued end. The next unit on the next most highly valued end, etc. Each parcel of a consumer's good bought decreases the marginal utility of this good to the man and increases the marginal utility of all other goods foregone. Again, a man will allocate his money resources within the consumption category by apportioning each unit of money to that good with the highest marginal utility on his value scale. A judgment of relative marginal utilities determines the allocation of his money expenditures. It is evident that we may eliminate the words within the consumption category in the sentence before the preceding to arrive at the rule which governs all a man's money allocation within and between categories. Our analysis may now be generalized still further. Each man at every point in time has in his ownership a certain stock of useful goods, a certain stock of resources or assets. These resources may include not only money, but also consumers' goods, non-personal producers' goods, land and capital goods, personal energy, and time. He will allocate each one of these resources according to the same principles by which he has allocated money, so that each unit goes into the use with the highest prospective marginal utility on his value scale. Here we must note that the sale of personal labor service is not always made to an investing employer who purchases the labor service for money and then tries to sell the resulting product. In many cases, the man who invests also works directly in the production of the product. In some cases, the investor spends saved funds on factors of production and hires the labor of someone to direct the actual production operation. In other cases, the investor also spends his labor time in the details of the production process. It is clear that this is just as much labor as the labor of an employee who does not own and sell the product. What principles will decide whether a prospective investor uses his labor in his own investment in production, that is, will be self-employed, or will invest only his money and sell his labor elsewhere as an employee? Clearly, the principle again will be the best psychic advantage from the action, Thus, suppose that Jones finds what he considers to be the best and most remunerative investment project, which he estimates will yield him a net money income of 150 ounces for the forthcoming year, provided that he does not labor on the project itself, but hires others for its direction and management. 
He also estimates that if he were to perform the direction himself instead of hiring a manager to do it, he would be able to net a further income from the project of 50 ounces a year. With his own labor involved, then, the net income from the project would be 200 ounces for the year. This figure will be the higher, the more skilled his direction would be than the man he replaces, and the lower, the less comparatively skilled he is. In this case, the 200-ounce net income would include a 150-ounce investment income and 50 ounces for the labor income of direction. Whether or not he takes this course depends, setting leisure aside, on whether he can sell his labor service for a greater income elsewhere. This greater income will, of course, be in terms of psychic income, but if non-exchangeable factors are assumed in this case to be neutral, then the greater income will be the greater money income. If, ceteris paribus, Jones can earn 60 ounces as an employee for some other investing producer, then he will take this job and hire someone else to use labor on his investment. His total money income will then be 150 ounces from the project plus 60 ounces from the sale of his labor services to a producer, totaling 210 ounces. Of course, if non-exchangeable psychic factors countervail, such as a great preference for being self-employed in the use of his labor, then he may accept the 200-ounce income. It is clear from this discussion that the common concept of the productive laborer, limited to the man who works in the fields or on an assembly line, is completely fallacious. Laborers are all those who expend their labor in the productive process. This labor is expended for a money income, which may be weighted by other psychic factors. If the labor service is sold to an investing employer who owns the final good produced by the cooperating factors, it might be rendered in any required task from that of a ditch digger to that of a company president. On the other hand, labor income may be the result of the self-employment of the investing enterpriser. This type of laborer is also the owner of the final product, and his net monetary return from the sale of the product will include his labor income as well as his return from the money invested. The larger and more complex the enterprise and the production process, the greater will tend to be the development of specialized skill in management, and therefore the less will be the tendency for self-employment by the enterpriser. The smaller the enterprise and the more direct the production methods, the more likely is self-employment to be the rule. We have so far specifically treated the principles of allocating labor and money. The other exchangeable resources that a man may possess, and it is the exchangeable resources that Catalactics is interested in, are consumers' goods and non-personal producers' goods, land and capital goods. The consumers' goods in a man's stock are the durable ones, the non-durable goods and services will have disappeared in the process of consuming them. Now, as we have seen in Chapter 2, 
Any good may have either direct use value to its owner, or exchange value, or a mixture of both. At any time, each owner of a consumer's good must judge on his value scale whether its exchange value or its highest direct use value is the greater. In the money economy, the problem of exchange value is simplified, since it will be exchange for money that will be especially important. The utility on his value scale of the highest direct use value will be compared to the utility of the sum of money the good could procure in exchange. Suppose, for example, that Mr. Williams owns a house. He determines that he could sell the house for 200 ounces of gold. Now he judges the ranking of the direct use as against the exchange value on his value scale. Thus, he might have three alternative direct uses for the house. A. Living in it. B. Living in it part of the time and letting his brother live in it part of the time. C. Living in it part of the time with no participation by his brother. And he may weigh each of these against the exchange value as follows. William's Value Scale Ranking 1. Direct use A. 2. Exchanging good for 200 ounces of money. 3. Direct use B. 4. Direct use C. In this case, Williams will decide to live in the house and not sell it. His decision will be determined solely by his value scale. Someone else might rank the exchange above the direct use and therefore sell the house for money. It is obvious that it is true without qualification that for any given good the seller will try to obtain as high a money price for it as possible. The proof of this is analogous to the demonstration given in Chapter 2 that the seller of a given good always tries to obtain the highest price, except that here the markets are simplified by being exchanges solely for money and therefore it is the money price that is important. The money income that a man will get from the sale of a good will always equal the money price of the sale times the quantity of units of the good. Thus, if he sells one house at a money price of 200 ounces per house, his total money income from the good will be 200 ounces. His desire to sell at the highest price does not, of course, mean that he will always sell at that price. The highest money price for a good may still be lower than the psychic value of direct use to him, as was the case with Williams. It is possible, however, that if the money price for selling the house rose to 250 ounces, the exchange value of the house would have ranked higher than direct use A, and he would have sold the house. It is clear that if the owner of the consumer's good is also the original producer, the direct use value to him will be almost nil. The specialized producer who produces and owns houses or television sets or washing machines finds that the direct use value to him of this stock is practically non-existent. For him, the exchange value is the only important factor, 
and his interest lies solely in maximizing his money income from the stock, and therefore in attaining the highest money prices in the sale of each good. The non-exchangeable factors that might loom large to the prospective investor or laborer in a certain line of production will be negligible to the producer who already has a stock of goods, since he had already taken the non-exchangeable factors into account when he made his original investment or his original choice of occupation. Thus, to the producer of a consumer's good, the way to maximize his psychic income from this revenue is to obtain the highest possible money price from its sale. When will an owner sell the good, and when will he rent out its services? Clearly, he will take the course that he believes will yield him the highest money income, or, more precisely, the highest present value of money income. What of the owner of a stock of non-personal producer's goods? How will he allocate these goods to attain the highest psychic income? In the first place, it is clear that by definition producer's goods can have no direct use value to him as consumer's goods. But they may well have direct use value as producer's goods, that is, as factors of production in the making of a product further along in the process of being transformed into consumer's goods. For any given stock of a producer's good, or for any unit of that stock, there might be an exchange value, a value in use for transformation into another product that would then have exchange value, or both. It is also true for the owner of producer's goods that non-exchangeable factors will generally play a negligible role. The fact that he has already invested and perhaps worked in producing or purchasing these goods signifies that he has already accounted for the possible positive or negative psychic values in the work itself. Furthermore, in the economy of indirect exchange, it is only exchange of goods produced for money that is important, as there will be very little scope for barter. The owner of producer's goods is therefore interested in judging whether the goods will yield a higher money income from exchanging them directly for money, or from transforming them via production into a product of lower order, and then selling the product for money. As an example of the choices facing the owner of producer's goods, let us take Robertson. Robertson has invested in, and therefore owns, the following factors. Ten units of producer's good X, five units of producer's good Y, six units of producer's good Z. He knows, because of his technological knowledge, that he can transform these units of cooperating factors X, Y, and Z into ten units of a final product P. The various units, of course, are purely physical units of the various goods, and are therefore completely incommensurable with one another. He estimates that he will be able to sell these units of P for 15 ounces each, a total money income of 150 ounces. 
On the other hand, he sees that he could sell or resell the factors directly for money, without himself transforming them into P, as follows. Ten units of X, at six ounces of gold per unit, the money price of X, a money income from stock of X of sixty ounces, five units of Y, at nine ounces per unit, a money income of forty-five ounces, Six units of Z at four ounces per unit, a money income of twenty-four ounces. His total money income from the sale of the stock of each producer's goods separately and directly is one hundred twenty-nine ounces. However, Robertson must also consider the money expenditures that he would have to make in buying labor services to help in this transformation. In a free economy, he cannot own a stock of laborers. If his expenditure on labor service is less than twenty-one ounces, then it will pay him to transform the factors and sell the product P for one hundred fifty ounces. If the required expenditures on labor service are more than twenty-one ounces, then it will pay him to sell the producer's goods directly for money. In each one of these prospective sales, of course, it is to the owner's interest to be able to sell at the highest possible price, thus yielding the highest money income from each good. Suppose now that Robertson had decided to go ahead with the production, and that he now has in his stock ten units of P. There is no prospect of his immediately going into the business that would make use of P as a factor in making another product. Therefore, there is only one alternative left to this owner: to sell the product for money for the highest price that he can acquire. However, in those cases where P is durable, he still has the option of holding off the sale if he believes that its money price in the future will be higher, and provided that the higher price will cover the disadvantage to him of waiting, his time preference, and the expenses of storing P until the sale is made. The owner of a producer's good, whether a product to him or a factor, may rent it out if he does not sell the entire good. In order for this to be feasible, of course, the good would have to be relatively durable. Here again, as in the case of a consumer's good, the owner will decide on outright sale of the good or hiring out of its services over a period of time, in accordance with his judgment of which alternative will yield him the highest money income, precisely the highest present value. We have thus analyzed the actions of an owner of a stock of consumers' goods or of producers' goods in attempting to attain his most highly valued ends, that is, to maximize his psychic income. Non-exchangeable factors for him will generally be negligible in importance, since they had already been discounted when the investment in them was made. If we set aside the value of the durable consumer's good in direct use for some owners, the aim of the owners will be to maximize their money income from the stock of the good. 
Since money income from sale of a good is the money price of the good multiplied by the quantity sold, this means that the sellers will try to attain the highest money price for their stock. At this point, we may at least briefly begin to answer the question we did not have the information to answer in Chapter 2. Granted the behavior of the owner of a given stock, what determines the size of that stock of goods? Now, obviously, except in the case of personal energy, these goods must have been previously produced by someone, or previously found and transformed in the case of pure nature-given factors. This previous production was undertaken either by the present owner or by someone in the past from whom he had acquired by exchange or gift this stock of goods. The past investment must have been made for the reason that we saw earlier, the expectation of a future money return from the investment, compensating for the sacrifice of waiting to consume in the future instead of the present. This previous investor expected that he would be able to sell the good for a money income greater than the money expenditures that he had to make on the factors of its production. As an example, let us take Robertson with a stock of 10 units of P. How did he acquire this stock? By investing money in buying factors of its production and then producing it in the hope of making a certain net money income, that is, in the expectation that the money income from the sale of P would be greater by a certain amount than the money expenditures invested in the various factors. Now, how did the previously produced stock of the factors X, Y, and Z come into existence? By the same process. Various investors engaged in the production of these factors in the expectation of a net money income from the investment. Total money income from the investment greater than total money expenditures. This investment decision accounts for the existence of all the stock of all producers' goods and durable consumers' goods for any community at any given point in time. In addition, the stock of pure nature-given factors was acquired through the owner's or some previous person's finding and using previously unused factors in a production process. The stock of the money commodity was, like that of the consumer's and producer's goods, the result of an investment decision by an investing producer, who expected his money income to be higher than his money expenditure. On the other hand, the stock of personal energy owned by any person is inherent in his nature as a human being. We have thus analyzed each type of exchangeable resource that a person may have, what governs his use of them in order to maximize his psychic income, and to what extent such maximization involves attempted maximization of money income from the resource. In analyzing the determinants of the money income from any sale, we have seen that they are the quantity and the money price, and we have just seen how the quantities involved in the given stock of any good can be accounted for. 
What yet remains unaccounted for is the money prices. All we know about them so far is that the seller of any good, consumer's or producer's good or labor service, wishes to sell it for as high a money price as possible. Non-exchangeable goods on the owner's value scale may modify this rule, but generally these modifications will be important only for sellers of labor services. We have so far been considering man as the allocator or seller of a given good. What of man as a buyer of a good? And here we recall the discussion in the early parts of this chapter. As a buyer, he uses money for investment expenditures and for consumption expenditures. In our discussion of an individual's consumption expenditures, we saw that he decided on them upon considering a unit's worth of goods. But what determines what his unit's worth shall be? What is an ounce of money's worth of eggs, or hats, or butter, etc.? This can be determined only by the money price that the buyer would have to pay for the good. If a man can buy eggs at one-tenth of an ounce per dozen, then one ounce's worth of eggs is ten dozen. Now it is obvious that man, in his capacity as a buyer of consumers' goods with money, will seek to buy each particular good at the lowest money price possible. For a man who owns money and seeks to buy consumers' goods, it is clear that the lower the money prices of the goods he seeks to buy, the greater is his psychic income. For the more goods he can buy, the more uses he can make with the same amount of his money. The buyer will therefore seek the lowest money prices for the goods he buys. Thus, ceteris paribus, the psychic income of man as a seller for money is maximized by selling the good at the highest money price obtainable. The psychic income of man as a buyer with money is maximized by buying the good for the lowest money price obtainable. Let us now sum up the results of the analysis of this chapter. We have seen how the common medium of exchange emerges in the market out of direct exchange. We have noted the pattern of exchanges with and for money in an economy of indirect exchange. We have described how each individual has a pattern of money income and money expenditures. Then we investigated what is involved in the maximization of psychic income in a money economy, how this principle governs the actions of people in their various functions, as owners of different types of resources and as laborers or investors. We have seen to what extent such pursuit after the most highly valued ends involves the maximization of money income in the various cases, and to what extent it does not. We have just concluded that such maximization of psychic income always leads the seller of a good to seek the highest money price for it, and the buyer of a good to seek the lowest money price with such exceptions as the laborer who spurns a higher money price for his labor because of the non-exchangeable conditions attached to the work, 
or the investor who spurns a greater prospective income for a line of production that he prefers for its own sake. These exceptions aside, pursuit of the rule, buy on the cheapest market and sell on the dearest, leads to satisfaction of the most highly valued ends for each individual, both as a consumer and as a producer. Although we know that man tries to maximize his psychic income, and therefore his money income, ceteris paribus, we still do not know on what basis the money income that he does acquire is determined. We know that the non-exchangeable values are simply determined by the value scales of each individual, but though we know that, ceteris paribus, a man will sell a service or a good for a greater rather than a lesser money price and income, we do not yet know what makes the money prices what they are, what determines the money prices of consumers' goods, of labor services, of capital goods, of nature-given factors, what determines the money price of the entire durable good and the money price of the hired-out services? And with the enormous importance of investment as the determinant of the given stock of every good, what determines the spread between gross money income from goods and the money expenditures on the factors needed to produce them? It is only the anticipation of this spread between money income from the sale of the product and money expenditure on factors that brings about investment and production. And what, if any, are the relations that tend to be established among the various prices? To put it differently, all human action uses scarce resources to attempt to arrive at the most highly valued of not yet attained ends, that is, to maximize psychic income. We have seen how this is done by individuals in isolation and by individuals in direct exchange, although these can exist only to a drastically limited extent. We have seen how it is done on an immensely greater scale in the money economy, and we have seen that the specific components of psychic maximization in the money economy are ultimately non-exchangeable values, quantities of goods in stock, and the money prices that these goods can exchange for on the market. We have explained the operations of the non-exchangeable values, and we have very briefly indicated how the quantity of the given stock of each good is determined. We have now to investigate the classic problem in the analysis of indirect exchange, the determination of money prices. The analysis of money prices, moreover, will enable investigation into the reasons for and the determinants of the spread between expected gross money income from sales and the expenditure on factors, which induces people to invest in the production of stock.